to have local re- no 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 At Coco Talk, we'd like to thank the patrons who sponsor our show, so our heartfelt gratitude goes out to Alan Murphy, Alan Huffman, Blair Ledoux, Bowden Aaron, Brendan Donahue, Brian Weasler, Karen Anscombe, D. Bruce Moore, Daniel Williams, Diego, Eric Canales, Glenn Hewlett, Graham Vebke, Grant Leedy, Henry Strickland, Jason Downs, Ken Reichert, Kyle Etter, Malfunk, Michael Pitsley, Paul Fiscarelli, Paul Shoemaker, Paul Thayer, Rick Eulin, Rob Inman, Stephen Wagner, Steve Batson, Steve Rasmussen, Terry Steen, Terry Steggy, The Backyard Shed Gang, Tom C., Tom Heron, Tom S., and Tony C. Thank you ever so much, patrons. Coco Talk is an unscripted live broadcast. Anything can and will happen. The views and opinions expressed by members of the panel and the live audience are their own and not necessarily those of the Coco Talk show, its sponsors, affiliates, or subsidiaries. Open minds encourage, sense of humor recommended. If any off color comments were made, we're sorry. Hi, this is Dale Lear, designer of TRS-80 Color Baseball, and you're listening to Coco Talk. This is Coco Talk the world's leading live talk show featuring the Tandy Color Computer. It's time to drop your socks, grab your real-time clocks, and let's rock. Coco Talk is rocking the 8-bit world, keeping the Tandy flame alive. We may be mocked, but we'll never stop, because Coco Talk is rocking the 8-bit world. Welcome to Coca-Cola, episode 233. Today's, we have a special guest, Karen Eskom. I need to get with it this morning. Hello, everybody. <laughs> oh, timing was all off on that one. Um, Can we hello, start the everybody. show over again? No, we're not going through that again. <laughs> well, the panel is assembled. Um, let's see if I can focus on people's names today. Uh, first up. I'm just wondering how you're going to pronounce them. That's what I'm wondering. Uh, badly. I will guarantee that. So, uh, first up, we have uh, you, uh, yeah. resident smartass here in present. Yeah. Uh, what was your first name again? <laughs> Real first oh. name or the one I use oh. uh, in public? Uh, let's see. We have so yes, L. Curtis Boyle. There we go. Hello. How are you? Hello, doing? everyone. <laughs> 
So his Next first up. name is L? Uh, no, it starts with an L. Starts with an L. So, uh, all right. Next, we had uh, Patrick Euland. We should have a drawing. What's the L for? I think we've done that already Lousy. before. Lousy. Lousy. <laughs> yeah. Lazy. That's what it is. It's, it's, it's Curtis with an L. All right. Let's see. Last over on the right-hand side there, Ken Waters. Hello, everybody. Maker of the Game On Challenge. Let's see. And a cat about to knock over your coffee cup behind you. It's empty. <laughs> All right. Next, uh, next row, we have Ron Delvo. Hello, everybody. Welcome, welcome. And next up, Dame James Diffendaffer. Hello. And then trying to make his way back home to build more switcheroos, Jason Reichard. Hey everybody, Coco Talk, the only place for David Ladd and his turn signal orchestra. <laughs> All right, uh, next up, uh, maker of the drive wirelessly, Sloopy. No, Reading wrong person. I got it wrong. Wrong person. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, okay. Um, next up, uh, Bill Noble. I haven't seen you in a while. Yeah, it has been a while. Oh, glad to have you here. Then we have uh, Alan. Howdy, howdy, everyone. Uh, okay, and then um, last on that row, uh, our own Grant Leedy. Hey, guys. How's it going? I'm on my way up to Omaha, Nebraska. been going to Oklahoma City. Yeah, you just want to see my home get blown down. <laughs> <laughs> and then down to the bottom, sitting on a row all by himself. The one and the only. There we go. There's David Ladd. <laughs> Hello, everyone. I hope you're going to enjoy the show today. Hey, it's David, already... you ready for me to? You ready for me to knock on your door in a little bit? Oh, don't worry, Grant. I'm ready for you. <laughs> I'll be I have ready a, to greet you at the door. I have a, a Commodore Vic for you that I'm dropping out. I'm dropping out of my car. So, Curtis, I should run over it before I give it to you. Are you even going to slow down to drop it off, or are you just going to throw it out the window? Have you ever played the video game Paperboy? He's going to do that. He's going to wing it at the mailbox <laughs> and hope it gets there. Yeah. Yes, because I, 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 I took all that effort to bring it up from Florida and store it because we didn't have a Cocoa Fest for a year. <laughs> okay. Um, so today, uh, Karen, how you doing? Hello there. Good to be here. Am I here? You is are this here. <laughs> this is real. Uh, and just just these... for our viewers, can you pronounce your name so that Mark knows how to say it in the future? Karen. <laughs> and your last name? Anscombe. There. Okay. There you go. Oh, sort of close. <laughs> Good enough for government work. <laughs> We're also expecting uh, possibly some special guests to help interview Karen a little bit later, tier two. They're uh, not here yet. One of them I haven't heard from uh, yet today, so I'm not sure if he forgot or got busy or whatever, but the other one said it'll be here about probably about 20 minutes from now. So we'll introduce them when they get here as well. Uh, but basically, our guest. Uh, 
Oh, sorry, go ahead, Mark. Yeah, that's all right. I'm just trying to get all these views set up correctly here. You want me to vamp for a bit there and give you some time? No, go ahead. <laughs> go ahead. We'll get it. So anyway, our special guest today is Karen Anscombe, um, who is, of course, the author of x the author of this week's Dungeons uh, High Score Challenge game. He also did uh, Block Down. He also made his own 512K memory board for a pal Coco 3 recently received. Because he's a jack of all trades. He does software and he does hardware. So I think you've claimed that you're not that good at hardware, though compared to me, you're an absolute genius. Oh, I think jack of all trades has it because the next part of that phrase is master of none. (laughs) Karen, do you have one of these? I can't see. (laughs) Uh, Okay, hang on, Ron. You're off the the thumbnails. (laughs) Oh, the... uh, no, magnifying I glasses. And this has a little extra magnifying power to see up noses. Because <laughs> I certainly no. won't be working on electronics, probably. So you do have one? No, I've got a little desktop thing on a, a sort of angle poise. Okay, you don't want to look nervous. Like a magnifying glass on an arm type thing? Yeah. yeah. Works well enough. Anyway, we had you on for the uh, the Dragon Talk special. Uh, it's been a few months now, I think, I guess now. Um, yeah. But for those who have not seen that or are new to the show, I thought I'd go through a little bit of your background once again, because by now you should have it memorized. Um, <laughs> so I, I guess basically the first two questions we pair to all ask every interviewee is what got you into computers at the very beginning and what got you into, in your case, the Dragon? And is that okay. your bedroom? <laughs> so in reverse um, order. In random order, yes, this is my bedroom because I've got nowhere else to be in this house. Uh, there's a cat on the bed, but you can't see him. Um, probably around the early 80s, it's the it's the usual story. I was sort of exposed to computers at school, um, BBC Micros, and a friend of the family had a Dragon 32. And one or other birthday, I forget which, a Dragon 64 appeared in the house. It must have been a couple of years after they released, though, because we wouldn't have been able to afford afford it otherwise. Um, and like so many of us, that was it. I had a career in computers ahead of me. Okay. So was there a reason that you particularly wanted the Dragon instead of, say, a BBC Micro or an Amstrad or a Spectrum or something else that was probably more common and more popular at the time? I was don't it- think I expressed a desire. Um, I think I was always wanting to use this friend of the family's 32 um, that probably probably swung the decision. It was it was just a case of what we could afford. I think um, that was that looked reasonable. Obviously, you'd have to ask my parents. And <laughs> Bring them on in. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so then you, you you this was in high school. I'm presuming at, at this time, or were you still in uh, school? That would have been primary school. Okay. So up to up to te- uh, ten years old. So, so it might have been in between the two. In fact, I, I simply can't remember. It was it was around about the transition between primary school and secondary school. Yeah. Okay, so fairly young, basically. Fairly young. And, and you immediately knew that. Now, did you originally want that for like? Did you get exposed to programming when you were in school? And that's what got you interested, in it? or was it the games? Yeah. Or yeah. Um, to begin with, they they I think they had a BBC Micro at school, but they didn't actually have anything for it so programming was pretty much all all you could do but the next year killer gorilla was 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 around which we don't have any other brits on the 
<laughs> so nobody knows what that is <laughs> yet. Um, that is that was, a Donkey that Kong a, clone? I'm guessing it's it's a Donkey Kong clone. It's a very bad one, but it's a, it's certainly a Donkey Kong. <laughs> okay. Um, so so we learnt to type in little programs and and away we went. BBC Basic was pretty good, but underneath it all was a Sitfire too. So I'm kind of glad that at home I had something a little nicer. And actually, that brings up the next thing, because you obviously got into programming at an early age, um, both from school and then from getting the Dragon 64. Um, what prompted you to get in machine language? Was it because you're trying to write games or was it just a natural progression? Like, I'm, I'm done learning basic, I need something new? Or, or how did that happen? Oh, it was almost certainly games, even just little ones. Um, and, you know, wanting to know how, how the machine worked. I think before I had an assembler, I, I was sort of stealing time at school, right borrowing a book from from the school library on 6809 assembler which they had weirdly and oh, wow. hand hand assembling stuff which was which was like the scroll the screen up down left right sort, sort of routines that are really really easy but you know <laughs> you've got to start somewhere um and eventually I, we, we uh, bought another dragon for whatever reason which came came with a disk system and and had a cartridge with it that was that had um a built-in assembler and there we go okay that's interesting you've got the the cartridge version of the assembler but you got a disk drive at the same time what i'm not sure why you yeah co the disk co-resident with the dos always oh, built was into a, the rom at the same yeah time? yeah so was, was this was, custom then or was that something commercially sold it was it was it was made that way <laughs> um, okay i hadn't heard of that before yeah, 8K drives, uh, Dreambug, the, the debugger. Very, very useful. Yeah, I've heard of Dream, but I always assumed it was a separate product, a separate cartridge yep. or a disk-based yep. system. I didn't it, realize it was, it was all those things. Same. Oh, wow. It was all those things. That's cool. And you guys had a better DOS than us anyway, you know, as far as... Because you guys handled yep. 40 tracks and double-sided and 80-track drives, and we were stuck yep. with the ROM that never got updated from 35 tracks single-sided. Yeah, and I never had the original... Dragon DOS 1.0, so I never encountered the 80-track bug, which would have really annoyed me. <laughs> well, we had that disk basic 1.0 bug where it actually would just randomly scramble your disk every once in a while and trash the directory track. So we, we had our own issues here too. That's why there was a rather hasty 1.1. What was your first exposure to the uh, Coco? It was probably another friend of the family getting a 16K Coco 1 or 2. Uh, without extended basic and being around their house and trying to type in some of the things that I knew how to do on the dragon and everything I tried failing because <laughs> it doesn't even much you can do color basic. <laughs> <laughs> that was one big advantage of the dragon actually because right out of the box right out the get-go it came with both 32k of ram well actually three things 32k ram a real parallel port which is much faster and much more compatible with printers and uh, of course, the extended base of being built in as well, which we used. We, you know, we bought bought a little. Eventually, had a little um, Star LC10. Do you remember those? Yep. The nice little uh, cheap home home printer, and we used used it a lot. Yeah, because there's like uh, the Gemini's and the Okadatas and the Epson FX and MX's and and some oh yeah, I, I mean, I'll recognize all the names when I see them scroll past. <laughs> <laughs> We had a start. <laughs> yeah. 
that, that was one big advantage because I mean, on the Coca, we had the serial bit banger port. And of course, Tandy made their own printers, but they made darn sure there was a serial port on so you could use them. But as far as third party goes, there was a few that had serial ports built in, and you just had to buy an adapter cable to go from our little four pin to you know, 25 or whatever. I think it was pre DB9. But uh, most of the common printers that you know, the Apples and the Ataris and the Commodores were all using were all parallel, so we had to either just skip those printers entirely or buy an actual serial parallel interface which added the cost of like 40, 50 bucks to just getting a printer to work type thing. So that was one rather disappointing thing for the, the Coco that they never did fix up. I mean, there was third party parallel ports you can get. Uh, we had quite a few of them work. We had, you know, three printer ports on one Coco, but yeah, it was uh, one thing I was quite, quite jealous that Dragon had the great keyboard. <laughs> it also had, you know, a real parallel port in the Dragon 64. Of course, had a real serial port built into it too, which is actually what, you know, you know the deluxe Coco was supposed to have and never got released. So you guys were- yeah way ahead of us as far as hardware base goes. I must admit so, the serial port never really got much use, but- um, Was BBSing not a big port. thing in the UK at the time in the 80s or? Um, it probably was for some people, but not for me because um, we, don't, we don't, don't have free local calls here. Or we didn't, I don't even know what we have now. Nobody makes calls anymore, right? <laughs> Boy, um, we have. So, so everything costs money and a lot of money. Um, spent the and there were all sorts of stories about people running up massive phone bills and stuff, and we just never, never braved it. Uh, my first exposure to the wider world of networking was getting to university, and suddenly, suddenly, Janet and the internet. <laughs> yeah, I mean, in North America, both Canada and the states, local calls were free. Oh, you paid a you know flat monthly fee for your phone line or whatever, but basically, it didn't cost just it was long distance. We used to rack it up, you know, because all the the cool software on the you know, pirate sites was always long distance somewhere away. So then you'd have to call it three in the morning when it's cheaper and, you know, download whatever Donkey King or whatever was coming out at the time. But yeah, I, we didn't I have, have a, the extra expense of local calls causing extra or costing extra. I had a friend who I will not name who demonstrated to me uh, the, the whole making a call that got rooted through a satellite and breaking it halfway through. And, and so ending up talking to a, a U.S bbs for free thing but i never did it <laughs> too risky yeah. for me <laughs> that was a whole black box scene and everything else there too so now you obviously got into it for the software now you've done some hardware projects we'll get into a, a little bit later on here so what got you into the hardware side of things was that something you'd started that young as well and you were interested in it or is that something that came later kind of yeah so i tried for my what was it my a-level cdt project at school to make a, a, a RAM upgrade for the Dragon and failed miserably because I didn't know what I was doing. <laughs> I had no idea. I think I was trying to bank it with another PIA and didn't really have any clue how you should really be interfacing it to, to the computer. Um, it was kind of nice to eventually make that properly. <laughs> For the dragon, um, did you yeah, get marks was... for trying, or like was it was it strictly based on whether you got it to work? I mean, this oh, yeah, is obviously no, no, something I... for school to learn, but I, I, yeah, for trying. I mean, we were pre-university age; it was <laughs> you couldn't really hold that against us, I guess. <laughs> now, did you go to university to get trained for computer programming as well? Did you get a degree in it, or yeah, yeah, I, I'm a I'm, I'm a software engineer, don't you know? I'm not. I I didn't do that. But I did go and get a software engineering degree, um, just about. <laughs> okay, but you never pursued um, the hardware side of things at, at the university level. No, well, again, they they covered it covered little bits like um, 
probably pick programming, that sort of thing. But nothing more. Yeah, because um, I remember my, it, my it, second year comp site course where I was taking was taking you know, semi-language programming and stuff, and they went into a little bit of chip design, like how gates work together to create an ad or something like that, but that was as far as I ever got. That sounds about that was the same level. Same, same also, level. a little bit of VHDL, which I forgot, but I've now relearned a bit. Oh, okay. Um, so did you do anything commercial with the Dragon during its heyday? Um, probably not during its heyday, but somewhat after its heyday, I did take over running a software company called Dragonfire Services for about a year before I went to university. Okay. Um, so this would be what, like late 80s, early 90s, somewhere in there? Uh, early 90s, yeah. I, th I think I was actively running it for long enough to go to one Dragon show, which was great. It was, it was kind of cool to meet people. Um, but then university happened and it all, it all just <laughs> yeah, kind of drained flat. your time. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so then you got a uh, software engineering degree. You're obviously you know, officially in your work life are still, you know, working with that, I'm presuming. Um, I'm a sysadmin. It means I've got plenty of time to, to uh, program on my own time. Um, it doesn't, it's, I don't go to work, spend all my time programming and then don't want to program again. Oh, okay. I think, obviously, growing up, I wanted to be a games programmer because look at these, look at these things. They're cool. I'm really glad I'm not. Yeah, especially nowadays. <laughs> I mean, now you need a whole committee to make a game, and it's also like hard deadlines. We have to meet this season and you know whatever else. And it's I've, from I've I hear from people, talking to people that do develop for modern platforms, it's like you know 80, 90, 100 hour work weeks for four weeks straight to get a specific ship date map, and it's still buggy at that point. And yeah, it's just a yeah, I've, I've known people that in the industry, the modern industry, and I'm really glad I have nothing to do with it. <laughs> it's not pretty. Now, no, no, the fact that you've been actually making games more recently, like in some cases ports or um, like literal ports from other platforms or creating a, a new version of a game that we've seen before, but yet you modernized it, like Lockdown, for example. Is that to scratch that itch? Like, what, what got you interested in doing the game programming in the more modern era versus, you know, like your initial as a kid wanting to do? That's a good question, to which I'm not prepared to for an um, Yeah, some, something came up. I must have I must have looked at something and and gone. I really should do that because as I as I put in the dev diary for Dungeons, I did try when I was a kid to do this. I got so far and I had two players running around on a black and white screen, um, no monsters. Um, it was sort of coming along and it might have eventually be become a very bad version of, of Dungeons for only two players, uh, but I lost the disc. It just vanished. Yeah, and that's crushing. You're like, you just got, I don't yeah. want to look at it again type thing. Because redo everything. Because I put a lot of effort into that at the time. Um, yeah, eventually I obviously just got the impulse to start again um, now is this when the resurgence of coco and dragon programming because there actually has been a resurgence the last few years like dungeons i'm trying to remember what what year did you release the first version of it was it 2017 yeah yeah 17 so um, i mean the resurgence had kind of started before then was that maybe what triggered it that you saw oh hey these other people are developing stuff and yeah it was probably um I, he's, I don't know if he's turned up yet but mr bamford's flag and bird he'd, he'd released that and I forget the name of the guy who released Glove. 
Uh, um, James McKay, isn't it? Right. Um, yeah, those things started started coming out, and people were putting putting the time in to make fully, you know, A commercial grade, really yeah. really good quality stuff. And yeah, I can do that. <laughs> now, at that point, were you were you aware of only the dragon side things? Because the ones you've mentioned so far have been stuff that was actually done on the dragon specifically, or were you also aware of some of the Copa stuff that was coming out around the same time? Um, probably because I've been watching the Coco stuff happen on the internet for quite a while now. Um, although it was, it was probably not until 2000 plus until I really noticed that anything was, was online. Um, that's about right. I'd like to think it was my game wise. site that did that because that's exactly <laughs> when I put it up and done. <laughs> um, Take some credit because yours would have been one of the first ones I saw. I think um, Alan Decock has a a general link site of six eight oh nine stuff, yeah. and you've got your game site, and those two those two would have been the one of the the first sort of things I saw. And then the Coco three forums were running. Can't, right, can't yeah, put... like Marcus Bloomish had his whole Coco three page, and then later on I think Roger Taylor ran one. And, yeah. Could be. I'm remembering horrible green background forum pages. <laughs> yeah, that's probably Marcus. <laughs> Right. So he did modernize um, it a little bit later, but and I did join that, and so so I've been talking to sort of you American people about Cocos and, and since about probably online <laughs> since about then. Yeah, the Americas. <laughs> so yeah, when so you, it, oh, go ahead. I, when you did XROAR, um, you started out probably wanting to emulate a um, dragon, right? And then you just included uh, Coco later, or um, and then the other question I have is, was there ever an Unraveled series for the Dragon that you helped you um, maybe figure out all this code? Or how did you, how did the process work to actually figure out how to make a, you know, an emulated Coco or okay. Dragon? So, yes, I wanted an emulated Dragon. Um, the the, the um, inspiration came from... Jeff Minter on, on his uh, web forums talking about this little handheld device, the GP32, for which emulators were available for all sorts of platforms, but of course not the Dragon. So I got a GP32 and I, that's, that's, that's what I wanted to happen. So that's what, what I, I made happen. Was this um, before Paul's Dragon emulator? Because he made an earlier one too, right? Paul Burgeon, I think his name was. Am I remembering that right? Wasn't there an earlier before XR? There was another Dragon emulator back. There, there have been others. Oh, right, Paul Bergen. Um, Ber sorry, Bergen. No, way, way after. He'd okay. written some for DOS. Uh, two, two that I know of. There's, there's one. The first one is PC Dragon Two, which very much implies that there was a PC Dragon One, but I don't remember ever seeing that. And then came T3. Uh, they were both very good, but they were they were kind of DOS specific. And T3 was even written in 3.6 assembly, I think. Um, so porting that would have been... Yeah, bear. I think I did contact him once during... Um, while I was at university um, and might have been sent the source code, but long gone. And as I say, x86 assembly. Would yeah, that's kind of like, like Jeff Avasor here when he did the Coco 1 and 2 and 3 emulators back in you know, the 90s type thing. It was the same thing, like he wrote it all in assembly at the time. And then yeah, other much, people much more clever, much more clever than what, what I come up with. But I've come up with something more portable. So so 
I think think mine has its place. <laughs> oh, definitely, definitely. Um, but as as Ron was asking, like, did you develop specifically to be Dragon only, and you just added Cocos and Afterthought later, or was that designed to do both at the same time? Since the machines are fairly similar, I, I I almost certainly focused on the Dragon first, uh, but it wouldn't have been long after to before making Coco one and two work because it really is not that much to change. Um, other than artifact colors, but you've actually got some, one of the best emulations of artifact colors out of all the emulators, to be honest. Oh, there's a story there. <laughs> Please uh, um, proceed. But but the but the other question was something I need to be unraveled. Sorry, unraveled. Right. Um, Inside the Dragon was an Addison Wesley book for, released for the Dragon, and it's considered to be the Dragon Bible. Um, that the one by Duncan Smead and Smeed. Uh, that other guy. Right. Yep. Yeah. That's right. Um, uh, I've referenced that book so much, my original co copy completely fell apart. I've got a new one now, signed. Oh, cool. <laughs> Which is nice. Um, yes, and that's great. It, it, talk, it sort of describes everything in, in the main text of the book, but writing an emulator, uh, I have been reading that for since I was a kid, so quite a lot of it was familiar. For writing an emulator, it's the data sheet. It's 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 all just reading the data sheets and and understanding the actual them. chips themselves. You mean yeah. the, like the hardware timings, right? And... Yeah, the the six eight nine data sheet is very good. It's got a complete um, flowchart of how all the instructions work. Uh, it's not entirely accurate, but some other people online have have inferred what the real behavior of some instructions are. So. Before the stream started, there was a, there was a little discussion off air about uh, non-valid memory act address accesses. Yes. I think addresses, and some of the instructions are shown to have those in certain places in, in their execution, which are in the data sheet, which isn't quite right. So others have researched that. I did did some uh, some research myself um, with a nice little logic analyzer I got. Which I can't pronounce the name of, but it's something like Solea. They do they do with this sixteen channel logic analyzer, which you can trigger off whatever you want, pretty much, and then analyze in whatever way you want. Really, really useful. So, do you have to like yeah. single step through to figure out you know what the specific times really were? Thing, yeah, you kind of, you kind of set it up so that you're running it running in a tight loop that that does a sync to an interrupt. So you've got something to trigger off. You can see you can watch the interrupt and then and then you monitor whichever like address or data lines you you think you need to to see what the CPU is putting on the bus. Okay, because I've seen there's, there seems to be two different approaches to emulators, <clears throat> and we've had the mention of a couple stories. So there's those two people that are doing their master's degree on doing an em, an em emulate 6809, I guess, using FPGA technology, but they're not worried about cycle accuracy. They just want the instructions to work as fast as humanly possible, so shooting like 200 megahertz, whatever they're shooting for these days. But they're not trying to get a cycle accurate. You're in the other case on your emulator are trying to get cycle accurate so that old programs will run exactly as intended. Yeah, that was important to me. Um, T3 did a, a very interesting thing where it tried to scale its execution time based on how long things had been taking so far. It, it was very clever and it sort of meant, meant that it sort of bounced itself out and it ran at, at, things ran at the right speed, but it meant that sound was a bit off and it, it could warble a bit. Um, whereas these days you just, so, so long as your, your CPU emulation is running fast enough, 
you just make sure you're generating audio at the right rate to shove in shove into an audio buffer and throw and throw throw a buffer at a time at a sound card and it's much easier much easier for me yeah another thing about well, xor is that you, not only from adding the coco 2 stuff later on but you've also added a lot of extra hardware support similar to mame um in fact, I think you've just added some stuff recently too, um, as well as Coco 3 support, which is brand new and it's on your Xware online emulator. Has it been officially released with Coco 3 support for the downloadable version? No, I, I, I wanted to. There's, there are, there's snapshot builds out there, um, but I've not had the time to finish it off. Um, like what, what do you have left there? Because I mean, it ran Joust quite well, which means I, I, to me, it, it looks like it's running pretty darn good so far. Execution-wise, it's fine it, or it's good enough. It, the, there are... It's not running Sockmaster's drive-through demo perfectly yet, which, but I, I think that's something that I can fix later. Most things do seem seem to run just fine. Um, it's it's user interface stuff. Um, is it the gimme? To... Is it the gimme that's the clever part that's hard to figure, or what? Uh, well, yes, it's the. I think it's the timers on 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 that chip that are. That I, I really need to finesse, but most of it is good enough. I say most games work. Um, Nitros Nine works. Well, that's all Although, that matters. So. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but I need it to before it's. I can make a proper release. You need to be able to make proper snapshots that you can reload in uh, because I use those all the time. They're, they're useful. Yeah, and your current um, snapshot would be set for like 64K, whereas on a right. through the MMU, you have to save the MMU states and the task register states and all of memory. And Yeah, and and my current snapshot format wasn't encapsulating all the information about those, those other bits of hardware that, that you mentioned, um, like Tormod Volden's NX32 and Moo. It, Right. It was just ignoring those. If you tried to snapshot one of those, it wouldn't have come back. Uh, now it does. And then there's the Gimme X. <laughs> Maybe someday. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't That's know. That's feature enough about creep, it. Ron. I know. I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm sorry. But in the future, because you have done a lot of third-party hardware support, I think that's probably something you would consider adding. But you need want you want to get the core done. Yeah, yeah. as best as it's, you can first. As it's just me. These these things are slow <laughs> because I'm slow. <laughs> Not just finding the time and inclination to do it. That's uh, it goes yeah. in bursts. At least that's what it does for me. I go like I'll go for like a month just hardcore. I'm working every night on something, and then you know either work gets in the way or personal life gets in the way, and then you just kind of drop it for a little bit and come back to it. Yeah, that basically just happened. <laughs> <laughs> now, one thing we were discussing the pre-show, and actually, I, I had to go get another copy, so I, I missed the tail end of that discussion. Is something that I've noticed too is that in XWare, if you go to save by default, it saves it to the cached copy of, of the program. Um, and then if you exit out and you forget to reset the setting, any changes you did disappear. Now, you were about to explain on the pre call exactly why you chose to do it that way. And that's when I kind of walked out. So I would like to just kind of, because I never heard the answer, I'd like to hear what the. Okay. Was. Well, my early use of the emulator was mostly for playing games. And I suspect that's what most people would use it for you know I, i've made a guess that the, mo the most of the user base are probably interested in playing games and they probably don't want it to mess up their disk files um, by default so so i made that optional uh, it okay. slips like the entire disk image into memory and it operates it on it in memory rather than i think other emulators would either either, either immediately 
or flush it out when it closes or something. Yeah, or or maybe when they change track, maybe they deal with the track at time. That's if I were to change it, that's what I'd do. I'd I'd make it so that when you when when the head moved, the virtual head it, that it wrote out the previous track that it. Um. Because yeah, the only thing I thought of that might make it a bit easier for people, like like some of the newer games and even some of the older ones, like Sailor Man and stuff, they want they save high scores to disc, for example. So even if you're a game uh, player, you may want those on there, right? So maybe just have it so that when you go to exit X, where if it detects that the disc image has changed, because a lot of games won't, then you can just you put a prompt, yeah, you know, disc image has changed, yeah. you know, save it type of thing. Yeah, you've you've hit upon another bit of work that I have not done, <laughs> which is which is sorry. Now more, I'm adding the feature creep. More user interface. Um, if you run it in under Linux, then we've got um, GTK and I can pop up dialog boxes and, and stuff, but it's a fairly portable code base and it can, as long as you've got STL for something, you can make it run just as a as a as an emulator window with no, no other sort of user interface on virtually anything. Yeah, because I mean, you even have pre-built versions of it for Mac OS X, for Windows, for Linux on your site. And... To present those dialogues, those pop-ups, I need to create the, the same code for all the things that, that it gets supported. Or I have it. I need to make it overlay onto the screen like MAME does. Uh, and I haven't done that work yet. Okay. That's really all it is. Um, there are lots of things that I'd like like it to go, are you sure about this? Or or at least give give the option to do something where at the moment I'm, I'm erring on the side of caution, you know, like that. What about having... Um a blank disk so that you could save data on it. Is that yeah, an option currently? You can, create, you can create a blank disk and by default, those will write back because okay. obviously you've created it. It assumes that you wanted to create it, yeah. so obviously you want to write it, yeah. <laughs> okay, well, we're going to rewind a little bit back, uh, back to uh, the games that you've actually been producing lately, um, one of which is our game of the week. So as far as uh, what you would consider commercial game grade releases that you've done is it just dungeons and blockdown at this point or have you done oh, yes, some other just, ones just the two um okay i don't even know if i have anything half done lots yeah lots of tech demos that where i've yeah i've yeah. gone i wonder if i can do this yeah you've actually um, got some videos on on your site there like you've got some hardware scrolling yeah. using tricks on the sam and the vdg type thing to... yeah and i did a sort of horizontal scrolling shooter demo just to see if I could and to see how much time I had left in a frame and that's that sort of thing. I'm I'm not I haven't put as much effort into those things as um Stuart Orchard has for for his because he's come out with his um Return of the Beast, the which beast, is yeah. amazing. <laughs> yeah, no, I was pretty I was pretty impressed when I saw that for the first time, that's yeah. for sure. So in the case of Dungeons, that's actually a port of a game from which platform originally? The BBC Micro. And Electron. And, and has it been ported to other systems as well, besides the Dragon and Coco? I think other people have re done rewrites for, I, I, for for some other platforms, but the only one I remember seeing was for the Game Boy, possibly the Game Boy Advance. Uh, I forget. Um, not many. It's not that well-known a game. Which is surprising. I mean, it, 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 like at first glance, it looks like a gauntlet game. It supports up to four players. So you have what one on each joystick and then you know this keyboard split between two people kind of like you know gauntlet two did on the coco three or rampage did etc or gauntlet one did, oh, they had three players um 
but it actually is unique to gauntlet and it's actually to me a better playing game because of this like gauntlet always trapped the four players in the same physical screen so if somebody ran to one edge and somebody ran to the other edge then you both got stuck couldn't go any further and this one actually gives you the little pains for each player you can be in completely different areas of the maze which is a, a really good game mechanic you know to me it makes it much more fun and, and you can you can actually split duties like you go get this stuff here and i'll go take care of this stuff over here rather than everybody have to like follow the party around type thing yeah. so what so what what was it inspired you to pick that particular game to port so we played that at school a lot as in a lot a lot <laughs> um and it's just always stuck in my mind and Probably, you know, the best game I thought I played at school around those time was this, because you could have four people at once, all crowded around the keyboard. The BBC Micro's keyboard was a little bit better and it could support more keys being pressed at the same time. So everybody was on the keyboard for the BBC Micro version. And all four yeah, we, at once? Yep. Holy cow. <laughs> Somehow you managed. You'd always have... You know, people crouched in and one person reaching over, reaching over like that. <laughs> but, but, but you made it. You made it happen because you wanted to play the game. Four players at once. I mean, come on. Yeah, four players at once. You got a little bit better on the BBC Master, which had a which had a numeric keypad on the side, and so some of the, for the Master version, some of the keys were moved over over to that. A little bit more comfortable. Um, yeah, it, that's the reason. I I just loved it when I was a kid and wanted to always wanted it to exist on the dragon so so i made eventually made it happen so did, did you base this just on on seeing the game running or did you have access to the original source code did you get permission from the original author or anything like how, how did that oh, no. come about part of the coding <laughs> no there's a reason why it's all free to download and why the tapes that i that i sell to people are all at cost price and that's because i ripped off everything <laughs> that's not quite true you, no so, ported ported all the code is mine i didn't make reference to any code um but obviously the graphics are derived even though i we had to make them work in the in a lower uh, a more limited palette and smaller resolution um when when the music plays though that's 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 a register dump that i've <laughs> that i've ripped off the title screen completely recolored you know, rip it, rip off of the original. No, it's it's all, it's all nabbed. It's all an homage. <laughs> okay, but you had you had no kind of original author. I'm just wondering if maybe he'd seen your no, court and I've, said what he thinks about it. Or I've tried asking around on the startup forums, which the the focal point for Acorn users, um, and nobody seems to know where the guy is. <laughs> and I, I, actually, even for people that are used to the original version, they're like, what did they think of your version? compared to the original i haven't had that much feedback um yeah i i i really haven't i i don't know is the answer okay i mean we'll get into our reactions when we get into the game on segment there but we'll, we'll save it for that and then you've also come out with some later versions of it i mean first of all your your tape the tape version that you've got for sale actually has like the full color you know j card inserts and everything else too and the full color labels and stuff and it looks really awesome so anybody who's not seen that before and wants to get a bit of dragon history. Uh, what, what what's a good site for them to go to to, to order this one? Oh, my, familiar, or how does that work? My, my site has it has it on. I only have about ten left. So, so and no I, no I plans to make any more, even if sales go oh, through the roof now. <laughs> they'd have to really go through the roof. <laughs> um, yeah, but my site um, six eight zero nine dot org dot uk. 
Okay. But you, you also brought out a later version where you've got some port for some of the sound card stuff with some multi-voice music tracks and stuff added in. Yeah. Like explain so, like what, what brought you to do that and, and where did you get the assets for that as well? So as soon, because I really like the idea, as soon as John Linville made his Games Master cartridge of dev kits available, I ordered one. Um, and it's cool. Um, and, I, and because I had one, I had to use it. <laughs> <laughs> it's as simple as that and it's got a 76489 sound chip on it which is exactly the chip that was in the bbc micro so making the sounds bringing the sounds across is was very easy obviously i'd already done that because i i play the music i i soft synth the music on the, on the dragon through the dac but if i've got the sound chip i'll use the sound chip and it means we can have the proper sound effects in game as well the, the in-game sound effects for the normal Dragon Coco version are Smart. <laughs> That's that's kind. That's a kind word. <laughs> you kind chirps. of got it to flesh it out. Now you've also added uh, GMC support. We were talking about hardware support and export. I'm assuming for helping test that type of thing, and then of course you could compare it with the real, the real. Yeah, that, and the re and the re the reason support for it is in XOR is exactly the same reason. I had one. I had to make it work. And then you even did a version that's been slightly modified and optimized for the Coco 3, like alternate color palette sets. And... So that's the cartridge. That's the same, the same one. The, the, at the same time as I was doing the, the um, Games Master version, I, I added a few little tweaks that if it detected a Coco 3, it would, it would slightly adjust the palette so you've got a proper black background and things like that. Okay. Allow you to select between um, RGB and composite rather than the the artifact color modes to so get more pure colors so did you actually change the resolution yeah. to use the gimmies 128 by 192 yeah yeah because basically it maps yeah. the same i know nick's used the same I technique think, on some of his i think i had to because otherwise you can't change the palette is that right no you can change the palette no. but you can't change the border oh uh, uh, that was you still that, that white or green box around it which nick absolutely hates which is why he's that so was probably it. <laughs> i wanted to get rid of the border as well there you go that'll be it there, you two are peas in the hey, pot on that one. Good man, I like him. <laughs> did, did we ever ask you how much uh, hardware you actually have? Oh, um, some. <laughs> it's it's not that much. There there are people out there with with many more than me. But I've got about four or five Dragon sixty fours. Um, I only have one Coco three, and it's a PAL one. I only have one Coco two, and it's a PAL one, and it's a T one. You have a Dragon 32? I've got a couple of motherboards. They do now both work, but but I only have the motherboards. One of them wasn't working for a while, but I fixed that. One, one thing, Nick discovered the Dragon 64, and you'll have to ex explain, Nick, I can't remember the exact details, but basically some timing interrupt went goodbye. I think V-Sync or something? Oh, uh, the horizontal sync interrupt. Horizontal sync. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think Kieran knows about that one. <laughs> <laughs> He's holding so his head annoying. in pain, yes. I, I I don't know what they were doing. The signal is still present on the board. They just I didn't hook it up. They they hooked up the wrong bit. So so when so for for power machines and this is the same for the Coco and Coco one and two and the Dragon. The what it does is at two points in the, in each um, field frame. I'll call them frames because it's it's non interlaced. So it's it's the same thing. It stops the clock to the BDG and inserts fake lines. Uh, 25 at a time, giving you 50 per frame, which pads it all out to be the right frame rate, rate for PAL. Um, and on the 32, the 
the sync pulses for, for those fake lines make it to the CPU the same as the real ones. And on the 64, they don't. Yeah, because Nick encountered that when he was trying to do the background music for pipes because he was timing it on, on H-Sync and basically doing two H-Syncs and he'd, he'd do sound for 51% of the CPU time. So it overlapped on the second and then he'd kick out of the interrupt and then you go back to graphics. Yeah. So of course you have to use it for a fairly simple uh, graphical game. But he, he discovered, and I didn't know about this either until he tried it or got somebody to try it. It doesn't work on the Dragon 64 properly. Works fine on the Dragon yeah. 32. Sounds like garbage on the 64. Yeah. <laughs> it's a real shame. Um, now, is, is a hardware fix for that fairly easy? Like, is it something that people oh, yeah, should just modify so. to fix it? Um, well, yes and no. It's easy, but you can't depend on people having done it, can you? <laughs> no. I'm just wondering, maybe Nick should include directions. Like, if it's fairly similar, like, you know, solder one wire here, then maybe you should just include the directions so you can get it going. Or does it cause problems with some Dragon 64-specific software? I think that's unlikely because many people ran upgraded 32s, which wouldn't have had this issue. Um, yeah, I, I think it's unlikely that, that it would ever cause cause a problem. Um, no, on, on expert, you have to emulate that stupid oh, behavior. Yeah. Oh, absolutely, of course I do. <laughs> Why would I not? <laughs> but do you have an option on a Dragon sixty four to also emulate it with it fixed in case somebody's done the fix, or is that just oh, a good question? Option? Now, if you configure a thirty two with sixty four k of RAM then it'll do what you expect. But I don't think I've put an option in for that, no. Because well, I'm trying to remember what the exact difference between the 32 and 64 is. I mean, basically, obviously, 32K or 64K RAM, also the serial port, you know, like a real serial chip 6551 is embedded. Is there any other major differences between the two besides yeah, that it's got, bug? Well, it's got the two ROMs because it's got the, the basic ROM reassembled to, to live from C000 up instead of from 8000 up. Yeah, so you can actually get you know forty uh, so, k. So yeah, so you can, so it can be copied into RAM just like your Coco three. Yeah. <laughs> um. What else? Uh, the, the, there's some little niggles on. It, it decodes. You you know there's there's three outputs from the SAM, the S lines that that specify which memory region is being accessed. Which are ROM, which are RAM, that type of yeah. thing. Yeah. Those are decoded slightly differently on a sixty four. Um, but not much else that I can think of. But then I'm not the hardware guy. <laughs> <laughs> so then now dungeons. I'm assuming you you did fairly well with that. Like, did you take it to trade shows, like the Dragon meetups and stuff, and sell some of them? Like, were you? How many did you sell? Did you, were you surprised at how they were selling type thing, or or was it more I just took it. you're curious? So I made the, the first. I think I, I think I took a pre-release version. So this would have been during tw 2017 to the, the next Dragon meetup at that time to show. And by the next year, I'd made the anniversary edition, which is presented better and doesn't flip to that green, green on green mode, et cetera, et cetera. And I'd had the tapes made up, and that was deliberate because I wanted to take them to, to the to the meetup. And for the meetup, I gave them away because, as I say, they're not really. <laughs> it's not really my game because it's not an original work, I guess. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, yeah. And and I just thought it'd be nice to do. And was was it fairly fairly well received? I think people have just been amused, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think I don't. Great. 
grateful, but I don't think anybody really knew why why it was happening. <laughs> Which fine. <laughs> okay, no, I thought it was, like it's a really good game. So I was wondering if if you would have had a bit better, more feedback from that. Even if you know they took it home after the meetup, and then you heard from emails over the next month or two, like, oh, this is actually really good, or whatever thing. <laughs> really, one or two, one or two people have, have said it was said they liked it. Um, I'm I'm just guessing. Well, we'll that fix that today did. when we get to the game on second. So just just you know. <laughs> so then uh, COVID hit. It did, and uh, you've kind of explained a little bit of the story on the dragon on Dragon Talk Show, but we might as well rekindle it here because some people have not seen that, and, and I don't know if they want to sit through the entire six hour show waiting for it. Um, but you kind of had the inspiration to get something done during COVID, and you wanted to do some improvements because there's been lots of Tetris clones on the Dragon and on the Cocos. But modern Tetrises on modern machines or even the modern arcade type versions actually have a few features added. The original Tetrises from the 80s did not. And yeah. um, you wanted to introduce some of those things. But then you went into a whole bizarre kind of hiding the fact you did it. And, you know, yeah, a bunch I mean, of very right. obscure clues. This is where I would start to call you eccentric. Um, but it's a really, really good version of Tetris. So I just wanted to kind of get through the history of how that got started. What, what, what made you want to make it? And then what made you want to make this treasure hunt to figure out where it actually came from? Okay, so answering the last question is really easy, and it's because I'm an idiot. <laughs> um, hey, that's my uh, domain. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> um, I don't know. Oh no, I can I can tell you why actually. There's a, there's a clear reason for that, and it's um, because I had been in contact with Torsten Dittel, so, you know, hello, um, who had recently set, completely disconnected from any of this, had been setting up a, a sort of treasure hunt for people he knew. And it seems to me incredibly involved and technical, and I didn't understand how anybody, how he could expect anybody to, to pursue it to the final to, to the final goal, which involved running something on an emulator, which is why I, I heard about it. Um, but then I remembered that, right, we all used to take games apart when we were kids. We all used to try and break the loaders and see, see what they did. And, and that, yeah, that led me to, to, to do all that. I didn't bear in mind the fact that this, we are now 30, 40 years later and nobody, ain't nobody got time for that. Yeah, the whole adult thing gets in the way. It does. Um, so, so, so what, what prompted you to do Tetris, though? Like, was that a specific, you'd seen some other versions of other 8-bit machines? Or yeah, was it just... no, I, I think it was it was triggered by you having te the official Coco Tetris as a game of the game of the week on here and me not liking it very much. <laughs> <laughs> and then looking at some of some of the, the versions of Tetris that did ex already exist on the Dragon, which I did like, but um, I still, it's, it's, having played a more modern Tetris, they they don't feel right anymore. Brilliant versions of the of the original Tetris, not so you know they, they just don't reflect what the game currently has evolved to. Yeah, yeah. Um, so what what specific parts did, like for some of those who are not familiar with you know the difference between the original Tetrises and, and the newer versions. What were some of the key features you wanted to introduce into a Coco Dragon version? So you've got separate soft and hard drops, so you can drop slowly or or, or quickly. Um, 
there's there's settle time. So when so when it reaches the bottom, you've you've got a little bit of decision time, so you can slide it underneath things. Um, but there's the one of the most important things is the wall kicks. If you if you're if a piece is dropping and it doesn't fit and there's no way to get it here, but if you can turn it and if that turn would conflict with you know intersect with the wall or another block or whatever, it sort of tries various other other positions as kicks it, so it sort of pushes it into place. It, it makes the game flow better. Um, you you feel like you've got more control over what it's doing. I don't I don't really know why. There's a there's some psychological thing happens where you you feel like it's behaving more like it really should. Um, and it enables some some little tricks like getting things into holes that you could couldn't possibly have done done before. Uh, the T spin being the the archetypal one where the the T piece can slide in and and clear and clear lines where there was no way it could have could have done so otherwise. You can sort. There are situations where you can clear up to three lines that you would you couldn't have got to otherwise, and they score bonus points because they're hard. <laughs> Okay, yeah, and then you yeah. also you have you have modern. simultaneous two player, which is not one I've seen on a Coco Dragon version before that are side by side. Right. So um, Sarah Bergen's Tetris, which is Tetras on the Dragon, does let you play two two player side by side, but it didn't include the. Com I don't believe it includes the competitive element where you um, where by clearing multiple lines you throw garbage at the other player. Um, which I wanted, I wanted to be in there because that's fun. Um, and I and I watched quite a lot of. Have you heard of Tetris ninety nine? I think it is. Uh, yeah, I think I think I have on the shelf. No, oh, I have Tetris Elements. Sorry. This is this is a, an online Tetris where you play up to ninety nine other people, or maybe it's ninety nine people total, and and you can see you can see. That there, that there are strategies where people will send you garbage, but it doesn't appear immediately. It appears on a counter, which sort of gets more and more urgent, and then eventually it'll it'll, it'll come in. But you can clear down those that counter by clearing multiple lines yourself. So it becomes. It becomes more like battle Tetris type thing. You're, yeah, you're actually influencing yeah. the other players. Indeed, it becomes. Now I've never been able to play this against anyone other than myself. I'm told it works. <laughs> Another nice thing you did with it too is that you made it semi-graphics and you didn't make it so that it required like a, a an earlier VDG-based system. Uh, like the Coco 3 doesn't support the text characters in semi-graphics. You can kind of poke, do pokes to fool it uh, to the graphical characters. So you actually made it semi-graphics. Now there was one other one uh, that was done before you that also did the, you did fancy like text characters by mixing scan lines of, of text. Uh, yeah. Peter Olier, I can't remember the guy's name. Ola Eldoy. Eldoy. So he yeah. did one that we were quite impressed with when we saw some video of it here a few years back. And then you kind of incorporated that to yours too, as well as having the dual players simultaneous at the same time. So it actually runs on a Coco 3 just fine. It runs on a Dragon or a Coco 1 and 2 just fine. But with yep. you know, like nine colors, including black and you know fancy text characters that are drawn and stuff. So it's really, really well done. Yeah, on a Coco by default, it won't give you the fancy characters. And you, of course, you don't have that option on the Coco, the Coco 3. 3. Yeah. Um, but if you hold down clear and F, it'll cycle through normal VDG, T1 VDG versions, because one of them is going to look awful. Yeah, because it shifts the scan lines down, it or does. up, I guess, for descenders or whatever it was. Yeah. If you run it on a dragon, you always get the, the fancy character set, because the, drag, the dragon never came with anything but the original VDG, VDG. So, so, so we can know that. 
yeah, I just messed with the font as much as I could in um, Semigraphics 12. I think so. Right. I think that's what you yeah. told me last time. <laughs> that's what happened to site, <laughs> so I hope it's right. <laughs> yeah, so it was, it was a really nicely uh, nicely done game. Um, now, the whole Easter egg hunt there, like, I don't know if you want to go into too much detail, but if you want to mention some of the things you hid in there, like, what do we have to do to figure this out? Yeah. <laughs> So, so the, the the obvious thing that was supposed to lead you on was if you looked at the binary, there was it said question mark TM error in five. If you looked at the the fifth line of the play screen by snapshotting or whatever, you'd see that it was always black. I think I did did describe this before, but yeah, you did it a little bit on the Dragon Talk show. Yeah, you'd see it was always black, but if you actually looked at the color bits, which were which didn't affect doesn't affect it showing black and took the um, three bits of, co of colour out of successive bikes along the line and packed them together, you would get my, my fake brand name. There you go. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was kind of funny because when I was Stupid. actually working on the... Well, no, I'm eccentric. I, I, would, I would say that. It's, uh, if I'll you had done that. this back in the day when everybody was ripping apart programs like crazy, I think it probably would have been cracked by a few people yeah i think you're right yeah i think it's just today it's just like people just get in to play a game for nostalgia's sake or whatever and then they get out of it type thing um i mean i've done some disassembly of some games but that's because like the game runs too slow and i want to optimize it you know for six or nine or something like that to do it but I, I even then i don't disassemble the whole thing i just look for core routines running in name and in, in the debugger and stuff and try to quickly patch them on the fly so we'll get back into Xcore now because Xcore recently you've been adding the Coco 3 emulation to it. And plus you've acquired a PAL Coco 3 from, I think, uh, Brian Palmer in Australia, if I remember correctly. Now, when you received it, it was 128K. Mm -hmm. um, was there anything else wrong with it at that time? Or did, did you get a fully working no, 128 no. it, it was a fully working 128 Coco 3 for almost no money at all. <laughs> Like a nominal amount of money plus the shipping from Australia, which which was the most of it, um, because Brian Palmer's ace. <laughs> and he had, and he had did you get anything else? Did you just get the Coco Three? Did you get some other things like you know deluxe two button joysticks or anything like that? Or? Oh, good question. I have a deluxe two button joystick, and I can't remember whether whether he threw that in or if that came with the with something else. Hmm. Don't know. Okay. Sorry, then, Brian. If <laughs> if you did. <laughs> Well, he's he's a he's a regular viewer here, so uh, I'm sure he'll pipe in at some point. Um, so then you got it. I'm sure you fiddled around with it a bit, and then you decided you needed 512k at least because a lot of the newer stuff requires it. Nitrous Nine runs a heck of a lot better with 512k. So what prompted you to actually design and build your own board as opposed to just try to order something from somewhere else, since there okay. were several vendors around at the time? So again, lockdown. This happened, you know, last year. I had a lot of time on my hands. Um, not because I wasn't working. I, I've been very fortunate. I was able to work the whole way through, but I didn't have any travel time, which made the evenings just so much nicer. <laughs> you, you can suddenly get things done. Whereas if you've been traveling e even for, for an hour, hour and a half, you, you just don't feel like it, or I don't anyway. Um, yeah, uh, I don't know. It seemed like it would be a lot of money and I could learn something <laughs> if, if I did it myself. So, and then how successful, like, did you get this done first try to take multiple iterations? Like, how, how did it go? And where did you find the knowledge of what to do to get it to work? So 
I think it was pretty pretty obvious from looking at the um, the schematic of the Coco Three how it should connect. It was just a case of figuring out which lines connected to which you know address lines and where the data bus was connected and stuff like that. Um, uh, Jim Brain had had posted his um, completely through hole design based on uh, two chips, I think, for um, as Creative Commons, and I, I did look at that and see, oh, it should this should be easy. Well, actually, um, before you go further, then, did you use static RAM or did you use dynamic RAM like the original ones did? I, I use static RAM. It's, okay. it's way easier, but I did choose to use a single. 16-bit wide static RAM, which made it, which gave me something to do. Okay. And then you I, actually, not, you, sorry, go ahead. I, I, th I think the boomerang might do that, but I don't know that because I've only seen pictures of the boomerang. It looks like maybe it's only got one chip and I don't know how it's designed, but I, there were no, there were no obviously available designs that used a 16-bit wide SRAM. So that gave me something to do. Okay. And then when you, you actually ended up making any, I remember you posted when you had it working, then you did you decide to make some extra ones to make them available to other people in Europe just because shipping is cheaper locally within Europe or was it just because when you order the board you have to order a minimum amount? Yeah, it was a minimum amount, and and you got even the SRAMs were you know you could buy them three at a time you got them cheaper so I might might as well have um, and I figured that I'd probably screw up. Yeah, um, I'm kind of glad that I didn't. <laughs> so you did get it done basically the first try. Pretty much. I mean, I had to revisit it with the soldering iron a few times, but it worked. Oh, cool. And you've had no issues with it, you know, timing-wise, no. everything else, everything seems to work fine? Everything seems to work. I mean, new new SRAMs are really, really fast, so... Yeah, that's true. <laughs> and and have, you, have you managed to sell, like, I think you had, what, an order of 10 or something, I think? Oh, no, I only had about th three or four total, oh, three or four. And, and so... And one of those I haven't made up, so I've only got two, two to sell. Then it's not. It's no. It's, this isn't a. This isn't it's a, not a commercial proposition. Thing, yeah. This is just. This is just. I have some. If if somebody in the UK needs five twelve k, have it for the cost it, price it costs me. <laughs> okay. So I got I got another question since we're talking hardware again. Um, have you spoken to or what do you think basically of uh, Ed Snyder? Um, I can't remember if I've spoken to him. I, I must have done. He's been on Discord, hasn't he? Yep. He pops he in must, must have done in passing, but I can't remember. He yeah. seems seems all right. Yeah, he's rather busy. <laughs> yeah, he's, quite, he's never around anymore. But <laughs> He's quite a guy. Yeah. And actually, I'll, I'll, uh, thanks for interrupting there, Ron, because this actually brings a chance for me to check in. And Stuart's here now. So Stuart Orchard, of course, is another Dragon developer we've had on before for an interview. So welcome, Stuart. Oh, you're really quiet. Can you not hear me? Hold on. I can barely hear you, so if you can turn your volume up, that'd be awesome. How's that? Yeah, that's not bad. Here we go. A bit better. Okay. Hi, Karen. Hello. Nice to see you. Likewise. So you you two have known each other for how long? I mean, not I don't think you've met in person too many times, but how how long have you been in contact with each other within the Dragon forums, etc., or just in general? Um, I think I joined the Dragon World of Dragon Forum in 2014. So oh, your arm cut out again there, Stuart. Oh, it keeps, it keeps growing. 
The volume keeps dropping itself back down. That's weird. I must admit, this is the first time I've tried this on a lot. That just kicked out again. <laughs> oh, right, Max has got a broke Stu. connection on this microphone. Stu, yeah. Go, uh, go to the PA. What is it? Pavu control. <laughs> yeah, I've got that open. Um, make make sure your your input device is not set to automatic or so. Oh no! I'll tell you what. You need you need to set a level there and in the Zoom settings make it not automatic because this was doing it to me as well. Pain in the hole. Live tech support, folks, only here on Cocoa Time. <laughs> it's my job. How was that? Oh, that's too loud. No, that's not, that's not too bad. Long you're not distorted. Okay. I'll keep the volume control open just in case. <laughs> so anyway, we're back to the question of how long you guys have known each other and, and how did you guys get in contact with each other as, as far as both being, you know, dragging people and both, you know, developing games. In, in recent years and not the original ones that Stuart did back in the 80s. Oh, you're asking me. Um, yeah, I, we'll, we'll have seen you on the forum, uh, but we didn't meet until the Dragon, one of the Dragon meet, the first of the recent Dragon meetups, I think, um, where I probably gushed like a fanboy because I loved Rotab so much. Um, so about that long. What's that? Some Is that years. 2017, 16 Five years? years? Four or five years? Yeah, something like that. Yeah. And did you guys exchange coding ideas and stuff? Like, I, I know in the code community, we tend to try to share code between us, like Paul Thayer and Simon Jonas and a bunch of others have shared code, you know, just to help teach people that are getting new into assembly language and stuff. Do you guys do the same thing in the Dragon community? I think we both have, um, like, a, a geeky interest in the more sort of obscure technical aspects of the hardware. So I think we've swapped ideas quite a few times on that front. Probably only stuff that we're both interested in and no one else is, I suspect, sometimes. Yeah, that sounds about right. <laughs> <laughs> and, and Stu, have you also helped him like debugging XROAR? Like if you find some weird quirky hardware trick you've done that doesn't work on the accumulator, you, you notify him and, and what to fix that thing? Or? Um, I think fairly early on, sort of after I joined the World of Dragon forum, I, I started looking at video timings and HSync timings and and sort of times of interrupts through the PIAs, that sort of thing. So so whenever I sort of study this sort of thing, I'll sort of make sure I sort of feed it onto Kieran just in case it sort of has an effect on XRAW. I think I produced um, like a test card sort of program, which sort of highlighted um, sort of video timings sort of visually so you could see it on screen, you know, rather than just um, sort of boring oscilloscope measurements just so you could run something on the emulator and run it on hardware, just so you could see if things lined up. And I definitely used that. Right. There, there were at least, a, there's at least one or two off by ones where, where things weren't quite right. It's, it's hard to find them, especially when you've got latency, interrupt latency involved through the PIA. Yeah. And I remember doing something very bizarre. I can't remember how I did it now. Um, Actually, finding where within an instance. Oh, you already picked that again. Um, yeah, I can actually see the slider just throw it back itself back down to zero. It's really weird. And I don't know how much of that you caught. Nope, you've gone again. 
What, what if I just hold it on the finger? How about that? <laughs> um, I produced a program that would reveal where within an instruction an interrupt actually occurred and where it would be cleared. Um, you could actually move a timing through an instruction to actually get different um, sort of effects of when an interrupt was cleared and when it was set, and you could actually sort of use that to fine-tune the emulation. I think I use some overly dramatic um, analogies at the time I did it. I said it allows you to probe the fine structure of matter like in a particle accelerator or something along those lines. <laughs> but I, I included those in the video timing tests, I think. Oh, well, that then I'll have used them through that. I, yeah, mm. you weren't ringing a bell until, until you said that you included them in the test. <laughs> well, we had some weird effects whereby... Um, it was to do the keyboard scan and interrupts getting missed on real hardware. And it just so happens that the Dragon keyboard scan routine causes the machine to drop IRQs, um, which wasn't happening in XRAW. You could sort of back, I mean, you've corrected it since then. But just the very act of reading the keyboard would clear an interrupt before the system would detect it and actually fire the handler. So you don't actually get your 50 interrupts per second on the Dragon if you sort of mash the keyboard. So quite an unusual effect. That's probably related to the amount of time it takes for the CPU to latch it, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. something along those lines. And that is but something it, that came in relatively late on in XRAW, so yeah. <laughs> I mean, to be really geeky about it, it's when um, user clear on, on a PIA address, it's a read, modify, write instruction, and it's the and it's the reading that would clear the interrupt. So it'd actually stop the six eight oh nine from seeing an interrupt that occurred during the instruction, and it completely miss it. So that happens on real hardware. Um, Six cycles long. I mean, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but we've probably made everyone else go to sleep now. <laughs> oh, no, 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 this hardware stuff is fascinating. Well, Stevie doesn't seem to be here, so I think this is allowed. Yeah, and we've got some other, you know, people that are into the technical details here, like, you know, Bill Noble and some others, too, so, and, and Nick, I mean, as far as the programming and using interrupts and stuff, too, so, we were discussing before you came on, Stu, about the fact that the Dragon 64 kind of lost the uh, H-Sync. Uh, yeah, not only that, it's yeah. the, um, it also doesn't refresh the memory in those missing portions as well. Bizarrely, but you get away with it. Oh wow, that's a fairly long time to keep the yeah for fifty wow. for fifty lines per frame. The memory is not refreshed. I have to upgrade those to static RAM too. There, Karen. Well, I, I did some more tests, and I was quite surprised to find that four one six four one six four drams can retain their contents about three seconds without refresh. So up to 10 seconds when they're cold, but, you know, even when they're hot, they'll retain their contents for two or three seconds. Oh, wow. It's quite surprising. I think it would be that long either. I should think you could probably, you'd probably get the odd one in a thousand, which forgets its contents after a few hundred milliseconds, but all the ones I've tried, they'll hold their contents for a surprisingly long time. I, I guess that's how some of the music players, like I know Music and a few others, had the option of kicking in the double speed, like full double speed RAM and ROM. And of course, the screen would go bonkers, but it would play the music at a higher fidelity rate. And that they probably 
figured out that yeah, they could leave the high speed poke, maybe just kick it off once every two to three seconds or something before the damn gram starts to screw up. Now, most of those most of those music players they play from a wavetable and they probably play from 256 byte long samples as in mixing for, or iter, through a 256 byte long wave which they're going through at whatever whatever rate so they're probably hitting every line very frequently probably now yeah, because i do remember i was kind of surprised because i tried the double speed poke you know and, and leaving it on for like doing a calculation in the background but after a few seconds it would start scrambling itself and then it would just screw up because i never shut it off um, but they, I think they, they actually did time it to you know, kick in regular mode just enough for a, a RAM refresh like to go through and then kick it back on again. You wouldn't really notice that little tiny bit where it slowed down. Oh, that reminds me, Kieran. Um, in XRAW, how hard would it be to have the video display show correctly sort of in fast mode? I, I know there's a note in yeah. the source which says it doesn't update as often as it could. I just wonder if that's because it's difficult to do or is it a performance thing? It would mean that every CPU cycle would meet would would also be associated with a call to the video code because right. it's it's what appears on the um data bus, isn't it? Yes. Um so that slow it down. It would, it would slow it down. I'm pretty much doing that for the Coco 3 anyway, because right. am I? Yeah, I a lot more anyway, because because so so much required. No, I can't remember the reason now. Oh, I, th I think it's because my gun code's really um really noddy, and so, so I'm just <laughs> doing it by 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 anyway. <laughs> reason I ask is I wrote um, a sort of refresh test program, and it kicks it into double speed mode to oh, actually yes. measure how long <laughs> how long the the memory is retained. But while it's in that mode, it actually displays a text screen. It's always showing you what's going on. But of course, that'll work on real hardware, but sadly not yet on XRAW. Maybe I can make it an option. <laughs> <laughs> Jeez, we've just been full of stuff for you to add to XRAW today. <laughs> so speaking of, uh, along the lines of that, um, Stuart, do you have a, um, a Coco 3 yourself? I don't. I, I, I did have the chance to own one. I mean, they're a beautiful machine. I would have loved to have one back in the day. But my fear now is if I had one, I, that would occupy all my time. Um, <laughs> I could spend the rest of my life easily just playing and exploring the Dragon 32 and 64. You know, so, so I've decided to sort of be quite strict with myself and just keep my interest on those machines. So I, I think I, yeah, if I had a Coco Free, that would just take over. I, I wouldn't, wouldn't have to spend any time on the old machines. And you know, you, you remember the machine you sort of grew up with most fondly, I think. So yeah, yeah my preference is to stick with what I know. The reason I was asking is because I know like Kieran's been adding Coco Free support. We kind of went through that a little bit earlier, and he's he's got it pretty close. There's a couple of Sockmasters wonky demos that don't quite run right but he's got it it's pretty close to being fully functional so pretty close yeah i'm sort of temptation is going to get the better of me and i'm going to start playing with that like like what, what's your opinion of the coco 3 like is it distracting you from uh dragon 3264 coco 1-2 stuff or do you still find time for both i mean it obviously is because i've, I've spent quite a 
quite a solid chunk of time on the Coco, on the Coco Three stuff, because as Stu, Stu suggests, as soon as you start, <laughs> um, it's it's related. It's fine. I don't, I don't feel bad about it. <laughs> um, most of the time, it, it's a hobby, isn't it? And and I've I've always hung the new things I want to learn off the old hobby of the of, of the dragon. So you know do some hardware stuff well you know i learn keycad why because i can do something for the dragon it's you, you and it's the same thing it's near enough the same and as soon as and, as, and now that xraw does it of course it's it's proper <laughs> it's proper yeah. in my mind well that, that brings up the other <laughs> thing too because i mean we just recently had john whitworth has released a super sprite board you know based on the msx2 chips for the dragon which might affect both of you guys as far as you know development goes um, and one of the things I wanted to ask, like, do you, Karen, do you have any plans for any future games now that, you know, the lockdown's out and it's, it's quite a good one? Um, now with all this extra hardware coming up with like sprite support and, and the sound chips, et cetera, is there any thoughts about making a game using that so that it's a lot easier on you to program it to get something done a little bit faster than having to do specific timing to try to sneak in voice samples or something, you know, in the background while you're updating graphics? Hmm. I sort of know the game that I want to make. Um, or a couple of games that I want to make. Whether I ever will, I don't know. Um, one of and and one of them I would love to make using the using the Sam hacks that Stu rigorously documented quite recently, um, because you can do some cool stuff with that. Uh, but if I can't, then yeah, maybe maybe an add on board will 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 enable it. We'll see. Uh, I haven't actually ordered one yet um, because I don't, I, I can't, couldn't imagine me having access to the real hardware for long enough to make good use of it. The place is a mess here. Oh, okay. That was just going to say, <laughs> you, you figure you're going to get a loan or have to get it back or what did you mean? It's oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> so just, just me getting, getting the time and the space to, to, to do anything real is it's, it happens rarely. And then also, do you have any plans on doing other further hardware projects? Like your 512K went incredibly well that you basically got it working first try. Um, is, is there any other hardware explorations you'd like to do? I've got another a RAM board for the Dragon in KiCad that I'm just, that, that I got so far on and then I fell off, fell off the edge because suddenly you couldn't get um, the 288 gate um, whatever they are, uh, Xilinx chips from, or at least you couldn't get them from the, from the Chinese manufacturer that would have built the board for me, <laughs> which is, which is what I wanted. I think I've done, had my fill of soldering surface mount comp components on at least if I can get somebody else to do it for me, it would be great. Um, and yeah, and that just hit a dead end. I could re-engineer it to, to do, to use something else. Um, but I haven't got around to it yet. In theory, that was going to tie into a into a into a, a pallet board for the VDG as well, where I'd have comparators hanging off the um, the Y R minus Y B minus Y lines, and 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 then sort of have 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 programmable pallet output from from that. But uh, yeah, I, I, have a, I have a question for both of you guys. Um, and maybe this is dumb, but I'll just say it and then you can say what you got to say. Um, you know how the Coco 3 is the next step from a 
one and two. Um, you know, have you thought about doing with the dragon, you know, the gimme X or the gimme type of thing to it so that it, it, it can, you know, handle more memory and do interesting things? This starts to get into the, the old, old question, doesn't it, of when does it become not a dragon anymore? Um, and yeah, and you guys I've have like the mood it. board which supports you know the extra RAM. <laughs> yeah. yeah, people have already made made a lot of these things uh, often separately. The mood board gives you more RAM. The super sprite board will give you great graphics and sound. And sound. <laughs> uh, is there any RAM on it? I can't remember now. There's yeah, there's uh, what is it, 120k of static RAM? Oh well, there you go. It's it's your there's, there's your all in one. I can't perhaps. remember. I can't remember if that's for the video specifically or if that's actually oh, for right. your own use. I can't remember. Of course, you need a faster processor to take advantage of sort of the extra memory and the sort of higher graphics resolutions. Uh, um, yeah, and, and I always kind of always kind of like the sixty eight K, didn't you? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, 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 it does somewhat, but I mean, the fact you have an actual hardware sprite on there too means you know, like a lot of your graphics stuff you don't have to do on the six CPU anymore. You can just pass it off to the. The sprite chip and let it do the masking and backgrounds and all that kind of stuff so it might be a bit of a trade-off you might be able to gain some plus your sound you don't have to do that under cpu driven anymore you just here's three voice samples go play them so you might gain the speed back enough more so to actually free up the 6809 for doing you know better ai or whatever else you want to do in the game itself so there are lots but, yeah, of possibilities but yeah, I'm the starting the hobby lazy. thing is a is a thing we've been talking about on here too. And <laughs> when when does it go too far? But I think I think the dragon had the same situation that Coco did, where it is a machine that in its native land I think was filled with more hardware tinkers than some of the other machines out at the time. Like here in, in, in North America, especially, there was a lot of hardware tinkers. There was tons of articles in Rainbow and Color Computer News and Color Magazine of adding inverse case switches and single stepping things that would halt the CPU and all kinds of hardware stuff. Whereas some of the other machines tended to be more game oriented. You'd get a magazine and be like, this game's here and here's a review and you know, whatever else. And there seemed to be a lot more hardware tinkerers on the Coco side than most other 8-bits. And I, was that the same with the Dragon in the UK as well? Or I think it's fair to say it was, yeah. Um, it, there, were, there was always lots of hardware stuff in Dragon user um, and certainly the other so, you know, side magazine yeah because you things. guys have like a multi-pack equivalent you know interface and stuff with multi-part or multi-slot cards and stuff and they did apparently exist although i never saw one i've seen one well, now cost well, not in the flesh yet. Yet. <laughs> <laughs> um but yes there was a lot of tinkering but that might be but there was also you know a lot and lot of, of hardware tinkering in, in the bbc micro the acorn world they they, they really dive dove into that sort of thing um so it would have been was, one of the more common platform? hardware tinker machines versus, say, a oh, oh, yeah, yeah, or, I think so. or Atari or something. It, hard for me to judge, but from what I remember of talking to Commodore owners and Spectrum owners, they, I didn't get the impression that they did that so much. Yeah, and that's basically the same thing I've seen here. There's actually more hardware development now for Commodore 64s nowadays, I think, proportionally than there was back then, to be honest. And, and do you have any other future plans for XR? Obviously, you're going to finish up the Cocoa 3 emulation. You've got all this stuff that we've dumped on you today between Stu and myself and Ron <laughs> and everybody else. Um, but do you have any other long-term plans, like maybe some other external hardware you're planning on supporting or you know, some niceties? You were talking about you know, getting the Cocoa 3 to be able to save snapshots with the full MMU and task registers and yeah, else yeah. fully compatible. 
uh, yeah, I need to finish that off. I need to do some more measurements to um, get the video levels right. They look okay, but I know they're not. They get mostly guesses, except for the um, grayscales, which Sockmaster measured. And I, I've used his measurements and they, they come out very well. Um, Have he, you ever tried the high color too on your um, emulator with three? You know, it does. Uh, no. screen sock masters where it does two different displays and it changes the palettes every scan line i don't and think then page so. flips to give you super high color i just wondered if it worked uh, with the proper colors because um you know mame works perfectly but uh, uh vcc good question not. good question i've not i don't don't remember trying that one but it was sock masters recent slideshow demos that made me work go back to working on coco 3 in the first place oh because he he published some some slideshow discs which which made use of the um of NTSC yeah, the composite he was using the artifact color. like just yeah. drawing you know grayscale and it coming out full color I think. yeah and i think he said something along the lines of emulators won't do this for ages or something <laughs> and and i had already written code to reasonably quickly do that sort of thing for the coca one too just to get its artifact colored modes yeah. look, looking pretty reasonable and so it prompted me to go back to the Coco 3 and and properly plug what I already had of Coco 3 code, ages old, make it work. Now start making the video actually not just generate VDG colors, but proper color, <laughs> you know, do something proper and tie it into the, this, this NTSC code. And it was only a day or two and it came out okay. So that that allowed me to pat myself on the back that I'd maybe got the maths right after all, and it wasn't just a coincidence. <laughs> and then I, I have one last question I want to ask. This, this was on both of you. Um, you guys have collaborated a bit on like, you know, doing tests for X4 where, where Stu's done like timing tests and very specific interrupt timing tests, et cetera, and pass them on to you. And you guys have both created, you know, games that are, you know, among the top tier of, of newly released Dragon games. Is there any thought between the two of you of collaborating on a game and actually co-writing it? I, I think you heard both of us talk about what how our free time tends to get spent and how distracted we both get. Do you really think that's going to work? <laughs> it would be we great. annoy each other so much. <laughs> that, that, that might also happen, but, but yeah. let's be charitable and just suggest it's because we don't have time. <laughs> it doesn't have to be like a full collaboration too, like we were split it evenly. I'll do all the sound and you do all the graphics or something like that, but maybe just... You know, somebody basically comes up with the, the game and then the other person can kind of go through the code and help them. Because sometimes you can't see the forest for the trees when you're writing your own no. code and kind of go through and go, you know, you can tweak this and fix this. Like Nick and I do that on occasion where I'll, oh. I'll go through his code if he wants to see if I can try to optimize it a bit. Whereas, you know, if I'm writing like my game, I'll get some suggestions on game design from Nick because I'm not very good at that. Is, is there any, you know, collaboration That's... possible there? Not a strict 50-50 split type thing. Now I'm I'm the one that wants to do the coding and I'm crap at game design, so. <laughs> and Stu, so you is go. your thought the same there? Like this is like a forget it. You might help with a certain routine maybe once in a while if, if you figure out some new trick or something. Chairs. I mean, I'm same as Kieran. Sort of coding is my comfort zone, so we both have the same skill, but yeah, it's hard to. With a collaboration, you need two very different skill sets. So I might imagine um, either of us working with, say, someone like Steve Bamford, 
who is absolutely awesome at graphics, you know, you know, you'd love to get someone like him on your project for. Oh, so you guys would be open to collaboration, just that the two of you, since you have the pretty well the exact same skill set, that would be kind of just a collision in the middle without really getting ahead. Whereas somebody that you know is really good at say writing music or really good at designing graphics or do or designing the actual levels of the game looks like Steve might be a better a collaborator. Purely because, I mean, Steve's a really good coder as well, but. But his, um, he keeps telling me he's not, but no. Okay. Oh, he really is. I mean, if you look at the, I mean, not just the coding, but the decisions he must make to, to achieve the performance he does in sort of in in the game design. You know, he's you know, even if he's new to six eight oh nine, he 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 has good instincts when it comes to coding. An optimization, you know, otherwise, you know, Cersei's Island, it wouldn't be possible, you know, that, that is all his own work. Um, yeah, and it runs at 50 frames a second, well, 60 frames a second, and everything that's going on in that screen it, it is truly amazing. And he can do the graphics as well, sort of next level graphics. It makes you sick, really. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he, he has too much talent, that guy. <laughs> Yeah, why doesn't he share with the rest of them? <laughs> no, because I, I, I would love to see a collaboration. Like I know, like Simon Jonasson has collaborated like with Paul Thayer and some others here. That you know, if they're learning code, he'll you know kind of teach them tricks and stuff. And he's learned from Sockmaster himself, and that has worked out really well. Like I, Paul would have not a completed Timberman, which is like an early epic game on the Cocoa Three, just learning how the Cocoa Three works, how Six Eight Nine works. And he would have not got it done without Simon's help. So I was wondering if it was maybe some collaboration within the Dragon community of the same. Well, for what, for what it's worth, that's another thing that I'm very jealous of is is the ability to teach because I know I really, really, I'm, I'm not good at that. From the times that people have tried to get me to teach them things, I know it doesn't, it doesn't happen. <laughs> um, yeah, I think some so of like for you, I think are, somebody has to be at a certain technical level. They just have to understand like if it's an algorithm you've come up with, but teaching like just raw coding, that's probably not your forte in the slightest type thing, but maybe a specific, you know, mathematically based something or other might be something you could, for somebody that already understands the concept, just doesn't understand that specific algorithm or something, you might be able to help with something like that, but. Yeah, I can always answer directed questions. Um, I'm not very good at vague ones. <laughs> anyway, yeah, I'd love to see a collaboration with with either of you or both of you with Steve on, on something to maybe help him with the game or something on the technical side to get it going. You know, it sounds like he's a pretty good coder on his own, but uh, yeah, his, his graphic skills, I mean, he's, he's running a fairly limited palette, of course, with uh, Cersei's Island, and it, it, it looks amazing for what he's trying to do there. I mean, it, it really does. Yeah. And I'm still trying to get him on for a separate interview, too, so maybe we'll have you guys come on and pester him at that time. So that's all the questions I had for today. Does anybody else on the panel, or has anybody been wondering the chat to see if there's been any questions I've missed there? I've tried to glance over, but sometimes it scrolls off by the time it looks, so I might have missed something. Not a few questions. I don't know if they've already been covered. So, oh, go ahead, Stu. Um, I mean, XRAW, it's a, it's a huge amount of work, and it's, it's probably taken up a large chunk of your life. But uh, I wondered what aspects were you most and least satisfied with? Um, so least probably user interface because I'm very, very bad at user interface. Well, it's really and good on Linux. 
Well, and it does the job on Windows, so yeah, it's not all bad. <laughs> it sort of does the job in MacOS as well, sort of. <laughs> um, and for each of those, that was that was a bit of a learning experience. But um, but again, for each of those, I've not used their their tools to their best advantage. I've I've done whatever I can programmatically, rather than using their design tools and whatnot. Whereas under Linux, I got to use Glade to design the dialog boxes, so that's why there is there are more of them. That's why you've got a little disk control box that you can eject and insert disks into. That's why there's a tape thing that will show you the programs on a tape. The tape menu is brilliant. I love that. You can just <laughs> yeah. jump around the tape and load what you want. Yeah, Windows and, Windows and Mac users won't see that. No, but they Linux don't know what they're missing. If you've got multiple programs on a cassette tape, it'll actually scan through and show you what's on, and you can double-click them, and it'll seek to that point in the tape. Um, and most, yeah, the NTSC cross-color stuff because it was <laughs> it was just fun to see to see all this stuff falling out of of what I, what I did. Um, you know, you work you work it out. In my professional life, I interact with broadcast engineers a lot, and I was able to go on some broadcast engineering courses, so I learned a lot about. And also because it's interesting, I look you know read a lot around the subject quite a lot. Um, so seeing it all happen was good. Um, and, and more recently, the, the Sam counter stuff, it just implementing the stuff that you looked at. That was, that was really quite, quite cool too. Although I haven't really been able to make good use of it yet. Well, that scroll demo is superb. I love that. Yeah. Yeah. It's just, that, that was pretty though. cool. When I, I downloaded and tried it too. So that, that needs to be a game though. <laughs> somebody, somebody <laughs> needs to make that into a game. <laughs> Sounds like a collab. <laughs> <laughs> and Stu, did you have some other questions too before I bring it back to the general audience? Um, I wrote down quite a few notes. I think, Curtis, you've done such a great job of sort of interviewing. You've covered most of it. I wrote down Nyan Cat. Just wondered if oh, Kieran had Kieran I had any about thoughts. That one. Oh, you've not heard of Nyan Cat? I mean, no, I've, I've heard it. I've actually seen it. Actually, there's, there's a news article about an MC10 version of it coming up in the news. But Kieran did a, a Dragon version, a Dragon Coco version, a long time ago. And the audio on it is absolutely superb. But I think because of the subject matter, sort of, some people might have overlooked it. But it's, yeah, it's, it's definitely it's, worth a look. That that's stemmed quite directly from uh, Remy. Remy's um, Coco Sid stuff and the work, and and when we were all sort of chatting about it on those old Coco Three forums and and optimizing the core loop, um, it seemed. I think Nyan Cat was kind of popular at the time, and it just sort of naturally fit. Um, obviously, the code is not quite the Coco Sid code. It's more it's more simplified in some some areas, and then for one of the channels, it plays that sample over and over and over again <laughs> but that's what the volume knobs were yeah yeah thanks yeah, for bringing just, that up actually i totally forgot that was yours i, I don't think i've seen it running recently and i've actually <laughs> seen other youtube channels have sometimes had it running as a little background thing and you can tell it's the dragon version <laughs> surprisingly enough i don't know they just grabbed the video from somewhere or what but, uh, oh that's cool <laughs> I know that we've got a couple of questions I've been mentioned in the chat here on, on both Zoom and on, on uh, the live stream here too. So some of the people on the panel that have these chat questions, if you want to actually mention, I think Alan, you had one, Sloopy, you had one if you want to ask. Sure, if I may. 
Sure, go ahead. Greetings, Karen. Hello. Nice to see you face to face for once. <laughs> Likewise. Um, what is your uh, game plan or um, uh, roadmap uh, once you finish the uh, Coco Three uh, in Xroar? Plan. Hmm. Um. Yeah, I don't really have one. There was other stuff answer? I wanted to do. It, yeah, there, it, there's it, it not, all. Yeah, there's not a specific like list of things that you want to tackle or, or. Yeah, uh, I mean into. there are. <laughs> I would love at some point to do proper PAL uh, cross color effects. That would be good. But I think I definitely need to revisit my um, GLSL code, the OpenGL texture shading code. Mm. Um, I, I got something very, very basic working a long time ago, and then everything about programming GLSL seemed to change overnight. <laughs> so none of that works now. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and so I, I'd like to do that properly, and I think that might enable proper the proper PAL cross-color effects with the weird shimmering greeny purple. Well, what was it? Yeah, just sort of weird shimmering colors. They're not useful. I'd just like to do it. Oh, I have like seen... I'd like to see it because I've never seen the same color twice. <laughs> <laughs> I have actually seen XRAW generate them. Well, or rather, I've seen XRAW and, and seen those effects by making a window on the Raspberry Pi exactly the right size and sending it out through co the composite video output. And then obviously it generated cross color because it's composite video. It just, that's exactly what it, what you'd expect it to do. That was quite here's, fun, but I'd love to do it in software. Here's some food for thought that not all dragons show that shimmering pattern. I, I, I have some which show the sort of the weird moving rainbow effect on the high res screen, but I've got others which just show a clean sort of monochrome image. And I now, don't know what causes that. Now, it is supposed to be that if you're composite if your signal does not have a color burst in it which is inhibited in the in the high-res graphics modes that your tv is not supposed to then try to interpret color for the rest for, the, for that scan line um and yet we all we all saw it yeah yeah I've, yeah and this is on the same screen i can plug one machine in and it will have the blue and red rainbow sort of moving around um, and plug in another machine, and it and the TV does seem to suppress it. So I think some motherboards allow enough carrier to leak through to make yeah. the TV show it. Well, we know that that's a little RC network on that on that funny little burst timer chip, don't we? Mm. So yeah, and we and we also know because somebody uh, who was it recently that the, the guy who recently did a video on uh, repairing a Oh no, a, a, no. Drug, a drug, yes. We also yeah. know that they fail, <laughs> right? So, yeah, okay. could be that, Mr. Alan Murphy. You had a question too, I think you put into the, the YouTube or the Twitch chat that I scrolled by and I missed. Yeah, and I guess it kind of goes in line with what Sloopy was asking, and uh, this is for both Stu and Karen. Um, what do you see as next for the dragon hobby? you know, what kind of like, what is the opportunity? What is the, you know, kind of what is the direction people might be going in? 
you know, where, where is the fun compass pointing? Okay. Um, for me, it's it will carry on being what it's always been, which is whatever I feel like. <laughs> whatever I feel like that can somehow be attached, attached to it. But in general, what, what it looks it looks like it looks like John's getting a lot of attention for his uh, super sprite board. There might be enough attention that lots of people start making code for that. That would be interesting. Yeah, because Pear um, has already made a, a few things for it so that are available for people to have at the board. Well, I think he, oh, he's he been very heavily involved, but also he, he adapted the AGD, engine, AGD yeah. engine for it, which made everything, <laughs> made a lot of things automatically available, didn't it? Because he can just re rebuild them with that, because he was very, very clever when he put that together. Or he and Keith Panos, was that the guy's name? I can't remember. I can't remember either, but yeah, I know who you're talking about. And Stu, is that the same same for you, or or are you kind of mentioned you're more of a purist for the original Specs of the Dragon? But do you see what what do you see for the future of the Dragon as far as you know software, hardware, the fun compasses? As Alan, put I it? mean, I do see add-ons as an essential part of the hobby. You know, even if I don't consume them myself, um, lots of people are interested in it. So that's great in that it sort of keeps uh, keeps a, a large user base interested in the machine. So. Yeah, I'll see any and all activities as valuable for the hobby. You know, even if you don't directly have an interest yourself, it's great to have you know many varied interests within the hobby. But I've got hundreds of unfinished product projects that I can amuse myself with for years. Or yeah, my projects folder is shocking the number of half done things I've got. So I need to work through those and put things to bed and document things. You know, so years of work ahead. I know that both of you have been really pushing the hardware, like, you know, doing these weird timing tricks to do horizontal and vertical scrolling in hardware, basically. Um, There's a fear that if we don't do this, then that knowledge of the hardware will be lost because one day there won't be any work in hardware and there'll be no means of finding this stuff out anymore. So while the hardware exists and you've got the tools and the knowledge to explore it, you know, you know, there might not be much longer to do it in to actually document everything the hardware can do. And there's, you know, a lot of these chips do have a lot of undocumented features, which you find by accident, and then have to spend hours and hours exploring it to try and understand it. I mean, some of the things the sand chip does are quite odd. And Kieran will tell you, you know, some things you couldn't even deduce from the data sheet are just weird internal behaviors that you trigger by accident. Yeah. <laughs> that's yeah, interesting because Richard Richard Harding, who we had in the Dragon Talks uh, show as well, he's like his main core purpose with the Dragon, as far as what he mentioned on the show, and we're going to try to get him on in the new year, um, is to document everything he can on the Dragon. So he's trying to get, you know, manuals and, and text spec sheets and stuff from, you know, the original hardware manufacturers for add ons and software people and source code listings. Like he's trying to document. The stuff that exists now you guys are trying to document unknown stuff at this point that stuff that hasn't been discovered yet we need to find the unknown unknowns <laughs> yeah and it's 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 nice to think that by by making this knowledge available in whatever form that when people eventually come to have to make 
like FPG replacements for, for things or whatever, that these other behaviors will be borne in mind because maybe some cool software uses it. And so they have to. Yeah. Did that answer your question, uh, Alan? Oh, yeah. <clears throat> also, there was a question from the chat. Uh, David Parrish asked, is the Git repo open for contributions? Oh, for XRAW? No, you can, you can send me patches. That's absolutely fine, but I've not, I've not put it on GitLab or anything. I don't think I have. If I did, it wasn't for development purposes. It was just, just as a, just as a, um, a copy. Um, nobody's wanted it. <laughs> Very few people have contributed code. Um, those that come to mind are. Um, Tormod obviously contributed support for his for his boards. That, that was good. Alan Cox contributed uh, Glenside IDE code and general IDs IDE support. Um, there was a guy a long time ago who who, who sent me some some of the initial uh, MacOS interface stuff. But I think I think since then, because MacOS X changed everything and deprecated loads of things that needed to be rewritten anyway. Um, of course, I've been really dumb, haven't I? I've started listing people, which means I'm going to I'm going to miss somebody out. Um, apologies to everybody I've forgotten about, but but it's still quite it's it's not very many people. So, if a user interface patch lands in your lap, though, yeah, I'll take it if it fits in with the the way things work at the moment. Yeah, I'd go for it. Ooh. Especially if anybody wants to work on a sort of HUD thing where it'll overlay messages on on the on the main screen, which would which which would remain portable to multiple platforms, that'd be cool. That's on my list. That's one of the things on my list. Cool. Anybody else in the panel have any questions, or anybody else notice any in the in the chat? Because it's definitely scrolled way past where I was paying attention to it. I would just say, uh, in the future, it looks like uh, Coco Talk's going to bring together both sides. In the future, you mean the dragon and the Coco? Yeah, yeah, exactly. So um, there's probably stuff you could both learn from the idiosyncrasies, and you know, share back and forth. Same part. Oh, definitely. I've definitely learned things from the Cocoa community. Um, yeah, and we've definitely learned things like some of the hardware scrolling techniques you guys have been using. I hadn't seen that on the Cocoa side of things before, but it does work on them. So that's something you and Stu have both contributed to. When's our next um, Dragon thing? What well, day? the Dragon meetup you guys are having in Cambridge, I believe, at the end of November. Is that correct? I think that's been firmly yeah. date-wise. Actually, that's a question for the two of you. Are either of you planning on attending that? I know some of it's due to whatever COVID happens to be doing that particular week, but I didn't think I was going to. But now, depending on, yeah, maybe. It sounds like it's going to be well managed. They're moving it to the main to the main area rather than having it in a small classroom, so things can be a bit bit more spread out. Um, yeah, unless everything goes Boris shaped again. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, yeah, are you kind of in the same a little bit or... of politics there? No, I'm, I'm definitely going. Um, if Kieran does go, I've got something for him, which I think he'll like. <laughs> Dang, I'll well, then now you have incentive, Kieran. 
All right. Now, actually, since you two are actually going, uh, you probably know the organizers better than, than I would, but we would like to do a live stream from the show. In fact, we've been talking about probably getting the stream going when you guys start, which for us would be like 2 a.m. or something like that. And then just have it streaming live on our channel up until Coco Talk comes on. And then we'll try to talk to some of the people at the show and maybe even do some impromptu like little interviews with whoever happens to show up. Who would we talk to about trying to get that arranged? Do, we, do you either, you know? Tony Jewell, I guess. He's the main head guy. He's the be... guy organizing it, and he works there. Or okay. volunteers there. Yeah, he's on the Dragon uh, Facebook group, so I can contact him there. I think he's on World of Dragon, too. If I cool, so, yeah, because I definitely want to get that organized. Sorry, but We got another question from the chat, which was, how low of a spec of Intel x86 processor will XROAR run on? Has anyone tried it on really old kit? Or could it be made to compile on an Amiga? Um, somebody has compiled it on an Amiga, which I put very much put in air quotes. Um, there, there is a build for, uh, is it called Morphos? Something like that. Yeah, Morphos. Or, or, so depending on how you de define Amiga, I guess. Um, more recent XRAWs need more grunt to run. That's definitely the case um, because they they are more they pay more attention to timing <laughs> and 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 the idiosyncrasies of chips. Like something that nobody will ever care about is I try to make it so that when the VDG changes modes, the rest of the byte is interpreted in the way it looks like it's interpreted on a, on a, on a real display, you know, which, which is useless. Nobody, <laughs> nobody cares about that, but, but that adds to the CPU time required. Um, obviously, originally it ran on a GP32, which was a little ARM-based machine that ran at up to 100 megahertz, maybe a bit faster if you wanted it to, but... So it used to run on, you know, fairly limited hardware, but it, it needs more now. Is it now a 64-bit app or is it still run 32-bit fine? Uh, both, whatever you want it, really. I mean, I try to write fairly fairly reasonable C code, so it, it's, it remains portable between 32 and 64-bit, certainly. Um, and it should be portable to other architectures without any of the core stuff needing changing. It needs POSIX. You definitely need POSIX. Okay. Sorry. <laughs> you know, your bikes need to be eight bits wide. Things like that. Okay. Any other questions? For either of our two guests? Well, of course, we'll, we'll have you guys stick around and comment on, on the, the Game of the Week stuff, too. So get some insight. Can we let people breathe? <laughs> Tell you what, why don't we uh, move ahead and do some do a break? Yeah. Then we'll. Uh, so this will be kind of a long one because I got a new Discord to run and uh, a regular uh, initial commercial. And then we'll get into Coco Thoughts, uh, although it's not a new one this week. And then we'll get into the Game on Challenge. How's that sound? Sounds good. You are watching Coco Talk, the world's leading weekly video podcast. Featuring a candy colored computer. We spread the love to the past, present, and future for all models, including the original colored computer, the Coco 3, and the world renowned exclusive French Canadian.
Radio Shack. Hi, this is Eddie Zerbinski from beautiful Quebec City. Vous écoutez Coco Talk. As you're enjoying Coco Talk, we also want to remind you about the Coco Discord server. This is a place where people come to connect, to ask questions, to provide answers, to share information, and to socialize. So when you're done, why don't you head on over to the Coco Discord server and we'll continue the conversation there. The easy to remember link is discord.cocotalk.live. See you on Discord. Coco123 is the Glenside Color Computer Club community newsletter that's been in publication since 1985. While the Rainbow Magazine may be gone, it doesn't mean you still can't have a cool Coco periodical. Head on over to the Glenside Color Computer website at glensideccc.com and then click on the Documents link to view all the past issues of the Coco123 newsletter. Not only can you read all of the past and present issues, we'd also love to hear some submissions from you. So if you'd like to send an article, a column, something to talk about, maybe even a program listing, send an email to glensideccc at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. The Coco World Map is a cool community resource where you can view coconuts from around the world. Head on over to map.cocotalk.live and see where your fellow coconutians happen to be living on the planet Earth. If you would like to submit yourself to be on the Coco Map, send an email to cocotalk at cocotalk.live and we look forward to seeing you on the Coco Map. Hey guys, it's Stevie Stroh, and if you've been watching Coco Talk for a while, hopefully you understand that everyone is welcome to join this show. So you don't need an impressive resume to get on. You just need to enjoy the Coco and be willing to talk about it. There is no wrong way to Coco. There is no wrong way to be a fan of the Coco. There's no wrong way to be on Coco Talk. You just have to want to talk Coco. So if you would like to join us, then reach out to us on our Discord server, which is discord.cocotalk.live, or send an email to cocotalk at cocotalk.live, and let's get you on the show, and let's talk about the Coco. Hi, I'm Tim, and you're watching Coco Talk Live. And I'm playing Daggereth online like that idiot from the book. Uh, can you can you dial back on the condescension there as you respond there? It's time for everyone's favorite segment. Who's new to Discord this week? JR Stinnett. Hello all, my name is John Stinnett. I received my first Coco computer for Christmas in 1984. It was a Coco one with 16k RAM. Most of the time I programmed in basic and played cartridge games like Downland. I eventually bought a tape deck and a floppy drive. I still have all this gear and it all still works. I am very intrigued by the retro game programming for the Coco and other vintage computers. Gerardo V. Hi everyone. My name is Gerardo Villalobos. I got my first Coco 2 around 1984 to 1985. I am from Mexico and although we had Radio Shack there computers were not offered until later, so my first Coco was imported. I saved every dime to buy new software, ROM packs, floppy drives, memory expansion, and other lovely stuff that I used to go pick all the way on the other side of Mexico City, as that was the only store offering this. And believe me, it was like a pilgrimage. Glad to be here. 
Gregorius Parvis. I only recently got into Coco stuff. I've had a few Apple II series computers for a number of years, so I'm no stranger to 8-bit computing. I heard about the Coco back when I was a kid, but I'd never actually used one before. So, after upgrading a few things on my Apple IIe earlier this year, I decided to figure out which Coco was the best to get, settled on a Coco 3, and found one already upgraded with a 6309 and 512k boomerang memory upgrade. I also ordered a Coco SDC at the same time, and I've been using it here and there in my free time, to learn about the platform. The previous bios were edited for time's sake. Thanks to Boysontech, Paul Fiscarelli, Terry Stagey, and the Coco Talk patrons for boosting the server. Please consider joining Discord and visiting the welcome section to read these bios in full and see what the community has to offer. HTTP colon slash slash discord.cocotalk.live And now, Coco Thoughts by Samuel Gimes. Were Coco mice bad back in the day? Because the Coco cat kept eating them? High score challenge with Nick Marona. Welcome everyone to the results of this week's Game On Challenge where we played Dungeons. So, let's head on in and see how everyone did. There were a total of 13 participants this week. We had Mr. Dave 6309 with 132, Exile in Paradise 154, Damon Beals 445, Pedro Pena 514, Jim Rye 676, CRT 797. Sloopy Malibu, 884. Gary M, 1290. Tasman Scott Cooper, 1342. S. Orchard, 1591. Sabhead, 1676. Paul Fiscarelli, 2065. And the number one score this week belongs to... Buck Owens with 6,034. So thank you to everyone that participated this week, and a special thank you to Gary M. for keeping track of all of the scores for me. Coco Talk salutes Buck Owens! And we're back. All right, so there we have the uh, scores this week. So, well, Buck Owens definitely did way better than everybody. I'd like and to apologize, too. I just didn't get time because it worked this week to, to get his score in. So my apology to Karen. It was a nice, involved game. So you needed a little more than supper to play it, Curtis. <laughs> I wouldn't have had time even for a quick five-minute <laughs> game of anything this week. I had hard deadlines on Friday, and by the time I finally got everything done, it was already past the cutoff, so... So, um, as we said, we played Dungeons this week, and uh, see there. 
And that should be there, some footage. Is this footage from you or from one of the other players? Uh, this was from me. I didn't see anybody post anything. So, and I didn't. Yeah, I didn't last long enough to make a video. A still frame <laughs> is all you get. <laughs> <laughs> so one of the great things about this is that you can play up to four players at once. So uh, I saw in Discord, somebody had mentioned that they're going to continue playing this and get their whole family in on playing it. So. Yeah, it was a guy, his wife and his daughter were going to yeah, play. He was going to take Gary. a keyboard and give his wife and his uh, daughter yeah. the, uh, the joystick. Yeah, so I think that was Gary M. that said that. I should have written that down, but I didn't, so. No, I think you're right. Uh, so for tips and tricks, well, um, I don't know. I wasn't very good at it, so. <laughs> <laughs> Any tips and tricks from the author? I guess would be the first question. Yeah, then. Uh, okay, so don't die. <laughs> <laughs> I figured um, that one out. <laughs> yeah, you've you've got to just be aware of you know if you're trying to run off the screen and it, and you're not being able to run off the screen, it might not be because there's there's a wall there. It might be because there's a monster there and it's doing you damage. So you've got to notice that. Hopefully, there are sound cues to let you know. But um, yeah, you've got to play it enough to to know the levels otherwise you're not going to get very far yeah i saw some references to people saying they have to make the map so they kind of know where they're going where to find certain objects etc too and that, that probably would definitely help to figuring out which keys go with which door you spend a lot of time wandering around trying keys on different doors so um the levels are ripped directly from the bbc micro original and credit to david body for creating tools that reverse engineered that format and made it easy to to steal and i know the spectrum basically the, the graphics mode is exactly the same as the coco's but they have those color blocks how, how is the bbc's graphics organized interestingly um so they have a 6845 in their machine and i think it's in blocks of eight where in in the Eight color mode, possibly? No, 16 color mode. Uh, you see, I'm, I'm lost. I think it might be 16 color mode. Um, the, the, the first eight pixels, the first eight bytes define one character cell, and then the next eight bytes de define the next character cell across. So it's little vertical so, stripes of eight. Yeah, okay. so, so slightly odd. And then the colors in the mode that this game would use on the BBC Micro are eight actual colors, and then eight where it's two of the original colors flashing between each other. Oh, okay. Something like that. So you get a sort of free flashing effect without having to do anything more. And they use, they use that in this game. Now, was, was the resolution the same? Or is it a no. bit bigger? No, it's a little bit bigger. 320 by something, I think. But divided, so it's really 160 pixels by something where we only have 128 by by whatever okay um, which so, i guess yeah. brings up my next question because i didn't know the specs of the original bbc one so it seems to be a 16 color maybe eight color uh with the attribute color byte type thing doing your pixels it sounds like similar um, uh yeah the and then a slightly high res have you ever thought of four. actually making a coco 3 native version of it because it of course has 320 and 16 color modes so i thought about it <laughs> it might be on the list maybe okay 
Because imagine having a little bit of extra pixels there to give you a little bit more gameplay space actually probably makes the game a little bit easier since you're not jumping between you know little screens so so often. Uh, well, the, the, your window on the world is the same. You know, it's still an eight by eight window on the original. I've scaled the graphics down. Oh, okay. You, you, you've virtually everything has the same feel to it, to my mind, as as the original. Okay. So that wouldn't really change. And Stuart, so, you'd played the original BBC micro version as well, or or did you just start it on it when when Karen ported to the Dragon? No, um, Karen's version is the first I'd heard of the game. Um, but, so you can honestly say this is the best version you've ever seen. Yeah, but naturally I sort of looked at the original version and I've got to say Kieran's done an amazing job in porting it. It does seem very faithful to the original. There's the the difference, the real only real difference is I added an easy mode because the original was just stupid hard. So the, the in easy mode, which is the default and I wouldn't really recommend any other mode. <laughs> uh, things do deal you less damage. Things are a little bit easier to destroy. Um, and you and the doors are separated out into two, two, two different colours, so you've got a little more of a clue about which key might open which door. Everything was the same colour on the original. And this game is finite, right? Like it actually has an ending if you it does, solve it? Yeah. yeah. If you can get to level 25. Yep. <laughs> Good luck with that. And how long would that take? <laughs> I think once you knew the levels, not too long, but there's a lot of key key quests, so uh, <laughs> it's still a, still a fair old while. Now, have either Stu or yourself actually won the game? No, I've only ever done it by cheating, <laughs> and um, I've tr I've tried every level, so you can you can defeat every level. Therefore, <laughs> right? <laughs> You've just technically done it in a roundabout way, then. yeah. <laughs> Got a comment from Gary M in the chat. He says the music of Dungeons is exceptional. Yep, ripped off from the BBC Master. Those little backward arrows reminds me of Puyan. Swords. Their arrows go forward. Well, they're not really arrows; they're shots, right? Yeah, he's throwing swords. I think there because I'm playing the fighter there. All right. Yeah. Yeah, they all have different different ammunition. Now, timeline-wise, for the original version of this, was this before or after Gauntlet? Because obviously there there's some similarities there, um, but there's also some differences. So, oh, after this was clearly like your a, version was definitely after, but I don't know when the BBC version. No, 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 no. The, the original was um, eighty-seven, I think. It, it's oh, it's okay. after after the arcade, definitely. It's obviously a take on the arcade. <laughs> Because I know some people have mentioned like Time Bandit, like they originally thought, you know, without looking at the copyright date, that it, it was a clone of Gauntlet 2 in, in a way, but it's actually several years older than Gauntlet. So, and there was an I mean, original Atari version of something else that was similar along that lines. It was one of those programs they gave away in their cassette-based magazine that Atari used to publish. And that was actually the predecessor to Gauntlet as well. But look at the character classes. They're all, they're all from Gauntlet. Yeah, the fighter, the mm -hmm. elf, etc. Mm. I, I do like, like I mentioned before, like we were doing the main interview, the, the the fact that you can actually have each player independently go wherever they want in the maze, to me, is a huge plus compared to the original. God, it does restrict your screen size. Every player gets a much smaller portion of the maze to see at a time, and it doesn't scroll. 
but it, it is much more freeing than, you know, waiting for some laggers to get around because they went the wrong turn in Gauntlet and they're strapped around the wall and you've pushed off the screen far enough they can't even get around to come back. So the whole party <laughs> has to move back, let the guy back onto the main track you're trying to go on and then go back forward. It caused a lot of infighting in the actual arcade. I do remember that. <laughs> I also remember that. And yeah, th- this was very good to play at school with four, four people. Um, and I think that was part of it. Now, you mentioned you, you had taken this to the, the Dragon Meetup uh, first as kind of a, a preview of it. And then you actually took it the next year and actually gave away the cassettes with the actual you know, graphics on the tape and then the J card and everything else here. Did you guys actually at that meetup organize having four people play it simultaneously at the show? Uh, not organized, but there was at least one four player game played, but obviously nobody knew the levels. So, <laughs> but yeah, we did play and it was, was fun because it was very chaotic. Yeah, because I was, I was starting to see if, like, you, you mentioned you never really got a review on it. I just wonder if you had any live feedback from the people that were playing it four at a time, like what they thought of it. Yeah, I, I, I think they appreciated the, the chaos. Um, <laughs> They're not really knowing what was going on because it's, it's new to, to most people. <laughs> right. So question about it. In the multiplayer mode, can you shoot other players? Because the original Gauntlet had the don't shoot food and don't shoot other players yet. Definitely. <laughs> so you can take out the other players and complete the quest for yourself and prevent them from doing it? You can. Um, they will come back to life on the next level. If you complete the level, then they, they'll come back to life. They'll just lose all their stuff. They'll go back to their base base okay. stats. And then they'll have their revenge on you if you're that kind of a jerk player. I would imagine. Exactly. <laughs> oh, that's that's the exact kind of play you want when you got your uh, friend who always beats you at many other games. <laughs> but you've got the <laughs> other aspect, which is there's the cross of resurrection, where, where if you die on a level, if you're really cooperating properly, which is what you should be doing, people, then then if somebody dies accidentally, you can bring them back to life. <laughs> and then they won't lose all their stuff. So it's competitive or co-op as you choose. That's yeah. kind of really, I think, the best of the worlds. I think it's fair, fair to say you can probably guess what it was at school, but... <laughs> But we did we did play co-op a bit and it was fun would you say it's also fair to say this is more of a level based game than a score based game like it's trying to see how far you can get versus worrying about the score so much scores more incidental especially with multiplayer yeah that's how i see it because it's a dungeon you're, you're exploring exploration is the key isn't it Now, was there ever a sequel to this done on the BBC or any other platform, or is it just a single one-off game? So the only other game I know that the guy did um, was a, a similar game called Icarus, which I didn't play. Uh, I think I might have played once or twice, but nowhere near as much. Uh, that was only two-player, I think, but you had a larger view area each. I think it worked in much the same way, but there, but there were some different play mechanics in it. Uh, have you, have you had interest in porting that one, or is that just that no, one? The game I, didn't really make it for you, type thing. Yeah, I, it, I don't think I ever had had a, a totally legitimate copy of that. Distributed backup. Yeah. Gotcha. <laughs> <laughs> any other it? panel members that played the game? Any any you know, thoughts on the experience of it? You know, this graphics sound. Did some of you play oh. the Game Master cartridge version, the emulator, uh, or on real hardware versus the? Uh, the base version, et cetera? 
I did both. I played um, on the real hardware with the Game Master and uh, played on the emulator with the emulated Game Master. And uh, I appreciated the additional sounds because being hit from off screen, that was the one that you could get the audio clue on, which was nice. Because <laughs> half the time I would just start dying. And I'm like, I don't understand what happened. And then when I put the, the rest of the sound on, oh, I'm actually hearing that I'm being hit. That, now it makes a little more sense. So, um, the, I mean, the original DAC sound is amazing, but having all the, the extras, I think, made it even better. And I, I was kind of wondering, too, did that save a lot of CPU time that you could use elsewhere? It saves a lot of CPU time. Um, there isn't much elsewhere for it to use it, though, in this game. Um, it all came together and worked pretty much full speed, so I didn't need any more. Oh, okay, cool. What, was there any thought, like I, I'm assuming the BBC Micro plays exactly like this version, was there any thought of maybe making the maze scrolling? Like I would take extra CPU time, but as opposed to jumping between little screens? I've not considered doing it. Um, this is, That's one of those, it's done, I don't have to do anything more situations. Oh, okay. Um, well, plus, I'm assuming you're trying to recreate the original BBC Micro one, which I assume yeah. did not have that either. So. so job done, you know. Uh, maybe one day. They would change the game the a bit. Coco 3 version. It'd be interesting. Yeah, the Coco 3 version, I'd, I'd be interested in seeing that there. Because I mean, from what you explained about the BBC Micros, it had higher res and much more color. So that would be interesting to see it, you know, ported so it looks almost exactly like the original. That would be cool. Uh, if you did your scrolling window thing you couldn't make use of the extra hardware for that but you, because no you'd have to break up four that. different viewports yeah. yeah well you could six or nine eyes it with you know, tfm but yeah that's distorting the hub even further so. or you could do land party mode and have everyone with rs232 packs hooked up and using their own screens well there you go <laughs> <laughs> then you could use that hardware scrolling techniques you and Stu have been doing or Coco IOs and Coco Nicks. We're, we're going to feature crap that crap out of this. That's a feature creep that crap out of this. That's basically. And with a real time clock, you can do countdowns. <laughs> okay. Fe so feature feature creep aside, though, it's an awesome game. Just out of curiosity, for those that played it, what was their favorite uh, character to play? And also from the author himself and, and from Stu, who actually and, had yeah. much more experience with it. Spider. It's uh, all about my, my, my favorites were the uh, Barbarian and the Fighter because they used a joystick. <laughs> <laughs> the keys yeah. on the Coco version are really tortured. Uh, yeah. They do sort of make sense, but the, you've got to get your hand into a very particular position. Um, and there's the reason is that you've got the conflicts from both the other player that you have to avoid, but also the joystick buttons, which takes out two whole rows of keys. <laughs> um, oh, and on I the tried, dragon, yeah. and on the dragon, which is laid out a bit differently, the keys I was able to find for that are a little more comfortable. So sorry, Coco people. <laughs> I tried to uh, use the keyboard to uh, play as the uh, magic user and the uh, position that I needed to put my hand in was not conducive to game playing. <laughs> so, but uh, my biggest accomplishment in this game is, you know, the thing that flops back and forth and shoots your, uh, uh, your sword back at you. 
I actually destroyed one of them without getting any hit points. Hey. <laughs> I was so proud of that. <laughs> I quite liked using the keys. Uh, yeah, I've had reasonable success as the ranger. And I oh. like playing the magic user because it takes less health to cast magic. And the, the keyboard ones, actually, you're allowed to use magic because the one one button joysticks don't have a magic button. So, And those characters didn't have magic in the original either. So yeah. it, that's why they're on joystick. I'm still flabbergasted. The original version crammed four people onto a keyboard. That just blows my mind. <laughs> it, yeah. it would be like playing, um, what's that? Twister. Twister with your hands, basically. Oh, you get to know your friends better. Uh, you have to really <laughs> like your... <laughs> yeah. It worked, I... what can I say? But, of course, we were all smaller then. <laughs> I'd like to see a picture of four adults playing it on the BBC simultaneously. Just find me a photo of them actually actively playing it. I'd love to see what that would look like. Well, there's a dragon meat coming, so it could actually be staged. <laughs> well, it might be a few years before we're Oh, your audio kicked out again there, Stu. Oh, sorry. I just said it might be a few years before we're comfortable with being that close. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> yeah, for COVID, you might have to make the RS-232 pack version we were talking about earlier. Actually, you guys on the Dragon 64 have a built-in serial chip, so you guys are ready to go hardware-wise. <laughs> Unlike us, we have to you know get a multi-pack, add an RS-232 pack, because a Bitbanger has so much overhead, it would probably slow the game down too much. Okay, well, did anybody else have anything to say about the game this week? Yes, very cool game. Thank you, Karen, for putting that together. Absolutely an excellent game. Yeah, and thanks for being one of the, one of the vendors that actually supported the GMC. That's, that's actually one of the better uses of it I've seen. Um, I think it's a great project. I, I Hopefully, it'll encourage some other people to support the chip as well. And it sounds dead on, which it's supposed to. Yes. It's the same chip. Okay, well, shall we take a look and see what next week's game is? Yes. Sure. This was a request from Ron Delvaux. Oh my God, that's three he's done now. You're Who turning into a regular gamester there, Ron. Ron Delvaux game guy. That's so. a different version of Dino Wars I'm not used to seeing. <laughs> so this is Run Dino Run. And uh, see, oh, I seem to have lost. Oh, there's my controls. I had to play this on uh, Chrome the other day. <laughs> yeah, it's based on the uh, internet. Uh, th the thing that comes up when you lose your internet on Google, I think, or Chrome or whichever. But so it's a, just a, a running game, a continuous running game uh, by Paul Fiscarelli and Simon... Jonathan, Jonathan, yeah. So next week they are both going to be on the game on challenge. So any questions or comments you have about the game, they'll be here to talk about it. And also, Paul Fiscarelli has made a special edition of this game for us to play this week. So I'll be putting that up on the Discord. 
Oh, and, what, what's, what's different about it, if I may ask? Well, it's just got a little Easter egg in it that if you uh, just watch the uh, opening um, sequence, the title credits and stuff for a little bit, and he's got just a little thing he threw in there. And also, next week, he will be uh, giving away a little something-something to the uh, number one player. So, oh, there will oh, be a prize. Here we so, go. Everybody play. Now, I might have to make Owens need this. Sorry, what? Does Buck Owens need this prize? I I don't know. Either him or Xenine K9, who's the other rival, you know, top scorer type thing, if he gets time to play. So I actually have no idea what the prize is going to be. So it's going to be a surprise for me, too. And uh, so with that, I'm going to turn this over to Sloopy Malibu, who is going to tell, talk about the Coco Talk Game On Challenge live events that he's going to be running every week and started last week. So, Sloopy. Greetings. Yeah, this week we uh, did an impromptu show, and uh, it was, uh, I think, a success, even though we had 70 minutes of absolutely no sound. Uh, we had a maximum number of... Uh, of six viewers, which we're hoping to get up as we get it uh, more out there that we play. And to play, all you have to do is just join the Discord um, on Wednesday evenings uh, between 7 and usually 10 or 11, depending. Is that uh, Eastern time or which time? And, yeah, that's what I was going to say. It's uh, That is Stevie time, which is Eastern oh. uh, U.S. time. So... Uh, it's we're still shaking the bugs out, but we will be uh, broadcasting this uh, this Wednesday. It will it should be on the Coco Talk channel, so it, you'll get uh, notifications of it uh, joining, and you will uh, also uh, be able to uh, play and converse and uh, get your scores up. I was able to uh, get my score up uh, over 200 points by uh, sharing information and strategies with other players. So, so this will be every week, Wednesday yes. between seven to 10 Eastern, roughly for whatever the yes. game of the week is that particular week. And it'll that be streamed on Twitch and on, on YouTube. Correct. Um, it may go to Tuesdays Sometimes it's, I'm going to get a feel of how uh, people are, uh, um, timing and availability so that we can get the max number of people playing. So if there's any questions, feel free to contact me um, either on Discord or through the standard email, which should go into the uh, text. And uh, I guess that's it. Okay. Hey, in the uh, chat, uh, Mr. Chip was asking, where do we get this uh, game uh, Run Dino Run? Um, it is available in the Color Computer Archive, and I will be posting the special edition on Discord in the uh, Game on Challenge channel. And there is no difference in the gameplay between the two, so they're interchangeable on gameplay. It's just the uh, one I'm posting in the uh, Discord has the little extra Easter egg in it. All right, Curtis, ready to go to uh, Game On News? You want the regular? Yeah, there's news? only two things to mention, so it'll be darn quick. <clears throat> okay, let me find the intro screen.
All right, take it away, Curtis. So the only two bits of game-related news, now a couple of the news stories are covering graphical routines and stuff that are being displayed, which could be related to game news. I guess I could have shifted them over here, but uh, I just included them because they're not games yet. Uh, but basically the two bits I've got this week here, there's a channel here uh, called VGH Channel. And uh, they basically did a, a playthrough of Carmen Sandiego for the Coco version, which of course is a Coco 3 game by Broderman. I'll display a little bit while I'm talking. And um, they, he basically compared it. He did a little write-up review of it. This is just, the video itself is just plain gameplay. And he did a little write-up review in his comments uh, on describing the video and basically said he prefers the Apple II version uh, to this one here because uh, he was talking like the graphics are a little bit different and stuff. This particular game to get it to fit with OS 9 running as well as, you know, running it, uh, the game itself, uh, they decided to use the four-color mode instead of a 16 color mode, because then it wouldn't quite fit in a 120K machine. So the palettes actually, it sets, uh, it's a four color mode, so it picks black and white, it always keeps those. So you only have two colors to work with for each. So for every country you go to, every city you go to, it chooses two unique palettes to cover that city, mixes it with the black and white, and that's all you've got. So he's used to the Apple version, everything had six colors at once. So it, it, the colors stayed more consistent. Uh, and of course the sound's pretty pretty basic because it's just using the built-in OS 9 warbly 60 hertz sound routine, nothing fancy. But in that, he, he quite liked the game. He thought it was a pretty good version. Otherwise, that was his only two major complaints about it. So, And it is one of my favorites. It's, it's one of the few educational games that I still like playing even to this day, even though most of the, you know, the, the country and city stuff they mentioned in the game, because this was written back in 85 to 87 or something like that, uh, is wrong because a lot of the countries have changed since <laughs> the, you know, the fall of the Soviet Union, et cetera. So. Um, but pretty, pretty good. It was nice to see a Coco game on a channel that normally does not normally cover the Coco stuff at all. And then just a brief mention here. Um, we mentioned last week that, and John was on to talk about it, who's of course pictured here, John Bodokar Schaller. So we'd mentioned that they did an actual covering as one of their headline stories on this week in retro last week about Glenn Hewlett's joust transcode slash, you know, rewrite for the Coco from the original arcade ROMs. And of course, Glenn released Defender literally just before they recorded that show. So John did a very brief update mentioning as a follow-up to last week's episode that Glenn's Defender is now also out on Coco, which of course we had the game of the week last week. And, and it's an excellent port as well. Looks like John has joined us on the panel. Oh, hey guys. Well, John, you can talk about it then. I mean, it's not too much to mention here, but. Um, yeah, uh, basically it was just a, just a follow-up on last week's story saying, Sorry, would have been great to um, been able to cover the the actual new game that was transcoded, but I wanted to drop it in there just in case people were interested in checking it out. Yeah. Now we will mention, and I think you probably know this already, John. He's actually working on uh, Robotron 2084 right now. Now that one's going to be a bit more challenging, so he's not actually sure he can complete it and get it running at full speed. So, mm -hmm. but I'll, I'll keep an eye out for him, and uh, if he gets it close and we start getting betas of it out there. I'll get permission from him to send you a copy early so you guys can mention it on the on the show again. If Sounds want. great. That would be awesome. Thanks, Curtis. Okay. And actually, that's all the news I have for the, the game on news portion of the show for this week. Okay. Do we want to take a uh, commercial break or uh, move right on into uh, regular news? Um, I've got almost 20 news stories, so I'll let you decide based on that. Yeah, let's take a short break. Thank <laughs> you. 
We'll return after these messages. My fellow Americans, Australians, Canadians, Europeans, and all of you ands, I'm calling on all y'all to help us make the world great again by visiting the Retro Swag Shop at 8bit256.com where you can get yourself a coffee mug like this with a little cute cartoon character that says, I'm a cocoa nut. You could also get yourself a coffee mug like this with a color computer three that says, I'm a cocoa nut. You could get yourself a, a deluxe travel mug like this with the Coco Talk logo on it. You might even be able to get yourself a DVD like this with over two hours of gameplay. Goodness, it is time for us to rise up and make the world great again by enjoying some quality retro merchandise and Coco nostalgia. So please visit 8bit256.com and let's make the world great for the color computer. Thank you very much. Good morning, Coco Land. This is Brian Schubring with Music Man here at the Coco Fest, having fun, fixing issues, and making things roll, and making lots of sound. Have a great day, guys. Baby, there's something I need to talk to you about. Remember when we first met? Everything was so easy, and it felt like nothing could stop us. But now, everything is such a struggle. And <laughs> if I'm being honest, you're really starting to show your age. Can I get the check, please? Break up with 512K. Use two megabytes now with Nitros 9 Ease of Use Edition. Ease of Use. Download EOU today. LCurtisBoyle.com Some people have big plans after school. You know what Elliot's gonna do? Jeff, too. Elliot's at work on a book report using Scripsit on Radio Shack's Color Computer 3. It hooks up to his TV. And Jeff's at his Radio Shack Color Computer 3 playing the newest football game. But wait, what's Elliot doing playing new Super Pitfall? And Jeff's having a blast with a new math tutor. You never know what you might try with more than 100 programs for fun and learning. Radio Shack's Color Computer 3 comes with everything you see here. Other items each sold separately, only at Radio Shack. And now, Coco Thoughts by Samuel Gimes. I remember the days of grade school when on the playground we would talk about the latest computer and console games. Until one day when a kid told the teacher he was having a blast with his new math tutor. After he got out of the hospital, he changed schools. Greetings, YouTubers. Atari Leaf here, and you're listening to Coco Talk. From around the world, what you need to know. Get caught up on News with El Curtis And now a Muppet News Flash. So welcome everyone to the news portion. Before I get into the actual news news story links, uh, we have a special presentation as we announced last week. There's a, a, a drawing for a hardware prize provided by Sloopy. Um, and I will let Sloopy explain exactly what the prize was and uh, he can announce the winner. So Sloopy, take it away. Greetings. Yeah, last week we announced that the show would be giving away a drive wirelessly board and an internal drive wire board 
for the cocoa. It's um, the internal drive, the uh, drive wirelessly board goes into the uh, position where the uh, PIA chip is on your uh, cocoa and it allows it to uh, access wire wireless communication through the Bitbanger port. And then the internal drive wire board goes where your ROM is, which allows you to add the uh, add uh, the HDB DOS for drive wire use, so that when you have a cocoa like this, all we've got is power and video. We can access our drive wire server from our local network. Sorry, we're having uh, issues with um, uh, Sloopy's uh, video. I'm uh, what kind to, of issues? Uh, uh, Dropping a lot of frames. I mean, we're getting like a slideshow version of it. We did see the Coke one stuff here, but. Okay, is the audio okay? Oh, yes. the audio's fine. Yeah. All right. So. Last week, we mentioned that we would be giving a set of these away to one, one lucky recipient. Well, here we are going to uh, choose them. I see you're going to let the Coco choose, eh? Uh, <laughs> that was the plan. <laughs> Non-existent user error, yeah. <laughs> yeah for Jiggle the mouse. <laughs> it's uh, like, what did I, I call it? Okay, I know what I did. One second. I didn't put the right disc in. When I... Uh... So now you get to d demonstrate drive wirelessly by actually connecting to a new floppy image. Yes. Um, this is all I part use... of the demo, folks. Yes. <laughs> I use uh, Nick's game uh, Neutroid um, as a uh, test platform. Oh, yeah. Blame me. <laughs> <laughs> well, if you wouldn't make such great games. <laughs> Distract him from what he's supposed to be doing. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. And if anyone wants to know why it's black and white, that's because my video capture for some reason, doesn't like to do color. And we had six entries. And our winner is Michael Pitsley. Uh, contact me or I will try to reach out to you if uh, you're on uh, Discord or uh, Facebook and uh, we'll get that uh, shipped out to you uh, Monday. Cool. Congratulations, Michael. Yay! Yay! Everybody was supposed to clap there. Yay. <laughs> <laughs> I was too busy being jealous, so of course I didn't enter that. My yeah, me neither. Uh, if you don't enter, you can't win. Yeah. But they are on sale. I was going to say, for the rest of us who can't, uh, who didn't get lucky enough to win, 
Uh, how much are they to purchase, or are they available for purchase? It's under uh, yes. seven hundred dollars. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the uh, the drive wirelessly board is twenty five, and the uh, internal drive wire board is thirty. And if you buy them both at the same time, it's forty five plus shipping. That's not bad. And currently, it's it's more meant for the Coco One and the Three or some twos. I'm trying to remember what you said last week. Yeah, it's um, currently uh, the threes, uh, the ones and the threes, all good. Uh, the twos, it depends on the model. If you have a U.S. made uh, Coco Two with the stand-up RF modulator, you're good, and you can uh, it's ready to go. If you have the Coco Two made in Korea with the lay-down uh, RF modulator. Uh, there had to be another re re uh, revision because I'm sure you want to close your computer up. It does work though; it has been tested, and yeah, it, it physically works in the machine. It just it, yeah. it, it takes up room where you can't close the case properly. Yeah, the keyboard uh, goes doesn't go down all the way, and I'm sure people don't want to start cutting out their keyboard and cutting <laughs> out their case and such. <laughs> but uh, yes, the new PCBs uh, are scheduled to be done on Monday. And then they all, then they have to go on the back of a Sherpa from China to the U.S., the opposite side of the U.S. <laughs> so we should, within about a month, month and a half, I should have them for all Coco 2s, all, all Coco models. Cool. Now, there's actually, there's a news story coming up here, <clears throat> which I'll get to in a bit, <clears throat> excuse me, that uh, is from a Spanish-speaking uh, fellow who's actually in the uh, Facebook group for the Coco, but he's in Colombia, and he actually he used he did a demo video of using DriveWire to get stuff onto a Coco so he could copy it to a real floppy drive. So he's somebody I think you should contact because he was doing the whole load the initial HDB off, off of a cassette and then copy it onto disk and load it off disk to fire it up to talk to the server. But this would be a much simpler solution. So keep keep an eye out for that story there, and then you maybe send him a comment on the Facebook. I've already seen it. I remember I'm the only one who does the timestamps. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, I'm going to go on to the regular news now. Congratulations again to Michael Pitsley. Please get in contact with us via Discord or email or on Facebook, and uh, we'll get the uh, prize shipped off to you. And, and thanks again to Sloopy for offering this prize um, for, for a lucky winner. Well, it's mostly from the show. <laughs> so... Okay, so you guys seeing my shared screen there? Mm -hmm. So the first yes. story here is Sheldon Hildebrand who's been working on doing kind of a, a sort of a 3D-ish isometric engine for a game project that he's working on. So he added a new one here that adds door keys and some switches and stuff here. Now he's also changed it so it's got a little bit more than just the four angles I think the original video did. So I'll just show a little bit of a demo of that. Yeah, I think he's doing 16 angles now. Yeah. It's kind of neat. I've never seen a game perspective on the Coco done in this particular fashion before. It's kind of like Temple of Rom at a 45 degree angle type thing. There you it's go. weird to see. Yeah, it's weird to see an isometric game where the camera rotates. Uh, I don't know that I've ever seen that before. Yeah, not on the Coco anyway. I've, I've seen them on modern machines, but uh... I mean, I can't think of what's. Can you tell me a modern game where you've got your guy, you're looking down at a 45? I mean, yeah. I think the the re what's what's a modern game that does that? Like Grand Theft Auto, which is why I made the Grand Theft oh, Coco. Oh yeah, I didn't think I about mean, those early Grand Theft Auto games. You're right. 
Yeah. Well, I mean, even I'm Alone talking the modern, the, the modern ones. The original yeah. Grand Theft Auto was total top-down view. That was the original Grand Theft Auto, and then uh, the second version was just basically new levels for the same engine mm-hmm. of the top-down version. And then Grand Theft Auto Three was the first 3D, fully 3D. Right. Uh, engine. I, I, I guess I see that game as sort of an over-the-shoulder, uh, you know, 3D perspective versus this is almost like an isometric. Uh, Diablo style with a with a rotating camera, but anyway, it's still really cool. Still really, cool. yeah, very much so. Yeah, and he's got it running at a pretty good clip right now too. So, and this is Coco One and Two level. This is not Coco Three. So, this would work on a dragon as well as a as a rather interesting game project. Yeah. So I'm really curious where he's going to take this. Well, keep up the good work, Sheldon. Could do a a mowing game. Everything's, <laughs> everything's green. <laughs> Everything's green, so <laughs> yeah. But what are you, you going to cut it down to? Like, you can't change the shade of the green or anything. So there's actually a mowing game out there right now. Yeah, it yeah. just recently came out. Next up, we have Alfredo Santos. Now, some of you old timers in the Coco community will remember there was a history before Boise and, and Bill uh, Bill's book came out on the history of the Coco. Alfredo himself had done one and he used to spell his name Alfredo with an exclamation mark right after it. And he did a history of the cocoa up till 1991, I think it was. And he was actually in the cocoa very early. And you'll see in this, uh, some of these pictures we're going to go through here. So he's been kind of getting all of his cocoa stuff back out and kind of you know, showing customized cocoa with some of his collection. And he's got some pretty cool looking stuff in here, but he actually made the very first history of the cocoa that started, you know, right from when the cocoa was released up until 91. And it was the definitive one up until the book came out. So I don't think the head here at the top is part of it, but uh, it's, it's kind of uh, strange looking. But you can see here, like this one here, he's got uh, like a clock on it. He's got, uh, he's repainted the case. So he's got like white and with a red stripe in it. And he's got a, I think this was an HDL keyboard, but with some stickers added on to for certain programs because there were certain function keys. And he's even put some like comments on that pic photo itself. You can kind of see repackage Coco 3. So he's using an HDL Coco 2 era keyboard extension onto the Coco 3 itself. And ADOS burned to the EEPROM to control the drive so it handles 40 track and 80 track and everything else. Finally caught up to Dragon Doll. It says fasten seatbelts. <laughs> well, obviously you must have a 6 or 9 of it. And you can see it's, it's kind of worn already at this point here, but it's kind of an interesting, interesting take on, on doing the case type thing. He's still even got his original 4K RAM badge on the top there. So this is actually a Coco One repainted. So one of the old Battleship Gray ones. But you can see the on the inside, he's got some modernizations on it. <clears throat> so he's got a 512K boomerang a memory upgrade on it. And he'll show a different angle here. But you can see like the ROM chip has been customized. And there's also some extra sockets and stuff where the 6809 is. So I think his next photo is when it showed this. So here you can see he's got an 87 gimme. But you can see like he's got the uh, Coco 3 ROM sitting on top of a Dallas um, smartwatch chip. So they had a real-time clock built in. And I think he's kind of hinting that the, the battery's dead as was mine. And then he's got the 6 and 9 stacked on a couple of machine sockets to provide a bit more airflow. He couldn't even really remember why he did that because it's definitely really tall compared to what a normal socket would just, you know, heighten the chip level just a tiny bit. I wonder if he had an old DAT board that is no longer in yeah there. that might be because the disto ones used to have that piggyback dat thing to get your one meg etc upgrades so well plus it looks cool <laughs> yeah. come on <laughs> there's the only yeah. reason he did it yeah sure <laughs> but you, had, you had to clear the capacitors 
fact, if I remember correctly, you can see like you must have had the original 512 or the one meg, like like you guys were saying there, because he's got a fan built in under the power supply here to keep it kind of cool. And I do know the one meg in particular because it was four stacks of RAMs, the original version of the Dista one. So like what was that 48 chips or whatever the heck it is, or 64 chips? Like it was huge. Bill, Bill would probably remember Bill Noble because yeah. he sold the one meg. And we had to put a fan in ours because it was overheating the cocoa at work. So I can see why. So that double stacking of the sockets, that might have been related to the original Vista 1 mega grid. And here's his uh, custom-based ROM. I don't know why he's got a musical note staff sticker on it. And there's the fanny installed for keeping it cool. So this is a three and a one. So does he have a hole carved out of the bottom for the RGB? Sorry, what? Does he have a, a notch cut out of the bottom so that he can hook the RGB up? Well, the Coco 3 already had that. Yeah, but the case doesn't have the hole for the... Right. So I'm saying he probably had to cut a hole. Oh, I see what you mean. Yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah. Or we might have had it come out the back. I didn't really take a look at the... I think it's tall enough that you'd be able to just run a ribbon cable out the back. But Yeah, off on the uh, right-hand top corner is the ribbon cable up about yeah, the right, right size. Right over here. Yeah. Right above the floppy controller there. Yeah, it's one of the more interesting repacks I've seen. Most people I know did not put a Coco Three into a Coco no. case. <laughs> yeah, Franken Coco. I, I like the fact that he, he has a six zero nine, the three megahertz rated version, but it's retired as of October 6, twenty twenty one, like just a few days ago. I'm not quite sure why it got retired, but but he's got custom ROMs here and, and various other things as well. And he, he has a whole bunch of these spare chips of the various like the PIAs and the six eight forty sevens, which is the VDG and even the spare gimme from 86, et cetera, so. So, and now that it's retired, instead of a, a watch, he gets a, it gets a real-time clock. <laughs> <laughs> got a lot of spare chips, though. I wonder if he's got uh, extended color basic chip there. He, yeah, he, he had a few that mentioned that he had some of the ROMs burnt in there, and he also had some custom ROMs, too, so. And, of course, you got to have the video text cartridge, because, you know. Where does he live? You can't find any <laughs> AgVision machines around. <laughs> now here you see he's got a, it's got a shelf here with all the different Cocoa magazines, and including Dragon User, which he actually had here too as well. It's Color Micro Journal, Color Computer Magazine, Hot Cocoa, Rainbow, Color Computer News. Now we'll show some pictures of these a little bit later here, but uh, Cocoa Ads. I do remember this being out. I don't own any of these myself. Did anybody else in the panel remember this one? It was basically just an advert. It was for ads only. It wasn't really meant for articles per se. I never thought of using the hacksaw blade to hold the paper down. <laughs> <laughs> he said he uses that for cutting out all the deal coupons, I think. Ah. Ads, so. Sorry, that was the best I can think of in short notice. <laughs> Serious Color Computer Magazine, he actually has the original announcing free sample copy that you would pick up at the fest here. I don't have that. I actually bought mine on the newsstand because our local Canadian Tire started carrying Color Computer Magazine for no reason whatsoever I could think of because it's not normally a place known for selling computers, though they were selling Amigas at the time. So he's actually got one of these original promo copies of it, which I'd not seen before. Brian yeah. Weasler, take a look. <laughs> yeah, I think Alfred has got some stuff Brian does not. So, yeah. And in fact, yeah. in, at the first slide of this, Brian Weasler says, nice collection. Yeah. You know it's so, got to be good if Brian thinks it's nice. That's collection. right. <laughs> it looks like a complete run of hot cocoa here. 
that's the very tail end of Rainbow, just as they were switching from magazine format to the newspaper tabloid format to cut costs down so that Lonnie could keep Rainbow going as long as he physically could without losing too much money. And this is the one that kind of fascinated me. So this is the very first issue of Color Computer News, or so this might be the second issue of Color Computer News. Now on the archive, we have reprint copies of parts of the first four issues, the first year's worth. And that was because Color Computer News themselves, after they kind of got established and were selling copies of the magazine, they did a reprint run because the very first few issues were very limited run. There wasn't that many out there. And, and Bill Sias talked about this when we interviewed him a month or two ago. So they made a reprint where they took the best articles, took all the old ads and stuff out, put in newer ads, and they published their kind of a reprint volume of the first four. But these are the original ones with some of the original ads. If you want the history of what was on sale, like literally within a year of the Cocoa being released from third parties, this would be where to find them. So I've kind of mentioned to him before that I really hope he scans these in so we can get the complete originals up on the archive site, not just the partial reprints from the compiled volume one of the first year. Because I don't know anybody else that has these earliest issues. So that's that's really cool. And there's a dust cover on another kind of modified one. I'm not sure which keyboard this is because I thought it was a Mark Data products, but I don't remember the Mark Data ones having a white enter key. They were pretty well solid black for their professional it keyboards. Looks like a Model One keyboard. Mm. Yeah, Nick, Nick you little. actually have a Model One handy. Does it look like that or no? The uh, keys, the keys uh, up, the arrow keys are white on a Model One keyboard. And uh, those keys um, look. Are they? Pretty sure they are. Um, yep. But hang on. I've got a model one here. I just got to reach up to look at it. Obviously, the case has been painted again here, unless that uh, the. Dust yeah, no, they're not. The enter no. key. No, it's exactly like that, actually. Yeah. Oh, so this yeah. is a model one keyboard. Okay. You're well, well, it's, well, the, it's like the model. Been. The Model 4 has the white arrow keys. Right. Yeah, the Model 4 has, the Model 1 doesn't. Yeah. Okay, so that's one of those ones that transplanted the keyboard. Might have been, yeah. I don't know how easy that would be. And those keys look a little, uh, I don't know, like a little too shiny. Uh, the early ones were. Were they? The very first keyboards were shiny and then they were a bit duller in the newer batch. Yeah, <laughs> that's the kind I have. It's a dollar keyboard. Ones, yeah. So that, that's the crappy Model 1 keyboard, the ones that... With tons of key bounce? <laughs> uh, key bounce, yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah. I, I do know, like, I remember Color Computer News, and I actually have the issues here somewhere, but somebody actually hacked in a Model 3 keyboard with an Amer keypad and the whole thing, and where you can see the black outline he's painted around, and that's just part of the case cover. You have to cut all of that out. So you had to cut a huge oval, well, not quite an oval, but a rounded corner rectangle out of the case itself and then rewire a whole bunch of stuff here. And it actually got a Model 3 keyboard running in a Coco 1 with the numeric keypad fully functional, which was pretty awesome, but it really took a lot of hacking. I'd be too scared to do that. I'd wreck my case. There you can see the inside. And of course, there's a ton of, you know, Stuff added on there. You can see wires all over the place. He's got some stuff going to the lower right portion of the case. It's upgraded 64K RAM. It's got the Model 1 keyboard. Looks like a composite video board thingy on the top there. And I don't know what the heck the rest of this stuff is doing. There's a zoom up of his uh, disc controller, unknown disc controller, as he puts it. So I'm not sure exactly what, what that is. It's using a Western Digital, you know. 
2793 uh, floppy controller. Is David Ladd still on? He can probably comment on the floppy controller chip better than I could. And you can see on the bottom there, this is a revision E motherboard of the Coco One, which was the first one that became semi-easy to do in a 64K upgrade. The previous ones, the D board, which was fairly common the first year or two, and then the very rare C board, where it bears butt to try to they upgraded so it's in a, a standard rom case so i wonder yeah, it's if much that's smaller the than same. the candy ones yeah that might be the same as that the controller that i used to that i showed here one time yeah that's right. Have, i think it is i think it is yeah and did we figure a, where that was manufactured was that antico or who did that one i can't remember now the case was an antico yeah so this this doesn't look like an antico case this looks Looks like a game cartridge. Oh, no, no, it's it's a professionally made case, but it's not a standard case. All right. I yeah, you see, it. like the where the, the the ribbon cable to the drives coming off the right hand side there, the whole connector shifted down. It's not central like it normally has been. Like yeah, I, I reckon that's the same as the one I um I had. Who actually made it? I'm not sure. Hmm. Maybe it says so on the other side. Yeah, maybe on the other side. I don't think he showed that, unfortunately. And here's a stock Coco 3, which from what I've seen of Alfredo's collection, this is incredibly rare having a stock anything. <laughs> Normally everything's pretty well hacked and modified, but... Well, no, he's taken the cover off the RF shield. It's not stock anymore. Oh, well, this, this, this ROM here looks a bit suspicious too, I think. Uh, uh, because he's got Coco 1 yeah. or Coco something written on it. I wonder if that's two ROMs on top of each other. Not sure. Hard to see, yeah. Here you mentioned it's got the 86 gimme. I like how he spelled gimme here. <laughs> <laughs> that's the Coco one I had, except mine yeah. was a D board, but that's the exact with mine with like 4K RAM badge offset from the center Radio Shack logo, original Chiclet keyboard. That's my 1981 Coco right there. Various Coco docs. So he's got a ton of, you know, different of the programs. He's even got the Donna Curtin and Seven Language Graphics, which is my favorite. Assembly language book for the Coco one and two. If you wanted to learn how to do games, um, the OSIN manual looks like in the bottom there. OSIN Insights by Peter Dibble, which is actually more OSK level stuff there on the far left. Uh, but a good collection of the books too, and then a box of various Coco docs. Intriguing. Here's a uh, collections of Rainbow and six eight micro journal undercolor. You'll see a couple of these more rare magazines uh, in a future photo year. So 68 Micros was, of course, Frank Swigert's, and that was basically the last mainstream, quote-unquote, magazine. I, like, I think uh, most of us that were here in the mid to late 90s were getting this because it was basically the replacement for Rainbow as far as we were concerned. I think he published it till when he started. He started in 92 or 90, no, no, 93, he started it, and then he, I think it ended about 97, 98 or something like that. Went about five years. I got a quick, was, up, quick update. Mm -hmm. Michael Pitsley says, oh, sweet. I just told him that he won the uh, uh, drive, drive wireless. wireless. Yeah. Oh, yep. cool. So is, he, is he on uh, the chat? General chat? No, he, he, he just uh, texted me. I, I sent him a, a uh, thing on. Um, yeah, he's probably at work. Facebook right Messenger? Yeah. Oh, Messenger, okay. Exactly. Yep. Bye. <laughs> ADS Micro Journal. This was kind of a competitor to 80 Micro. That covered all the TRS 80s back in the day. 68 Micro Journal, of course, is one that covered 6800, 6809, etc. 
Undercolor. This is a, a, a bit of a more rare one too. So this was actually produced by Dennis Bathory Kitts. You guys might remember we had him on several years ago for an interview. So we did a lot of musical stuff on the, on the Coco. We did Color Quaver. <clears throat> he also did the lower kit, which used to have his uh, famous ad where he had his big bushy beard and his, you, are you tired of your Coco screen looking like a checkerboard with all these inverse characters for lowercase? Get the lower kit and you can actually read lowercase letters. And this was the magazine he himself self-published. Which had a lot of good technical cool, uh, assembly language series with uh, taped discussions. Yep. Of kind of the assembly language companion to the compu color computer learning lab that uh, Tandy put out, which was more, you know, basic oriented. So you made monitor, you can tell it's a CMA because it doesn't have a door. <laughs> Still doesn't have a door. And I think he had to replace the power switch here, it looks like, or at least the cover of the power switch came off. You know, that would be something for somebody to do in the future is to take a, you know, a, a real door case and put a you know, screen in it, you know, and get rid of the guts. <laughs> Actually, yeah, my CMA died and I was thinking of that very thing. <laughs> yeah, you could throw the drives in there and, you know, yeah. multi-pack. You can make it into a Mac almost, Cocoa-based, you know, Mac-like. What would really be nice for someone to like 3D print the the door, a replacement door, to create a file, an SCL file that people could. Yeah, that would be one. Print. I think I think a lot of the 3D printers could handle because it's not super big as long as you can handle the, the, the width of the door there. But yeah, that would be a nice piece to replace because a lot of people are missing the door. Have you guys? No one has the door to make the model from. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> Nobody would want to give it up. Here's the other thing. Well, no, uh, no one has one. Did you see? Um, some guy used um, uh, the little bottle of um, super glue and um, some powder, and he fixed the door by building up the, the latch yeah. again. Baking soda. Thanks, you guys see Baking that? soda. Yeah. 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 It's a great trick. All you need is a baby snot blower bulb, and you can spritz <laughs> baking soda on your super glue and make any shape you want of plastic. And then he. Yep. Uh, sanded it down and it worked yeah yeah i've seen that trick before too um and this here's another shot of that 64k the original 64k color computer case so the one released in 83 which was white and then he's got his coco 3 motherboard and an hdl keyboard all combined that's a franken coco there <laughs> and the large b connector for it except this one's packed into a coco 2 case He's even got a, you know, written down the original serial numbers, the original amount of RAM, and the original version of the board of, of several of his machines, including a video text terminal. And we're back to the beginning. So anyway, it was, it was really cool to see all the different things he had. It's, it's kind of rediscovered here. And like I said, I hope you can scan in some of the stuff, because some of the stuff he has, uh, magazine-wise, stuff that we don't really see. This next one from Kenneth, and I don't know how to pronounce his last name, Udut, Udut, I'm not sure how to pronounce that. Um, and he posted this little video here. So it's basically the Orchestra 90, which of course is the uh, the dual 8-bit DAC stereo uh, sound card, uh, which comes with a ROM to built-in songs. And then he kind of made a little video here for two minutes that actually has a picture of it going through the, the manual for the Orchestra 90 itself, but while playing music created on the Orchestra 90. So it's kind of an interesting hodgepodge thing. So I'll just you know, play a few seconds of it here. And definitely recognize the organy music that we're famous for in the Coco. It's 
So I don't know. Is that kind of like self-advertising for itself? I'm not sure exactly what to call that, but I thought it was an interesting, interesting uh, concept there. Kind of like an in-store demo. Yeah, yeah. So next up, uh, Timothy Halloran was actually one of the people at the Tandy Assembly last week. Uh, and he showed off his USB-A powered Cocoa 2 and Cocoa 3. So we've kind of covered that before. And for those of you that listened to the Cocoa Crew, Neil also covered the Cocoa 2 version of the USB powered Cocoa. Um, so this is basically what his table looked like. And he has you know, the Cocoa 2 on the far left and he's got the Cocoa 3 in the middle running on a tier setting black and white monitor, which I thought was hilarious. What's interesting about that is the, um, the actual monitor itself has the capacity to display um, shades of gray as opposed to just black and white, which is all that the Model 1 and Model 2 and 3, for that matter, uh, and 4 put out, uh, was just black or white. There was no gray shades, but that monitor obviously can display gray shades. In other words, the analog board that, this, that the video signal goes into can decode and display shades of gray rather than just black and white. Yeah, the limitation was the video display generating hardware on the exactly that was the that was the weak point yeah. which isn't too odd because it was a tv screen which is yeah, i was about to say a black and white tv so yeah, yeah. here's, here's the question the question yeah. i've always had that that silver color was the color of the rca xl 100s and so forth yep so is the tandy computer copying the rca tv they use for their monitor uh they, when they made the deal <laughs> with rca uh, they wanted just the chassis, the, the case, and the chassis, and the CRT. They didn't want any circuitry. They said, we'll no provide tuner. the circuitry. Yeah, no tuning circuitry or anything. As a matter of fact, the uh, uh, to the right of the display, that silver badge there is covering the holes for the uh, UHF and VHF tuners. But when they bought it off of RCA, RCA wanted more money to paint it some other color than that gray color. And Radio Shack or Tandy was notoriously cheap and went with, okay, that's the cheapest, you know, because they didn't really want the gray color, but they went with right. it because they were so, cheap, so, cheap. So Tandy's official computer color was whatever RCA was using for their television when they bought their <laughs> TV from it. Yeah, no, no, they kind of standardized the color after that because they kind of became known for it. Uh, but then they also eventually became known for, you know, the kind of drab gray color wasn't the, the best. And by that time, you know, by the time the Coco or the uh, TRS-80 Model 4 came out, PCs were almost standardized at that eggshell white. Yeah, beige. And yet, and yet all the computers now, or mainly laptops, I guess, are going silver. <laughs> like a TRS-80. Right. Yeah, and they're going chiclet oh. keyboards like our, our Coco and ones chiclet were. keyboards. So <laughs> the Coco one was so far ahead of its time. It was gray or silver colored case that had chocolate keyboards we were just 40 years too early i guess yeah well max have been silver for decades at this Age, point ages yeah yeah as a matter of fact after, after recently, the sidetrack on the whole ibook imac thing where it was every color yeah. and pattern under the sun including like dalmatian and well, i don't know if you've seen the latest and... the latest uh, uh imac the 24 inch that's replacing the 21 and a half inch comes in besides silver it's like orange red uh yellow purple and yeah blue. they're kind of getting back to the original i well the second gen imac because first one was blondie blue only yeah well there's like seven colors available so they're like oh what, what's old is range. new again is basically what we're saying yeah exactly <laughs> 
Speaking of uh, Coco case things here, so Alan Leno's put this up, and I'm sure Mr. Dave can uh, talk about this too. He's in our chat. Um, But this is taking an AMD uh, Ryzen-based circuit board, putting it into a Coco 3 case. Then he got a you know the keyboard and everything else, and so it's kind of being used as an emulator type thing or a full blown you know PC type thing. But he actually got a custom label in here to kind of reflect what he's doing. So what what kind of machine is it? It's an AMD Ryzen, so it's an actual PC motherboard, basically. Oh, okay. Like it's so not an arm or anything. It's an actual PC you know, board, x86 style. X86, yeah. yeah. And we're calling a custom color computer for it. I think that's distorting the hobby a bit there. A bit, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's just <laughs> lying. <laughs> yeah. Like... Custom emulator. <laughs> now, if you added the word case under there, I could I could maybe buy it. But yeah, that's a little bit too far off. That's basically just an emulator running. Custom badge. Yeah. <laughs> really custom on it. <laughs> Still, it looks really good. So I, I can't. I can't slam them or anything for that. It's a, it's a cool looking case, lit up keyboard with color lights who, and all. Who made the badge? Ah, uh, did he mention he made the badge? He just says case uh, badges in. So no, I don't know who did, who did it. Yeah. How about that? I found something interesting. Keep going. I've I've got to download it. <laughs> okay. Uh, next up, we have some pictures from Tandy Assembly. So that was, as we said before, was running last weekend, uh, actually during our show. So they did some live streams. They had a bit of a glitch the first night, day zero, which was Friday, because somebody was playing, I think it was Brian Schubert, was playing some commercial music in the background on his MIDI synth. So the YouTube basically yanked it for being copyright infringement for music. So that first stream got yanked. Uh, but they, I think the other ones got put up fine. So they did some of the seminars and things too. So... Just wanted to show some pictures from that. So there's um, Mark Millette and his wife at the uh, Cloud9 booth. And I should ask him if he has any audio spectrum analyzer cartridges in there and see if we can find any more of these, you know, version twos. This was another interesting one with the uh, TRS-80 wiki and then the Coco logged into it type thing. Um, What's with the pictures on the wall? That's some printer dump thing, I think. I don't know too much about that one, unfortunately. Um, was anybody here on the panel at the show, or no, well, maybe that's from a platter? Looks yeah, like I a printer sitting over here, so maybe I'm not sure. It's a platter. I'm not doing that kind flat of artwork. Bed. It looks like the flat bed. Um, yeah, that could have been maybe a table devoted to some of the Tandy printers. So maybe the printouts are from some dot matrix, and the plotter is just something else they showed. Yeah. I don't, I don't know. Yeah, it's actually really close. I could drive it in like two hours, I think, to get there. But uh, I used up all my vacation time, and I had to I had to choose between Andy Assembly and uh, uh, Coco Fest, so I chose Coco Fest. Um, and there's you can see uh, Mike Rowan in Boise and Boise and some of the guests uh, on the show floor, just to kind of give you an idea of what the, the show looked like, and then this big advertisement here for all the sponsors, etc. And they had some good they had some good seminars in there too. So I'm not sure exactly what this is. It's a nice spacious exhibit there. All right, back to the beginning. So next up, Richard Kelly, who's done a lot of basic stuff, including his Super Ladder Man and stuff. So he's uh, released, and I think this runs on the Cocoa itself. It's BMP Reader um, for reading BMP files from Windows. So this is a version 1.2, um, which is a hack of a freeware 1.1 that existed before. So we made it a little bit faster. 
made it a little bit more menu driven to make it a bit easier instead of having to type in file names all the time and actually bring up menus, et cetera, of what, what files are available in the disk, et cetera. And it's currently hard coded to uh, convert it to RGB colors only, not composite. And then I'm sure Nick would agree on you know, the RGB is the only way to go if you have that available because it's definitely more consistent. Um, before you go any further, yep. I just um, sent you a picture, but I've sent it to your Discord if you can display it. Because I don't know if my bandwidth is good enough. Uh, to Discord, you said? Yeah, yeah, just now. Okay. Switch over to Discord. Oh, oh, don't worry. I thought you had it already open. I do. It's just buried under 15,000 other windows. Okay, so you got a picture of a monitor. Is that the original RCA? Or yep, that's or the that? original. Just bring that up. There's one feature we didn't get. Okay, are you guys seeing it there? Yeah, yeah I see make it a bit larger. That's it. We uh, didn't double, get the wood grain top. <laughs> double tap oh, on. Right. Do you have a mouse, uh, Curtis? Uh, yes. Um, if you double tap on the mouse, it should zoom on the nope. Im image. That's the original size of the image. He's got it. Just up. yeah, but I, with uh, I can zoom it with. There you go. Plus. That's it. I had mm -hmm. one like that uh, with wood Apple. grain on the top and side, <laughs> but it was a. Uh, um, model one monitor. That's yeah, my, my friend who had a, a, a model one, ironically, um, had the same TV as as that one right there. Except wow. I think it was a different color at that point, but it was obvious. He's like, hey, check it out. And he was showing it. Yeah, that'd be cool. That. Yeah. Any, <laughs> any cool how they ran the video cable out the volume novel? Right, there's those three because there's only contrast and what was the oh, other yeah, one? Oh yeah, these two. Uh, I just noticed volume. <laughs> volume. Uh, uh, yeah, well, volume. Volume. Not, yeah. There was no volume on the on the yeah, model it would be one hold, though. Hold and con or brightness, contrast, and volume, but they That's ran it. the video cable out the. Volume. I think it was brightness and contrast, and then yeah, the cable came out the one on the far left, I believe. Now. And of course, the Model One uh, one didn't come with a wood grain top either, did it? No, no, no. that's what I mean. Yeah, that's the part. I had one. Show. I had one that had wood grain. Oh, one that a was Model missed. One. Oh, did you? Yeah, oh, it's a Model One. It had wood grain. I got rid of it though. But, oh, I gotta oh, go. Oh, damn, okay. that would have been rare. You yeah. know what? I'm not even sure. Let me go take a picture of mine and find out. Now, be the right, other thing is, be right back. If you see where the um, uh, UHF and VHF knobs are, that square with the logo doesn't fit over the holes because those holes are quite wide on that one. I think they had a whole different bezel. Okay. Uh, yeah, you're right, because that is pretty spread out compared to the... Right. It's the same logo. power button. Yep. No antenna and it, thing. Yet. And it is uh, silver by the looks of it. It's a bit lighter yeah. silver, but they... Yeah, that could be the camera angle of the lighting and stuff. I too, think yeah, it could be that too. I, I yeah. think it has wood grain on the sides. Mine, mine, mine. The wood grain on top is a slightly different color of silver, but it's this monitor exactly. Mm -hmm. Cool. Okay, that'd be good. Oops, I didn't want to go that one yet. <laughs> okay, so the next one up here is from the Retro Channel, and um, I think he's a fellow Aussie to you, isn't he? 
Uh, yeah, yeah, he is. Lurch. No, Lurch is a different guy. Oh, you have a lot of Aussie bloggers actually been doing Coco stuff like it's kind of kind of fun. So this one here, he got a a Coco two that he received, and this is an NTSC one, and he uh, has never had an NTSC one before, and he wanted to see artifact colors and stuff. But he also he got this one sent to him in not working order, so powers up and it just puts a bunch of garbage on the screen type thing, one character repeating over. I won't go through the whole video here, obviously, because it's half an hour. Uh, but he goes through and he fixes it, and it basically turns out to be one bad RAM chip. That he also upgrades yeah. to 64K, because a person that had it before him put in 64K chips, including the one bad one, but never did the jumper connection for 64K, so it was still set to 16. So once he gets the chip replaced with a good one, he still gets only 16K. So he fixes that. He also does a power supply conversion, of course, to run it at the 232.40 versus the 110 here. Um, and basically gets it all up and running, and uh, he gets to see artifact colors for real instead of in an emulator for the first time. So it's a, it's, it's an interesting video, and I found it kind of funny. He did Octandy 2021 as a tag for it because he didn't quite get it done in time for Septandy. So it's, I guess we're being extended uh-huh. to Octandy now. <laughs> yeah, I actually just watched this video earlier today. It's it's a really good video. Yeah, it is. Oh, and by the way, uh, Mr. Lurch's name is. Jason Weber, I think. Yep, he's, he's actually in the, in, uh, in the group. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, just joined recently. Um, so this is a, a channel I showed last week because uh, he did the uh, the Kickman demo, if you remember from in basic here. So he's doing some basic programming and it's actually called the channel Color Computer Program. I'm not even sure who this is. I mean, he's got a picture there, but I'm not sure who he is. So he put up several other ones. He's one's a review upon a house for the Atari 2600. But he also did some demo of doing some sprite movement and Pac-Man animations in basic. Uh, and then he also did a review of Dragonfire where he got to like level 10. So he's kind of just showing some of the things that happened later. And so was, he seemed to be mixing it up on the channel a bit now. It's not just collective computer programming. Um, so I, 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 maybe I'll just show like it, the, the sprite movement here is a, a way that he did a workaround to have a circle that you're moving around the joystick over this uh, checkerboard tic-tac-toe thing without destroying the underneath there and he just basically does some redrawing of the stuff underneath but he does a check and i did actually send him because steve stevie had actually done his basic programming series a couple years ago and he actually showed how to use the get put buffers with some of the logic settings on it uh so that you could actually do background masking properly it's not the quickest thing in the world but he actually got it working so i sent the guy a link to the video so he learns how to do that because i don't think he's aware of the fact that you can do that with get put I thought I'd show the little uh, Pac-Man demo because it's a real, real quick little video here. Hopefully I don't get a stupid commercial in the middle of it. I mean, it's, it's not the quickest thing in the world because it's basic, but he did a pretty good, pretty good job of it, of uh, just showing you some of the stuff you can do. With awesome basic sound effects. I don't think it's quite up to Glenn Hewlett's or Nick's, uh, you know, Pac-Man's for the Coco 3, but it's, it's not bad for basic. <laughs> anyway, I'm going to keep an eye on his channel because he's, he's, it's just started, you know, recently, and then he's actually crammed out a few videos this week. So I'm, I'm hoping that means he's going to continue to pick up the pace. And it'd be nice to have a kind of a follow-up because Stevie kind of did his, his basic program up to a certain point, and then he's been, you know, busy with other things and hasn't really finished off. Never got into Coco 3 stuff, for example. So hopefully this guy will maybe get into some of the stuff that hasn't been covered yet. Next up, this is a follow-up to Noel's uh, video last week, and we actually had a big discussion on this. You know, is the dragon 
you know, meant to be a purposeful clone of the cocoa itself. And Noel came to the conclusion that yes, it was. And I mean, obviously we can get Kieran and, and Stu if they're still on the call to chime in on their thoughts of this. So this is actually a video done by, this is one I've not heard of. Now Jim might be mad at him too, because it's called Kodro Retro Innovations. So uh, he does his own comparison video and, and tries to figure out what he thinks it is. Now he's from Europe somewhere too. And his conclusion is that no, it's not meant to be an exact clone or, or trying to be a clone of the Coco, that they're both based on the original Motorola references on, which we covered a little bit last week too. But he goes into more detail, actually brings up some of the spec sheets from the Motorola reference design, where they're saying how the chips should be interlaced together you know, between the VDG and the SAM and some of the support logic and stuff like that, and then kind of goes through both motherboards. He also goes into the original history of Videotex, and he's got a picture of the AgVision version of the Videotex terminal here, and how that was originally a, a co-authored by Tandy and Motorola themselves, which uses basically all the core stuff that Motorola would have then told other you know, manufacturers to use if they're using these chipsets. And then of course the Microsoft basic from the Cocoa is also by Microsoft. So obviously that's in common, but not specifically Cocoa specific. So he comes to the conclusion that no, they aren't. So now we have a contrarian view. So Karen and uh, Sue, if you're still on the call here and I can't see if you're on the call at the moment or not, what is your yeah. opinions on that? Well, we can't really know for certain what was in their minds, but it's by all accounts, it was not intended to be a clone, but they definitely deliberately copied the interfaces. Um, if it was, if it were to be an actual clone, it would be more like the Brazilian ones when they would have the same ROMs. It would be a lot more compatible. Yeah. Like the, the wiring of the PIA for the keyboard, for example, they wouldn't have swapped yeah. rows around and, how how's my audio sound now? I've been playing with the settings. Good so far. There, yeah. Okay. Um, if you look at the reference, the Motorola reference design, there are things that are the same when you compare the Coco and the Dragon that are not in the reference design at all. So I think the Dragon was designed as a clone of the Coco. I mean, the reference design. <laughs> Reference design doesn't show you joysticks. The reference design doesn't show you the layout of the cartridge connector. So there was a book that came out recently online, a free download, and I can't remember the name of the book. It was um, The Secret History of Blah. I don't know. But it had a section in it on the dragon, and they had an interview with somebody who appeared to know what they were talking about that right. suggested that that was a late-on I think the words were something along the lines of they ran to the shop and bought every time Tandy peripheral they could <laughs> to try and copy the interfaces. Oh, so reverse engineered. <laughs> but but they had got that far just from from following oh. the reference design. <laughs> I think right. they kind of used the uh, the cocoa as a bit of a reference because it was a uh, it already had existed, and so they were going to make something around the same Motorola design. So they followed the Motorola reference design, and then they looked at the color computer and said, "Okay, let's do the you know keyboard the same way they do it, and the joysticks, and, well, and so well, let's on." Let's make so sure so. people can buy Tandy joysticks. <laughs> right. Well, yeah, Probably. that's you. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah, yeah like take the Coco and make some improvements to it. Yeah, uh, like well, built-in parallel port and a real keyboard and. 32k I, standard and i kind of liken it to the the the, the russian Buran versus the shuttle a lot of people like to compare those two things and a lot and it's like well 
obviously the Russians used the the uh, space shuttle as a reference for the Buran because they're almost yeah, identical. The earlier Rockwell designs that uh, well, then changed later. But some guy that works for NASA said that they they would have sent the because if you called us up and asked us for the plans, we would have sent them to you. He goes because it's it's just you know it's the U.S. government. It's not like they own the rights to it. It belongs to the people. So if someone wanted the design, they would have sent it to him. So you see, it would be what he was saying was basically that the Russians probably just called him up and said, "Hey, can you send us the design?" And so they did, and they used it yeah. as a heavy reference for their. And, and there was some differences in the design there too. There's actually was a YouTube video recently that actually went through some of the technical designs. There's actually a few things that the NASA people said actually the Russians did better, even though it never got off the project. Right. Really got off the ground. Yeah, well, it's kind of like a Monday morning quarterbacking. You know, it's like, oh, let's. We noticed because they built it this way and now they're having this problem. Let's do this differently to mitigate that problem. You know, you can always improve on an already pre-existing design. So absolutely, in certain ways, it's better. But a lot of people say, say, oh, well, the Russians built a better machine. No, they built like the next generation machine, essentially. You know, they yeah. stood on the back. In the, of the case of the Dragon and the Coco here, I think uh, Stu and Karen kind of came across something there. I think it was off the same Motorola reference design. They obviously did some improvements uh, as well because it was done a couple of years later. So like, you know, the base RAM was much higher. And of course, they picked a real keyboard and, and the real port and the Dragon 64. They had a real server port too, which was supposed to be in the Deluxe Coco a year after the Dragon 64 came out. But I think <laughs> they probably did go look at the peripherals and go, you know what? We can share this market. People that are making joysticks and, and making cartridges and hardware cartridges or software cartridges, we're going to make the pinouts the same so that we can share the third party and even some of the first party stuff between the two while still being different enough that it isn't like, you know, you take a quick look at it and all oh, this is exactly the same. Right. As a small computer maker, do I want to license joysticks from Kraft or do I want to just use Tandy compatible joysticks that people can go buy at Radio Shack? Which did exist in England at the time. So, yeah, though they weren't that yeah. common from what I understand. I'm doing, and Kieran can correct me on that. But. Right. But it was in the supply chain. You didn't have to design or license it yourself. You yeah. could just make spec it, it or buy it. Or... But make it different enough that Tandy wouldn't sue you. Yeah. Because I mean, the Dragon, for example, used the five pin din, uh, din connector, while the, which with the original one button joysticks also used. But the Coco One even had the six pin din connector built in the case. And they just kept that when they went to the Coco 3, they just enabled the extra button on the extra pin. See, that's a good point. That lends some credence to the they bought the peripherals and story because if they'd looked at the machine, they'd have seen a six pin connector. Yeah, yeah they, they didn't use that. that. They used the five pin, which is all that was active on the Coco joysticks. Right. But at the time, I'm sure it wasn't, they looked at the whole thing. Yeah, well, at the time, it wasn't at an active pin on the, like you said, yeah, it, it was a useless pin. Yeah, right, just, so they just said, "Hey, we can get away with a five-pin connector, which is two cents cheaper." You know, which over a gajillion computers adds up. Well, in its legal clean room, they didn't steal the cocoa design; they just used a design that happened to accommodate the cocoa joystick. Yeah. <laughs> I wonder if Microsoft were involved because it makes the operating system cheaper if it's already designed. Yeah. Yeah. Well, didn't it? Doesn't the Dragon use the same? Microsoft Basic in it? No, yeah, it's a I think different. I think Duncan Smead tells the story that yeah. that Microsoft provide the Basic, and you interface it 
um, and he was the one that did the interfacing, which is why th those bits differ between the Dragon and the Coco as well in the ROM. Yeah, because even some of the algorithms used were a bit different. Like Duncan mentioned, he optimized the keyboard scanning routine so it's faster, though, as, as, as Stu pointed out, that actually caused a few issues too with interrupts and stuff. But You mean the ROM software and the Coco can be improved? <laughs> Shocker. <laughs> yeah, the keyboard's an interesting one because superficially the keyboards are different layouts but if you look more closely they are the same layout just shifted they are yeah so yeah. the odds of that doing that by chance are zero so it must have been copied and then changed yeah and i would make it more compatible for like keyboard based games that were written for either or you don't have to relearn the keyboard layout it's exactly the same so well, I mean, but underneath is the matrix layout the same? I would imagine. No, there's a few um, lines that are in different spots, which is why if you try to run a raw dragon game on a Cocoa or vice versa, that's keyboard controlled. You know, you might hit a, a G key and you get an X or something. That's probably not the right ones, but there's a right. few of the rows that are swapped. You, you know, I was going to say that it's possible that that was, that, that was coincidence because it goes A, B, C, D, blah, 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 one, two, three, four, blah, blah, blah. But then there's the that row that is the same where break and and shift and whatever are all in exactly the same position. So yeah, all right. <laughs> I mean, you can probably calculate probability of that happening by chance, and it's probably quite <laughs> small. And so it's it's funny because we have these two videos two weeks in a row from two different YouTubers, kind of giving conflicting answers, and now our two panelists. From the UK have also given us conflicting answers, so I don't know if this is really ever going to be solved. Maybe the, maybe the truth is in the middle, though. I mean, some of it's basically the Motorola reference design, some of it was meant to be backwards compatible, and some of it was meant to be actual improvements. So, well, the people that that, that were close to it that, that speak about it claim that it was not a, a direct clone, but we can't know, can we? Yeah, well, right. Clone, well, like, it, like I said, I think they look right. Clone's probably not the right word. Yeah. Compatible, yes. I, I, yeah, I don't think that they were trying to duplicate it. I think they were just, they knew they were building a similar machine. So they kind of like looked at it and used it as a reference. So they, they said, okay, well, are, are we going to get sued if we do it the same way? No, there's nothing like, you know, copyrighted or trademarked or anything. So okay, let's just do it that way and save ourselves the development time of doing it because they already did the work for us. Yeah, and actually, and the, the guy that did this video mentions that, that that's his belief too, is that uh, because technically, because Tano sold a Dragon 64 in North America and they also mm -hmm. sold, uh, you know, Tandy also sold computers in the UK, that if there was a big legal issue where it's cloned so close that it could be sued, there would have been a suing happening at some point in 83 or 84. And that never happened in either country. So his speculation right. is that because most of it is Microsoft ROMs and uh, Motorola reference design with some minor tweaks here, and there, there probably wasn't enough to sue over because basically Tandy did not own the Motorola reference design. And because Dragon was an official customer of Motorola, yeah. they could use the reference design as much as they wanted. That was Motorola's decision, not, not Tandy's. Yeah. Motorola, Motorola would hand them the, the design to here, build yeah. it like that. <laughs> That's the idea right there. And as I That's mentioned, if you go too. to near the end of the video, he actually goes through the Motorola reference design, you know, chip by chip type of thing, not to super extent, but he goes through a lot of it. So if you want to kind of get what, what the reference design actually mentions, 
they even is in the Motorola represent. I think it was even a list of what pins you should have come out on a cartridge port. And I, I haven't get a chance to check to see if it's the exact same orders, the Coco and the Dragons ones, because I know they're compatible between each other. But um, it sounds like, you know, a lot of this was kind of baked into the Motorola reference design, even stuff that wasn't so obvious. Now, joysticks and stuff, that's a little bit of a different story. Because, I mean, at, at the time, I, you guys can correct me if I'm wrong, uh, Stu and, and Kieran, as far as the UK computers went, I know in North America, most computers that had joysticks were using switch digital joysticks. They were not using analog. That was more rare. Was that the same case in the UK with the other ones? And Dragon yeah. Data official joysticks were the horrible analog floating types. Yeah, as was um, Tandy's at this time. Yeah, yeah, you had to look to the aftermarket to, or third-party products to get a switch type. But but uh, did the, the rivals of the Dragon also use switch joysticks, or did any of them have analog, like the Spectrums, the BBCs, the Amstrads, etc.? Most BBCs had analog. BBC, yeah. Okay, so that points more to the Dragon was trying to clone that part of the cocoa because why would you pick analog joysticks well it's not even just analog they also use the potentiometer um, version of analog instead of the variable resistor version that ibm uses for example yeah so so on an ibm one side of each pot floats and you just get a resistance which means the resistance along the cord and various other things come into play where in the cocoa design, you've got plus volts on one side, minus on the other side, and you to get a fair, voltage. Though, to be fair, the cocoa design is the same design. So As... why would you choose the insane one? Oh, exactly. Well, <laughs> why does anyone choose a sane path? Most people don't, so there you go. <laughs> and, and the DAC as well, that's not in the re Motorola reference design. You mean the, the six bits on the, the yeah, PIA? the six bit DAC DAC and ADC, I guess. Like one yeah. of the differences he pointed out here, actually, too, is the PIA is like the, the original Cocos, I think, had a 6821, two of them, and the Dragon had a 6821 and a 6822, which I think the Coco later followed. Later. Yeah. Well, I think the Dragon yeah. always had a pair of 6821s, to my knowledge. It was, I've never seen wasn't it the, 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 the 22? What, wasn't it something like if you smashed your fish down on all the keys? You could really mess up the 22 on the keyboard or something like that. I remember there was there was some good reason to not do it the way that. The, yeah, I might have got the order of that reverse. It might be the other way around. I can't remember. Yeah, the 21 didn't like being there. But yeah, there was some reason to change. I'd really like to have it explained to me in sort of baby talk what that <laughs> keyboard issue is. Um, for example, why okay. don't why you don't make the Tetris controls like that way around like the ROM the wrong cut of Tetris, where it writes and reads the opposite way around to, to the way everyone else does it. You know, the A side versus the B side of the PIA. I'd, I'd love somebody to really just I, explain I to me. I can tell you where that is in the spec sheets. Catch me up on Discord. Okay. Yeah, cool. Anyway, it sounds like this is not resolved yet, so it may never be. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, next up, so Alan Hoffman, who of course did a ton of video content of basic programming and a few other things, even a little bit of machine language programming as part of uh, Septandi, has done a larger one here. Uh, it's almost uh, you know, just over 20 minutes explaining the get put commands uh, for extended basic. Now, what he goes into here is the memory requirements because the Tandy manuals, this is one thing they got wrong. I mean, Tandy manuals are generally very excellent. 
but they told you to dim an array of the X size of your get put buffer in pixels, comma, the Y size in pixels, which is blowing a ton of memory because internally it stores, you know, pixels as bits, not bytes. So it's basically telling you to use up to eight times too much memory. So of course you want to make a complicated given a lot of graphics, you blew all your memory doing dims. So he goes into a rather technical explanation here of how to figure out exactly how many bytes you need to dim. You can dim it as a single dimension array uh, and gives demos and, and even shows you when you get FC errors and stuff here so that you can actually do it. And this is part one. So he's going to go into stuff like the G option where you can do the faster byte align graphics, which is something else the Tandy manuals did not cover. They told you to use the G option, which you know basically allowed to pixel shift. If you grab something on pixel zero and you want to put it on pixel two, or three or something like that on a P mode four, well, that's it has to bit shift everything over to get it to place properly, which is much, much slower. And uh, he goes, he'll be covering that in a future video he's mentioned in the comments. Um, but this one here is just basically covering the allocation of memory for a get put buffer and how much memory you can save if you ignore the Tandy manuals and do it properly. And with a lot of examples and a good explanation, it was a really, really good video. So if you guys are interested in doing get put graphics and base, extended basic on either the Dragon or the Coke, it applies to both. It, it's a good tutorial on how to do that properly without blowing too much memory. How am I okay. not subbed to Alan's page? <laughs> this one I, I find is a YouTube uh, channel being me as being one of the most fascinating ones. I have no idea who this guy is. But he shows uh, JWZ's Dally Clock running on a real Coco 3. Now, this is cool because I've seen this on PCs. I've never seen it done in the Coco before. So. Some of these keyboards really loud. Oops, that's me. Maybe <laughs> <laughs> he's punching in some parameters for the clock time and date and stuff here. It's hard to read on the screen, but you'll have to see the graphics because they're quite a bit larger. This is where it kind of crossfades, not crossfades, but shifts like to a the morph. Yeah. yeah. A morph, yeah. Which we've seen on modern machines. I've never seen it run on a cocoa before. So that was kind of cool. That's really neat. And there it switches to the date. Does he have an analog clock too? Uh, no, this was specifically that uh, Dally clock, I guess is what it's called technically. Oh, that's neat. So I don't know who the guy is or if he's got source code of it somewhere. I, I would like to see that because that's, that's actually a pretty interesting effect I've never seen done on the Cocoa before. And no reason you couldn't do that on Cocoa 1 and 2 either. Next up, and this is one I think I mentioned earlier here. Um, so Retro Computo on YouTube, which is, uh, I'm going to butcher the pronunciation here, Jose Antonio Vacabello. Uh, he's on the Coco Facebook group here, and uh, Sloopy, you'd mentioned you actually have seen his uh, request. He's actually been getting some help and stuff here. So this is a, him running DriveWire. He picked up a Coco 3 with 512K, and then he's picked up a real physical floppy drive, I think the FD501 or something like that. But he has no multi-pack. He has no Coco SDC, and he's trying to figure out how to get stuff onto. And I'll just mute this here. It's all in Spanish. You can hit this post captioning and turn it on. You can kind of see what he's talking about. But uh, he wants to be able to transfer disk images that he downloads off the net onto his real floppy drives. And he goes through the possibilities of three different ways to do it, including like a Coco SDC with a multi-pack and using a PC with some of the old software that used to run on DOS that would allow the uh, 
floppy controllers on the older PCs to actually read and write Cocoa Discs properly, which, you know, that's hard to get because you need like a 46 or older, maybe an earlier Pentium or something like that. So he's ultimately decides to do DriveWire. So he goes through the whole thing of like loading the original HCB DOS for DriveWire off cassette, copying that onto the disk. And then he loads it from disk from there on end and then he uses DriveWire to transfer stuff over. So uh, he'd be a really good candidate for Snoopy's DriveWire thing where it just comes all booted up as soon as you turn the machine on. But he goes through all the various steps here. It's like a 24 minute video here. Um, and like I said, if you turn the closed captioning on and then turn on in settings, the auto translate to English, you can kind of it misinterpret some things, but basically it does it. And the demo game he used was by some Australian uh, named Nick Morentes, which is a Pac-Man <laughs> tribute demo. So that's what he ultimately loads as a test on this. So, he but it's a all. what's that? I said Grease Weasel would be an alternate option for taking those images and getting them <laughs> to real floppy drives on the Cocoa itself. No, you use the P modern PC with the Grease Weasel. You write out the images to a real floppy and boom okay really yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway he wanted i think, I think his purpose here is he wanted to try to do it on the coco if at all possible with, with driver he was able to actually do that so it's it's a pretty good inter interesting video though you know it goes through the trials and tribulations of figuring stuff out the first time he does it too he i guess barry nelson to give him the utility to copy a drive image across sector by sector from drive wire to a physical floppy and he forgot to format the floppy first. So it's just returning error after error after error. So then you know, restarts the video after you figure out what was going on, reformatted the floppy first. He even goes into the fact on a Coco, you have to double-sided disc, not just by punching out the right protect on the second side, if you want to make it flippy, but you actually have to punch out the index hole area too. So it actually can track the index pulse when it's upside down in there. You're supposed to cut all that part where you were just failing out and make it look like you know what you're doing when you post. I, I like the more raw approach. It's like, it's like <laughs> me trying to do a live seminar and everything goes straight to pot. <laughs> this one here is from uh, Pedro Penu, Rocky Hill on YouTube. And uh, it's the short enough one year, and it's kind of an update to his uh, pepper board, which is his salt replacement. And this is running on his custom made Cocoa 3 motherboard this time instead of the Cocoa 1 and 2. So I'll just play this one in its entirety. I'm sure Pedro won't mind. So here's my Cocoa 3. Um, here's, uh, the pepper board. Audio's come through. Okay. Uh, and so yeah. what I've done here is I've disconnected the transformer. It's not even plugged in and I'm feeding it 12 volts directly, 12 volt DC. I jumpered, uh, C62, I shorted it with this jumper here, um, so that the DC voltage can make it, uh, to the 7808 because, uh, for whatever reason, they just pulled DC off of there and rectified it right before going into the 7808. But if you want to feed it 12 volts directly, you'd have to make that uh, jumper there. And so I jumpered to D14, or you know, you can remove the capacitor and short it, or you can leave it in place and short it. It doesn't matter. And so here it is. Let's play Photon because it sounds good. Come on, Sundog. <laughs> this, this is where he didn't read the directions. You have to have the key. Yeah, to select an push the button, Pedro. That <laughs> no. was waiting on me. I like that effect right there.
and there you go, you have audio. So it does work. Shorting 662 works. And let's listen to the wonderful, wonderful music here in Photon. And I can't play it, but. <laughs> anyway, uh, for you, the hardware gurus here, like Rick and stuff here, the, uh, the salt chip, I guess, has something to do with the DAC sound, does it? Every analog thing is done yeah. by the salt chip. DAC. So, uh, serial regulations, you know, serial yeah. okay. So, that basically was the one that's the one chip we could not replace up until right. now. Yep, and uh, he's tested on the Coco one and two before. I know it was talk about you know whether it would work in the Coco three double speed, etc. And it does, so now we have a replacement for that chip. And also, with him doing the boards, uh, he's pretty much taking it over the over the finish line, you can now build a Coco. A Coco 3, yeah, from scratch. From scratch. Well, there you go, Stu. Now you can get a Coco 3. <laughs> <laughs> if it doesn't distract you too much from dragon stuff, of course. Okay, this one here is Arctic Retro, and I thought, oh, a fellow Canuck, but no, it's a European Arctic person. So he's based in Norway. And this was basically one of those mail-in ones where it gets donations from viewers, etc. Uh, so we got a whole ton of stuff. There's an Arabic uh, MSX computer, Commodore 16, PC cards, Flux, and a bunch of other things. But one of the things he got in here was a Dragon 32. So I'll play just a little bit of it there. From a private seller here in Norway, it's a little bit too big to fit on. Uh, I hate you too. Yeah, I hate having a pretty MasterCard earn up delicious points for every dollar spent. I wish the Chrome extension not broke or the fact that Chrome keeps crashing on me. To fit on the desk. Anyway, I was going to ask you guys, were you aware the Dragon sell directly in Norway? Or they've had to import it? It got sold in a variety of unexpected places with Looks interesting like dif differences because i do know from looking at the box here like it has uh, the flags and, and language of four different countries um, so i was expecting like obviously you know your heart sold spain for example but uh, i'm not sure what the exact range was like how many european countries did get it and how many did not i know there was a big user group in germany so we're definitely getting it there look at that and we know they built a CCAM interface. Yeah, we saw that in France. Um, but here you can see, like, that's the UK. That's Germany, I believe. That's, is that Italy? I don't know. France. No, oh, France. Yeah, Spain. That's Spain? Okay. Yeah. So obviously those four were targeted, but Norway wasn't one of those. But it sounds like there was more European countries that were included with the sales. I mean, he does a whole boxing. He takes it out, takes a look at it, et cetera. He doesn't really do too much with it. He did turn it on to make sure it works. It did right on the box. Next up, uh, Simon Jonasson has been busy doing sound demos lately on the MC10, which has a one-bit sound source. So it's a bit more limited than six-bit six DAC. Uh, but this one here, instead of just doing the raw sawtooth, um, you know, synthy type of thing, sort of the coarse synthy thing, this one he actually put some percussion in. Uh, with a little bit of multi-voice, so it actually sounds pretty decent for an MC-10 with one bit.
Anyway, I won't play the whole thing, but um, that's probably one of the better sounding uh, musical things I've heard on the MC10, to be honest. Actually, having percussion sounds and stuff. Square waves get right to the point, don't they? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but they do. Wah, wah, yeah. Wah. No volume control either. Yeah, uh, but well, he's, he's got the source code there uh, kind of on the screen, but he's also, he said he's not done optimizing it yet, so he's still got some you know opportunities to maybe fit in a bit more in there. He's never done. <laughs> yeah, he just true. optimizes and optimizes and yeah that's that's kind of a man after better. my own heart that way i guess yeah he's he's amazing <laughs> looks like he's ported it from the spectrum program you can see the z80 code yep. in the comments i asked him about that and uh yeah he's ported a particular uh music studio program from the zx and then begin fixing it up and cleaning it up and optimizing it, doing all the things that he does. And uh, I asked him if he had looked at uh, another fairly widely known one bit audio fanatic and unsurprisingly, he knows Oots directly. So <laughs> <laughs> hey, it's pretty cool seeing say, that. So good. No, I was going to say, didn't he get lots of his music compositions from Oots? I believe so. Yeah, I think Oots wrote him some music for his demos. Yeah, yeah, I remember him mentioning that at uh, at Coco Fest when he was down there for Coco Three demo. He, he mentioned the person that had actually created the music itself. He wrote the player, but the, the music itself was written to somebody else. Anyways, it's fun to see that you know the MC10 getting uh, you know some love on the the sound department. We've had some you know pretty decent ML games in there. There's a port of Flagonbird. There's a Pac Man. Um, you know, ports of space, assault, etc. All doing one bit sound. Um, and, and now we know Jim Gary's been using Simon's code to do those videos, the music for his videos. <laughs> yeah. So he must have been testing it early on. Yeah, that must be using the more advanced version, though, I think, from what I've heard some of those. And speaking of which, in two weeks when we have the MC10 special, Simon actually will be one of the guests on that show to demonstrate some of the sound stuff and hopefully an even newer version than this. Kind of get an explanation of how that works. And Jim Gary will be on as well, so he can tell us whether he did secretly use Simon's player to do all the background music. Now, this one here, Sloopy actually gave me a, a slight update on this one. So this is, uh, we're getting to MC10 news now. So Jim Gary posted this link about an MC10 keyboard fix, which is rather extravagant. This guy got the MC10, and this is uh, actually dated back to April. I missed this the original time around, so Jim had just recently reposted it. And basically what he doesn't like on the MC-10 keyboard, besides the fact it's really small and the keys are kind of, you know, yucky, is that the shift and control keys for him are the opposite parts where they should be. So rather than just doing a simple hack, he goes through like the ROMs and figuring out how to patch it. And then, you know, making a custom ROM and basically does all this stuff just to swap the two keys. It's pretty, pretty extensive, but he got it working. <laughs> So if any of you have the same issue where you figure the control and the shift keys are on the wrong sides of the keyboard, it must be left-handed. Uh, well, like just use I, wires. Honestly, there should be the control key should be another shift key, and there should be an additional key for control. Yeah, beside the A or something. But yeah, the nice thing like, here is I, I like literally the keys. I think are the exact same size. So you can literally swap the keys themselves, and then you just. But you, like other people said, why would you just rewire it instead of like reprogramming? <laughs> doing everything else. I don't know. Well, that way you're not modifying the hardware and you can... Uh, uh, hard, uh, well, you modify software. the ROM. Well, you're, what, is it reburning the ROM? 
Yeah, take a look at this hodgepodge he had to get here to get his wrong. Oh, letters. yeah, I guess so. So <laughs> don't ask me. Yeah. But it's cool that he actually took the time to do it and wrote a whole blog complete with pictures and stuff about it. So once again, you know, the the TRS-80 model computers generally tended to be more for the hackers than, than some of the more, you know, game-oriented machines. Here's my MC-10 keyboard. <laughs> just, you know, I just use an emulator. <laughs> Uh, yeah, if this is a Mylar, you can't really change it. Yeah. You'd almost need a, a, like, what was it, Commodore? The keyboard was on a circuit board, so you could do anything you wanted with that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Now, we're talking about Ninecat earlier here that uh, Karen had done the original Dragon Coco version of, which, uh, remind me, Karen, was that a 64K required or 32K required? 64K, because it just page clipped between everything, so it needed it. <laughs> So this is done using uh, print statements, I think, or something like that. So this is uh, Jim Gary's version for the MC-10. Now, of course, he's just using the built-in sound command from the MC-10 basic. So it doesn't sound as good as Kieran's. But you know, for the MC-10, it's actually pretty impressive to get the graphics going like this. That's basically all print statements, I think, just doing a line at a time of pre-built strings. And not as much animation as this Kieran does. But the MC10 now has its own nine cat, so yeah, to all the Coco and Dragon people. <laughs> what is the story behind the nine cat? I don't really know too much about its history. Was that a like a Japanimation thing or something, or what was it? I, I read it once at one point, but I forgot. I think there's mm -hmm. like a thing on Wikipedia. I'm figuring Kieran would know. Didn't some guy dress his cat up like that and then somebody made an animation out of it and just combined it with some music somebody else had already done? I, uh, I don't know. It was a while ago. And dressed uh, it up like what, a waffle? I, I remember there was a cat. There, there was a like definitely a real, a real cat. cat involved because I remember the cat passing. Oh, okay. Came from a donation drive, it says. Somebody was this guy was doing a donation drive. Um, he said something about drawing a pop tart, and in response, he created a hybrid image of a pop tart and a cat. That's kind of like where it comes from. I oh, suspect so that's drugs were involved. That's what I'm kind of getting. I never <laughs> realized that that's a pop tart. I think in Kieran's, it looks a bit closer to a pop tart. Is yours a little bit different than this? I can't remember. Well, the actual one looks like a pop tart. Now that you know it's a pop tart, yeah. What it actually has done is made me hungry. Okay, and then the last one here is actually a dragon story. So since we've got some dragon people on here, we'll get them to comment on this. So uh, Dan, I didn't know Francis' last name Dore. As basically, I it, it's basically a, a a controller for a uh, which one was it? The uh, Sega. Mega Drive, I guess. Yeah. Uh, but he's got a custom dragon logo on it to make it look like it's dragon oriented. And of course, the buttons are all in the standard dragon colors, the red and the black. So would he have had to custom make this logo with that triangular rounded shape? No, not really. I mean... Or just cut it out of something? I'm not sure. Yeah, well, just it could have been initially square and he just cut it to fit the triangle. You know, like shaped it. You only need the colored part of the like a decal or something and and uh, kieran and uh Stu, do either of you use like more modern controllers like this on the dragon or do you stick to the the older joysticks 
I, I got a Mega Drive controller or two. Bet you use it with your with your Dragon. Yeah, because yeah, built some of the um. Oh god, what's that? Four hundred six six based interfaces. Okay, and Stu, do you do the same thing too, or are you, are you just so enamored with the original free floating Dragon <laughs> sticks that you stick with those? Life beauties. I mean, I I have a floating joystick, but I don't like them. And I also have a digital pad, but the fire buttons don't work, so I can't win. <laughs> <laughs> I need to sort that out. I, I I usually end up using an emulator if uh, it needs a decent joystick control. Okay. That, yeah, it sounds like somebody dragon. needs to send you a donation uh, switch-based joystick for your dragon or something. I think. Mm. I think <laughs> I need you can to buy. Say... Sorry, Go you on. can buy. Um technically properly branded Sega Mega Drive joysticks again, or Genesis if you prefer. Um, I, I don't think, uh, I've seen a lot of people say that they're not, that there's, there are some ways in which they're not quite as good as the original ones, but I got one, seems all right. But then I don't really play that many games. John, have you had an experience? Like I know you guys have used a lot of retro controllers and stuff here. Have you used the Genesis controllers on any other machines? Oh, yeah. I mean, I use the Genesis controller all the time on the Atari, on the Atari computer. Um, it was, uh, and on the Amiga. Uh, it is, for those of us that uh, grew up using a control pad and uh, prefer it, uh, the Genesis stick is the, the go-to option, you know, aside from new, newer sticks or, you know, third-party solutions. And that so was even above the NES then? Yeah, because the NES doesn't have an, a DB9 at the end of it. You know, you can't oh, right. plug a you know a, an NES stick into anything other than NES. Yeah. Okay. And, it, and it was just naturally uh, compatible with Atari, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. Right mm -hmm. out of the box. I mean, you can plug it into anything. Uh, you know, any of the Atari computers, any of the Commodore computers. Um, you know, uh, that that was sort of the the standard joystick port. Um, you know, if you had a, a, a ZX Spectrum uh, with the uh, with the ex uh, with one of the I can't remember what expansion number it is, but anyway, it gave you that nine pin port. Uh, that, you know that that was the de facto uh, in terms of you know most most computers, not the Coco, but <laughs> most of the computers. Looking at that triangular logo there, it makes me want to have some guitar picks. Yeah. yeah, I was just thinking that makes sense. It is nicely 3D and everything, isn't it? Slightly mm -hmm. like rounded edges for that fast butterfly picking too. That'd right. be awesome. Yeah, it's a comfortable <laughs> controller because I've played Sega enough times to be familiar. Yeah, we, with we have that some choice. Sega adapters actually in our world that even support the extra buttons if you want to do the extra programming for it. So I think Neil sells some of those that actually handle up to four buttons per joystick or something like that. Yeah. And that is the end of the news today. And everybody's still awake. I'm impressed. Sorry uh, uh, huh? Uh, what? What? <laughs> I was snoozing up against the cabinet. So I, I want to give a big thank you to both uh, Kieran, our special guest interview today, and for Stu for joining in the interview and also giving a uh, further perspective on some dragon stuff um also to add to all of the other extra feature creep that we've been adding to kieran as it is on xroar and he came in and plugged in a few extra ones too so that was awesome 
So Karen, you're going to be busy till retirement now just doing all that. So, but th thanks to both of you for coming by today. Thanks uh, to both of you also for uh, the great games you guys have made and uh, for being part of the Dragon Talk special, et cetera. And we hope to see you guys at the, uh, the meetup if you guys can make it and it's safe to do so at the end of November. I'll get in contact with 20 Jewel and see if we can arrange for getting a live feed even starting when you guys are starting. And then people can just wake up here at three in the morning instead of you guys having to do all the time to, to join in the fun. So, And we'll be trying to live stream Cocoa Fest too as well here at the beginning of November. So hopefully if everything goes well, we'll have two completely um, live stream shows at the beginning and the end of November for the Cocoa and for the Dragon. Oh, I believe we have a couple of project updates. Yep. Um, Alan, did you add uh, you on my list? Uh, yeah. So it's not exactly Coco related, but I was asked to discuss it. Um, I guess last week I got a notice from uh, an online game store called Steam that everyone should be familiar with that an early access game called Turing Complete was being made available uh, so that people could help tune the final puzzles for the game. Now, the point of the game I thought was really, really cool. So I went ahead and grabbed it and I shared it around on the Discord because I thought it's the kind of thing that Coco folks would really, really like. And the idea of the game is that you've been abducted by an alien race who is going to test your intelligence. And if you fail the intelligence test, you were eaten. And the intelligence test basically is to build a computer from scratch using logic circuits and then program it to solve their puzzles that they're going to present to you. And you start off with simple NAND gate and the game has a fairly brilliant interface for how to build these circuits and construct the signal paths for things and it leads you almost tutorial like through being able to try each challenge and do some experimentation to understand how those circuits work before you go ahead and say okay alien guys check my progress and do i get eaten or not and there's at least 78 levels to the game and along the way you design your own assembly language if you get tired of doing uh switch flips to program things and with that assembly language, you then complete their challenges by making short games that you'll complete tasks and stuff. And my thought when I saw the ad was, I wonder how much of the 6809 opcodes I could put in this thing. So that's what I'm playing for. I'm so, you know, eaten. give it. Yeah, well, so far, the, when I completed the first level, there's a little bit of a spoiler. I completed the first level. I got my NAND gate working. They said, well, we've decided you're at least not a plant. <laughs> and that's the, that's the way this game goes. And that part alone was pretty fun, just with the little alien guy giving you the, the business every time before they give you the next challenge. So uh, take a look at it if you like puzzle games. It reminded me a little bit of the kind of puzzle things of something like Robot Odyssey, where you're you're programming to a task as part of the game. Mm -hmm. So uh, yeah, Mike and, Mikey in the chat mentions it reminds it sounds like you know Robot Odyssey or Rocky's Boots is one I think I mentioned in the pre-show. Yeah, those are both great games. Yeah, so uh, give this one a look. Um, for so far for the early access price, I've been very happy with with throwing in. And if they don't add anything more to it, 
I think that I can do everything I'd ever want to do with it anyway, but there's already been more activity going on for it. So it is still in development. Cool. I just want to catch up on the chat. Oh, sorry, go ahead. Go ahead. I don't know who was starting. Oh, okay. Uh, I was just going to catch up on the chat here. Tom Eric Anderson uh, said that the dragons were sold in Norway. He worked at the local dealer that actually sold them. So it was natively sold in, in Norway. So that's, that's cool. Yeah, it sounds like a fascinating project. I mean, I've, I've seen like Rocky's Boots and Robot Odyssey, and they do teach you like simple logic circuits and stuff and, and how to put them together to, to do simple things. It's actually on one, the of the, it's one of the things I like about Minecraft. What was the name of that game? It's called Turing Complete in reference to Alan Turing. And that's one of the early tasks is that you're building a Turing Complete computer, starting with NAND gates. Hmm. Yeah, well, that's what I said. Uh, I like about Minecraft because you can create with Redstone. You can create uh, all sorts, you know, the, the, the uh, gates. People have made entire computers inside of Minecraft, which is mind-blowing. I mean, I've seen some that actually boot the computers to the desktop or to yeah. Uh, they actually game run. Will show you how to do that, and then you design your own assembly language to do it with as well. So mm -hmm. I thought that was kind of cool. They show an example in the video where you've got the the binary pattern, and then you assign what mnemonic you want to have to that binary pattern, and then from then on you use is that is your mnemonic in your code and that's the pattern it's going to put on the bus that kind of stuff so yeah. uh, it, it looked like just fantastic fun for exploring that kind of level of the hardware without you know setting your hair on fire or doing what i do which is <laughs> totally burning holes through things not myself so yeah so an educational game for those who want to learn you know how circuits are designed basically yeah hmm. okay there's one for you to review boat I just want to hear the various levels above. At least you're not a plant. <laughs> How far yeah. can you go? All right. Well, uh, let's see. Next up. All right, Ron, you had something. Yep. Okay. You got to let me share. There we go. Okay. Can you see? Yes. Yes. Can. Okay. So uh, the day before yesterday, I traded these two controllers for a Coco that didn't work from uh, Terry Gartland. I received a Radio Shack Color Computer 2 16K basic from Terry Garland and trade for the joysticks. It came in the mail day before yesterday. It wasn't working when he sent it. I pushed down the chips, uh, you know, opened it up. And since they were all socketed, I uh, powered it up and it worked, which I thought was awesome. Cause I figured it, I would <laughs> never get it working. <laughs> I noticed it had some yellowing on the outside. So I did the retro bright thing and that's how it came. And that's how it retrobrighted. Nice. Wow, that wow. one looks great, don't it? Looks great. Now I did it differently this time. I um, I used the um, 
use paper towel, laid it over top of the cover, put it on a glass table outside, and then cut, uh, poured the um, uh, stuff over it. What do you call it? The um, hydroperoxide? Yes, exactly. Did you have the liquid or the gel? The stuff. Liquid, yeah. It, it was a dollar at the dollar store. Just straight up hydrogen peroxide. Yeah. No, no fancy hair cream. No. And straight did up. It, did it for a day. <laughs> and the next day, it looked like you see it right there. And it works. There's a, a cartridge, even though it's a color basic. There are cartridges that work with it. And then there's some that say, uh, not enough memory with an exclamation point. <laughs> I don't know if you guys have ever run across that. But anyway. Not, not since I had 16K machines. I haven't had those in decades. Yeah, right. Yeah, here's um, something I did a while back. I put the uh, color computer on the screen, and it uh, looks like they're staring at it, wondering what to do. I thought that was cool. It's uh, the color computer from the 1980s in the 1960s about the 2020s. <laughs> Who knows what, what this, what year this took place? It was supposed to be way in the future, and um, it's cool that um, they had air, you know, they had space cars or whatever, and all we have is these uh, SpaceX cars driving around that uh, <laughs> charge. Space cars, they had space cars that would fold up into a briefcase yeah. you could walk off with. Okay, so. That's about it. Nothing big. No WeFX? Yeah, I always have WeFX going on. <laughs> <laughs> Check it in the morning and the evening because that's when they broadcast the best. And I've gotten some really clear um, downloads. They look really nice. Yeah, I put, put, put them up on the, on the uh, site that I have there. And it's interesting. Oh. I get, every once in a while, I get somebody that uh, joins um, the Coco group and they're interested. They're they're uh, a ham guy, and they, and they I tell them you know check this out, and they get all excited and they want to do it. Generally, nobody has a wire running out of their house though, <laughs> hooked up to their short waves so that they can receive stuff. And it depends on where you are, because uh, if you are in some spots of the country, um, it's pretty tough to do. But what's neat is um, we're coming into the solar cycle where the sun will be nice and uh, strong and give uh, radio uh, waves a chance to bounce around the earth so you'll be able to pick up stuff all over the place. That's it, guys. Thank you. Okay. Anybody else have any uh, project updates or acquisitions? Brian's not here, so. Yeah. Uh, he needs his own show. I have a non-update, <laughs> non but I would like someone's help. Um, let's see. Can I just throw a share up here? Yeah. So let's see. My, uh, OSK adventure has ended right here for the moment. Um, I was trying to back up my hard drive and it started and then it made a really loud clack and spun down. And now that's all that hard drive does. So if anyone knows where to get OS nine for a Delmar system five, please let me know. Cause, uh, this bias screen is kind of boring. <laughs> and that's that. Okay. We ready for the outro then? Somebody else has anything last minute to add here? I guess we should promote that uh, 
in two weeks is the MC10 special with multiple special guests. So, okay. Do you want to review uh, the upcoming schedules? Cause I don't have any promos to run on those. Uh, yeah, actually, I've got to contact some of the people. I'm going to try to get some promos made for some of these here. Uh, I didn't have time yesterday. We had a couple test calls there, but unfortunately, I was so loaded with work with deadlines that I had to basically just do a very quick video audio test, and that was it. We're done. Um, I know there's some talk. There's a guy, the guy who's doing the ICS calendar import for the Coco, actually wants me to put up the uh, the full schedule so that you can actually bring it into your Coco itself to see what the schedule is like. Cool. But uh, okay. as far as uh, interviews and specials go, the currently scheduled ones um, starting in two weeks is the MC10 special, which will have Greg Dion, Jim Gary, Darren Ottery, Alan Cox, James Diffendapper, Simon Jonason, and Robert Sieg. The following week on October the 30th is Mark Siegel of Tandy. November the 6th will be Coco Fest Live. Exactly what form that will take, I'm not quite sure yet. Uh, but hopefully we'll get some live footage, especially for those people that can't travel down there this year. Uh, November the 13th is Doug and Kevin Leaney, who wrote some of the Coco 1 and 2 and Coco 3 casino programs back in the 80s, being interviewed by another brother team, Paul and Tim Thayer, who've done Coco 3 casino-based games in the 2010s. And so we're going to have two brothers interviewing two brothers. And a couple of them already oh, met brother. on Zoom, and it was uh, pretty fun watching them visit. So it's going to be a, a fun show. Uh, November 27th is, of course, the Dragon. Hopefully, we can get to, so we're going to have to do the live stream from the Dragon Gathering at Cambridge, and maybe even do some impromptu interviews afterwards. So, I'll, like I said, I'll get in contact with Tony Jewell there to try to get that all straightened out. December the 4th, Brian Weasler is it's rescheduled because he was supposed to do his special on that big, massive U haul full of cocoa stuff that he got um recently that um he had to reschedule because he got called in for work and got, got called out of town so that's going to be on december the 4th and then the last one of the year is scott Griepentrog, who we had on briefly earlier uh, we interviewed um the guy from the internet radio station and why am i pulling the blank of his name gene turnbull so um because Scott was involved with a lot of stuff with OSKs, a lot involved with a lot of stuff with OS9, uh, including the BBS system that Gene ran in the late 80s, early 90s, uh, that actually let Coco's link across the web like its own FidoNet, but not using FidoNet, but using his own protocol uh, that he designed. And we're going to be talking about that in a bunch of his other OS9 and OSK projects. Maybe he can help you with your, your System 5 there, Rick. Uh, he might have had one of those. Besides that, so that's the last official interview for the year, and then we're I've already been re reached out to about four or five different people to get interviews going starting in January. Haven't everything official back yet, so but basically we're booked right through the end of the year. So that's that's what's upcoming. Okay, not You're... much going on, eh? Yeah, dead computer, <laughs> nah. uh, you know. <laughs> Actually, All Nick, right. uh, do you you? It's not Coco related, but did you want to mention progress on your Tier City Model One project? Um, nah, we'll leave it for another time. Okay, I got some Model One news. I just took. A, can I share for a second? Sure. Yep. Uh, let's see. Hang on a second. My computer is complaining for permission. Uh, oh man, I gotta quit. I gotta quit and reopen. Let me in real quick when I come back. 
I'll tell you what, while he's doing that, uh, let's just run the outro. This concludes another episode of Coco Talk, the world's leading live talk show featuring the Tandy Color Computer. For all things Coco Talk, visit us on the web at cocotalk.live. We'd love to hear from you. Send feedback, suggestions, even segments via email to cocotalk at cocotalk.live. Consider supporting the show with a purchase of merchandise from our retro swag shop at 8bit256.com. If you'd like to become a patron of the show, click on the Patreon link on our website, cocotalk.live. Coco Talk would not exist without the community, its cast, crew, and contributors. Thanks go to Alan Murphy, Bill Noble, Brian Joyce, Brian Weasler, Curtis Boyle, D. Bruce Moore, Danny O'Connor, David Ladd, Eric Canales, Grant Levy, James Diffendaffer, Jason Reichert, Jim Brain, Ken Reichert, Mark Bosley, Mark Overholzer, Mikey Furman, Mr. Dave6309, Nick Morentes, Nick Morota, Nick Morota, Nick Morota, Paul Fiscarelli, Richard Lorbieski, Rick Adams, Rick Eulin, Rob Inman, Rondell Vaux, Samuel Gimes, Sloopy Malibu, Steve Bjork, Terry Steggy, Tom C., and many more. Please help support the Coco community. A list of various contributors and resources are available at imacoconut.com. That's I-M-A-C-O-C-O-N-U-T dot com. The original Coco Talk theme song is copyright 2008 by D. Bruce Moore and Greg Sheeler. The new Coco Talk theme song is copyright 2020 by D. Bruce Moore. Both are mixed, mastered, and produced by D. Bruce Moore. Coco forever, people! And we're back for a minute. Uh, I hit this button here. Okay, John, you can show us what you got. Okay. Um, let's see here. Since I ran upstairs and did a shot when we were talking about the Model One, that one television had that like wood grain section right. here. Mine, mine does not. I was wondering. I, I didn't think mine did. Yeah, but uh, yeah, I haven't haven't had that open. I can't tell you the last time i had this computer on yeah that's the top mine's got as well that's yeah, mine too darker gray covering the wood grain i wonder if i scrape it off with the wood grain be under there <laughs> <laughs> who knows so uh, yeah is that gray the is paint or is it the actual plastic color uh, yeah i think it it's might just be paint. the paint ah uh, well because it's a yeah, different tone know. than the other than the outer casing are, are the sides like that too the sides no. are, are gray like that. No, it's just that wood grain insert in the top has been replaced with this dark gray color that doesn't match the matte gray or the silver. All right. It's it's actually black. It's just the way the light's hitting it. It's kind of making it look grayish, but it's actually as black as the front part. I'll bet you I got a picture of my old monitor somewhere. Showing the and this is a a better angle of the cover that covers the tuner holes that are in the plastic because it's this big hunk and 
chunk of right. plastic <laughs> that hangs off it. And if you grab it, you can jiggle it. It's like chug, 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 chug. you tell it's just like <laughs> snapped in there. And you it's can so also obvious. see the whole. Yeah. Oh, well, actually, once, if you, once look you know back, what it is, it's so yeah. obvious. But if yeah. you don't know what it is, it never <laughs> occurs to you. Right. Exactly. If you look in the back, you can actually see the two round circular holes where the tuner knobs stuck through. I have is there a, a hole for the uh, pull-up antenna at the back? It, no, but it does say volume where the video cable comes out. Oh, he's pretty <laughs> sure. And I think, I don't know if you can see my mouse, but if you look right here, like right in that area right there, there's a little hunk of plastic that hangs oh, the off. Clip. It's, like, it's a clip for the, for the antenna, I think. Yeah. Oh, right. just, um, just your, that. your screen over the monitor i got one just like that yeah i can't remember if it's blue or green i think it's blue it gives mine's it like black. a blue tint mine's black so, you, so when you're looking at an angle you can't tell who what you have on the screen oh really oh the you, you've, got like an polarized. Anti, you've got an anti-glare mask over the screen there i see yeah i, I bought that like 100 years ago <laughs> <laughs> Well, I, I obtained the unit in like 83, so by 80, 83 or 84, that's when that was put on there. Mine came with my Model 4. Yeah. So I don't know. I I gotta, I should pull out the rest of it and fire it up. Maybe make a video of it. Do you have the um, expansion interface? Nah, I've been looking online for one recently. Yeah, though. there's one on there right now for 51 bucks. Hmm. Has anyone been able to find the the color computer um, monitor that Tandy showed CMA. in their advertising? No, no. Way back in the color computer one and two days, they had adverts and they were showing the Tandy uh, a, a Tandy color TV for yeah, the that wood grain on it too, and a little push button. Yeah, yeah, yeah the push button numbers. And yeah. it was was it styled like the Coco? I can't remember. It was just like a regular television had wood grain, yeah. plastic wood oh, grain, right. you know, faux wood it, grain. Yeah, just one of the Magnavoxes they sold in stores. All oh, right, I, Is that, I yeah, that's might have said color computer. Yeah, most of their stuff by then was something rebadged from somebody else. Yeah, back then they also had the uh, green, red, blue. Um, a lot of TV sets had that on the. Yeah. Somewhere around near the knob, somewhere. Mm, the designate that it was a color TV. Yeah. yeah, still selling color in the in the eighties. <laughs> yeah, it's a color TV. Yeah, this could only do three colors. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, look, red, green, and blue. <laughs> if you think of it, we have a That's color all computer for the same reason. <laughs> I'll just add in one comment here, totally unrelated to the monitor here, but I just saw. In the game on challenge channel that buck owens was talking about dungeons because he wasn't able to be in the chat so i thought i'd read this out for karen <coughs> excuse me so thanks dungeons was fun i played it on an electron a couple of years ago but never passed the first four or five levels i think the original might have been a little harder than the easy that we played which you said is true it was so time consuming to complete some of the levels there were some super easy levels mixed in almost as a bonus one of the later levels had a bunch, six plus in a row in a one cell wide corridor. Yeah, pick one up, move, you swap keys, or did you repeat it? It was very frustrating. I think my high score game was over six hours. Wow. <laughs> you know what would have been cool back in the day is if uh, 
they made it so that uh, if someone knocked your computer power cord out, that you could plug it back in and turn it on and see that it's still there. <laughs> but it never would would be, you know. Um, my first computer was the MC10, and um, I, I learned that uh, the program pack has that different RAM where um, it doesn't need to be refreshed. Yeah, static RAM. I, yeah. So um, I also learned that um, because there's static RAM that basically it will hold the, the information on there. So I was, I'm wondering why they didn't use that and then actually um, cost. Yeah, yeah static I mean, RAM, money, money, RAM is hugely expensive compared yeah, to that. Yeah, but nobody money. actually did that. Well, it's the same thing with with flash oh. memory. Flash memory has been around forever. And I remember my friend telling me about it about it back in the in the 80s. There was uh, one of the early MS-DOS based Tandy 1000s had uh, the like MS-DOS in ROM. So it would, it would boot instantly to a command.com. And there was a settings that you could save out. And I was asking my friend about what type of storage it was. And he explained it, you know, essentially flash memory. And I said, well, why don't they just make hard drives out of that? He said cost. It was just way right. too much money. Well, like, like the VIC-20 had static RAM, but it was like 4K of it. Well, I'll give you an example. The gimmicks, which is a six out of nine base machine, had static RAM in it. And it cost five thousand dollars. No. Mind you, it had some extra hardware in it too. But I mean, right, static right. RAM was literally five to ten times the cost of dynamic RAM. Was so you were RAM juggling, RAM? you were juggling processing speed against cost because for dynamic RAM you had to strobe all those rows. So it was no matter what else. So it was fa dynamic was faster because you didn't have to strobe all those rows. You didn't have to do anything uh, to maintain the RAM. You could just do what you're doing. Where dynamic RAM, you had to make sure you stepped through all the rows every however milliseconds. Which your capacitors are forgetting. <laughs> which is invisible to us, right? Right, but it's not invisible to the designers because, man, this computer runs slow. It's spending all its time just refreshing RAM. Yeah, that's what the <laughs> and the are doing. Well, right, but they could be doing so much more if they didn't have to do that. <laughs> So when uh, you buy RAM, like uh, I was thinking of getting some RAM for this PC, the Cocoa I just got, and it's uh, 4164s, and it's 150 uh, is the speed of them. Yeah, nanosecond. Yeah, or mm -hmm. should it be 120, or does it matter? Is this Cocoa 1, 2, or 3? 2. 150 should be fine for Cocoa 1 and 2. Okay. 120s were recommended for the Cocoa 3. But I'll, I'll like I'll give you an example too. The the Gimme X like static RAM has come down in price over the last thirty years. So yeah. Gimme X and two meg memory boards use static RAM, as does the Boomerang and the Cloud Nine ones. And yeah. the two point eight six megahertz mode on the Gimme X requires static RAM. It will not work if you only have dynamic RAM in there because of all the extra DRAM refreshing strobes and stuff that Rick was talking about. Since those are eliminated stack RAM, it can use those extra time that would have been spent refreshing the RAM, actually just running everything faster. Well, I'll tell yes. you one thing. In my um, triad, I think I have in one computer. When I think I turn it off and I turn it back on, if I do it too fast, it, it doesn't come up. It, yeah, it takes like, a good 10 to 15 seconds it, to discharge, I think, or something like yeah, that. Yeah, what, what the freak? Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> so when you use static RAM in the SAM and, and or the gimme, can you turn off the uh, uh, refresh cycle? Well, that's how the 2.86 megahertz works. It does turn off the refresh cycle. Right. The Gimme X can do that. The Gimme itself has no concept. 
It's I got to do this. It's built into me. I'm going to do it. Yeah. So it's doing a refresh on the static rim, even though it doesn't need to. It has this major urge. <laughs> right. I must. I must. Uh, so I wonder if, if, if the Sam had a mode that you could turn off the uh, uh, refresh and gain that extra uh, extra time on the bus. So, what's the speed of these new chips that are on some of you know, like the you know the surface mounted chips? There, what speeds are those? Too small to count. Yeah, crazy. Yeah, they're they're like way faster than one fifty and one twenty. Oh, they're they they're yeah, on the like, order of about you know ones and twos and. Well, okay. Uh, so I, I don't even know anymore, right. really. Luckily, faster is usually okay. So. <laughs> yeah, if you get the one twenty, you'd be fine. Yeah, I mean, if you go back into the PC days when when there was a lot of caches, like you know, level one cache and stuff like that, that was all done in static RAM too. And the reason they only put like sixteen or thirty-two or sixty-four k of static RAM cache when you had like eight megabytes of regular RAM, once again, the cost you could make it all eight megabytes of static RAM, but then the memory upgrades would have been way more expensive even on the PC. So now they're cheap. That's what phones and stuff use now. I think don't they these days use static RAM? I'm sure. Well, the, uh, the Sinclair's got to use static RAM because they saved to um, for all the hardware to do the refresh. They saved the money on and just put a little static RAM in because it was cheaper to do a little bit of static RAM than all the support hardware for the refresh. Now that 16K RAM pack has so many chips on it because it's having to do its own refreshing. Hmm. So. All righty. We ready to push the button? Unless anybody else uh, got some need... last minute things to add. This Not portion we... of RAM has been brought to you by Dodge. Maybe <laughs> 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 the lad should do the uh, closing uh, message for everyone. Closing prayer. Hi, everyone. Have a great weekend. <laughs> well, thank you, David. I'll never forgive you for that. Ending thing. on a goofy note. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Thanks. Goodbye, David. everybody. All See right. you next week. Take care, everyone. Dad and Graham to everyone. Bye. Cheerio.